This is Audible. Harper Audio presents Great by Choice Uncertainty, Chaos, and Luck Why Some Thrive Despite Them All by Jim Collins and Morton T. Hansen. This is Jim Collins, and I will be doing your audio reading of this book. Dedication from Jim To my grandmother Dolores, who at age 97 still had big dreams and audacious goals. From Morton To my daughters, Alexandra and Julia, whose generation will create the future. Chapter 1. Thriving in Uncertainty. Chapter Quote. We simply do not know what the future holds. Peter L. Bernstein. We cannot predict the future, but we can create it. Think back to 15 years ago and consider what's happened since. The destabilizing events in the world, in your country, in the markets, in your work, in your life. Events that defied all expectations. We can be astonished, confounded, shocked, stunned, delighted, or terrified, but rarely prescient. None of us can predict with certainty the twists and turns our lives will take. Life is uncertain. The future unknown. This is neither good nor bad. It just is, like gravity. Yet the task remains. How to master our own fate? Even so. Morton Hansen and I began the nine-year research project behind this book in 2002. When America awoke from its false sense of stability, safety, and wealth entitlement, the long-running bull market crashed. The government budget surplus flipped back to deficits. The terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001 horrified and enraged people everywhere. And war followed. Meanwhile, throughout the world, technological change and global competition continued their relentless, disruptive march. All of this led us to a question, a simple question. Why do some companies thrive in uncertainty, even chaos, and others do not? When buffeted by tumultuous events, when hit by big, fast-moving forces that we can neither predict nor control, what distinguishes those who perform exceptionally well from those who underperform or worse? We don't choose study questions. They choose us. Sometimes one of the questions just grabs us around the throat and growls, I'm not going to release my grip and let you breathe until you answer me. This study grabbed us because of our own persistent angst and gnawing sense of vulnerability in a world that feels increasingly disordered. 
The question wasn't just intellectually interesting, but personally relevant. And as we spent time with our students and work with leaders in both the business and the social sectors, we sensed the same angst in them. In the intervening years, events have served only to reinforce this sense of unease. What's coming next? All we know is that no one knows. Yet some companies and leaders navigate this type of world exceptionally well. They don't merely react, they create. They don't merely survive, they prevail. They don't merely succeed, they thrive. They build great enterprises that can endure. Morton and I do not believe that chaos, uncertainty, and instability are good. Companies, leaders, organizations, and societies do not thrive on chaos. But they can thrive in chaos. To get at the question of how, we set out to find companies that started from a position of vulnerability, rose to become great companies with spectacular performance. And they did so in unstable environments characterized by big forces, out of their control, fast-moving, uncertain, and potentially harmful. We then compared these companies to a control group of companies that failed to become great in the same extreme environments, using the contrast between the winners and the also-rans to uncover the distinguishing factors that allow some to thrive in uncertainty. We labeled our high-performing study cases with the moniker 10X. I'd like you to picture the number 10 with a big X next to it, 10X. Because they didn't merely get by, or just even become successful. They truly thrived. Every 10X case beat its industry index by at least 10 times. If you invested $10,000 in a portfolio of the 10X companies at the end of 1972, in constructing the portfolio, we held each enterprise at the general stock market rate of return until it came online as a public company on a major American stock exchange. Your investment would have grown to be worth more than $6 million by the end of our study era through 2002. Now that's a performance 32 times better than the general stock market. To grasp the essence of our study, consider one 10x case, Southwest Airlines. Just think of everything that slammed the airline industry from 1972 to 2002. Fuel shocks, deregulation, labor strife, air traffic controller strikes, crippling recessions, interest rate spikes, hijackings, bankruptcy after bankruptcy after bankruptcy after bankruptcy. And in 2001, the terrorist attacks of September 11. And yet, if you'd invested $10,000 in Southwest Airlines on December 31, 1972, when it was just a tiny little outfit with three airplanes, barely reaching break-even, 
and besieged by larger airlines that were out to kill the fledgling, your $10,000 would have grown to nearly $12 million by the end of 2002. A return 63 times better than the general stock market. It's a better performance than Walmart, better than Intel, better than GE, better than Johnson & Johnson, better than Walt Disney. In fact, according to an analysis by Money Magazine, Southwest Airlines produced the number one return to investors of all S&P 500 companies that were publicly traded in 1972 and held for a full 30 years to 2002. And let me remind you, this is the airline business. These are impressive results by any measure, but they're astonishing when you take into account the roiling storms, destabilizing shocks, and chronic uncertainty of Southwest's environment. Why did Southwest overcome the odds? What did it do to master its own fate? And how did it accomplish its world-beating performance when other airlines did not? Specifically, why did Southwest become great in such an extreme environment while its direct comparison, Pacific Southwest Airlines, PSA, flailed and was rendered irrelevant despite having the same business model, in the same industry, with the same opportunity to become great? This single contrast captures the essence of our research question. We've been asked by many of our students, readers, and listeners, how is this study different from your previous research into great companies, especially built to last and good to great? The method is similar. Comparative historical analysis, looking at those that became exceptional successes in contrast to others that were in the same spot with the same potential, with the same opportunities, but that did not become great. And the question of greatness is constant. But in this study, unlike any of the previous research, we selected cases not just on performance or stature, but also on the extremity of the environment. Morton and I selected on performance plus environment for two reasons. First, we believe the future will remain unpredictable and the world unstable for the rest of our lives. And we wanted to understand the factors that distinguish great organizations, those that prevail against extreme odds in such environments. Second, by looking at the best companies and their leaders in extreme environments, we gain insights that might otherwise remain hidden when studying leaders in more tranquil settings. Imagine being on a leisurely hike, wandering along warm and sunlit meadows, and your companion is a great mountaineer who has led expeditions up the most dangerous and difficult peaks in the world you'd probably notice that he's a little different, perhaps more watchful of the trail or more careful in packing his small day pack. But overall, 
given the safe predictability of a glorious spring day on a nice, warm, safe, sunlit trail, it would be hard to see what really makes this leader so exceptional. Now, in contrast, envision yourself on the side of Mount Everest with the same climber, the same leader, racing a murderous storm that is bearing down upon you. Now, in that environment, there on the side of Everest, there where the storm might kill you, there where things are moving fast, there you would see much more clearly when this leader goes into action, there you would see what makes him different and what makes him great. Studying leaders in an extreme environment is like conducting a behavioral science experiment or using a laboratory centrifuge. Throw leaders in an extreme environment and it will separate the stark differences between greatness and mediocrity. Our study looks at how the truly great differed from the merely good in environments that exposed and amplified those differences. Just like a warm sunlit trail does not expose the differences of a great leader the same way that being on the side of Everest in a murderous storm would. In the remainder of this introductory chapter, we briefly outline our research journey and preview some of the surprises we encountered along the way. Starting in chapter two, we'll delve into what we learned about the individual people who led these companies, and they are very interesting people. And in chapters three through six, we will look at how they led and built their companies differently from their less successful comparisons. And then finally, in chapter seven, we come to what, for us, was a particularly fascinating part of our journey, studying luck. That's right, studying luck. We defined luck, quantified luck, determined if the 10x cases were luckier or not, and discovered what they do differently about luck. In fact, chapter seven became my personal favorite chapter of all the chapters that I've had the privilege to write in 25 years. Finding the 10x cases. We spent the first year of our efforts identifying the primary study set of 10x cases, searching for historical cases that met three basic tests. One, the enterprise sustained truly spectacular results for an era of 15 years or more relative to the general stock market and relative to its industry. That's the first test. Two, second test. The enterprise achieved these results in a particularly turbulent environment, full of events that were uncontrollable, fast-moving, uncertain, and potentially harmful. And finally, test number three. The enterprise began its rise to greatness from a position of vulnerability, being young and or small at the start of its 10x journey. We began with an initial list of 20,400 companies. And from this, we systematically sifted through 11 layers of cuts to identify cases that met all of our tests. Because we wanted to study extreme performance in extreme environments, we used extreme standards in our selections. The final set of 10x cases delivered extraordinary performance 
during the dynastic eras we studied. I'm now going to give you some brief performance numbers for the companies that made it into the studies, the 10x companies. 10x case, Amgen. We studied it from 1980 to 2002. If you'd invested $10,000 in that period of time, you would have generated $4.5 million in returns. Now that's 24 times better than an investment in the general stock market and 77.2 times better than the biotechnology industry. 10x case, Biomet, studied from 1977 through 2002. If you invested $10,000, it would have returned $3.4 million. That's 18.1 times the market and 11.2 times the medical devices industry. 10x case, Intel. We studied it from 1968 through 2002. $10,000 invested would have given you back $3.9 million. That's a performance 20.7 times better than the general stock market and 46.3 times better than the semiconductor industry. Microsoft. We studied it from 1975 through 2002. If you'd invested $10,000, you would have gotten back $10.6 million. That's 56 times the general stock market and 118.8 times its industry. Progressive Insurance. We studied it from 1965 through 2002. If you'd invested $10,000, it would have given you back $2.7 million. That's 14.6 times the general stock market and 11.3 times the insurance industry. Southwest Airlines. We studied it from 1967 through 2002. As we mentioned earlier, Every $10,000 invested returned $12 million, 63.4 times the general stock market. But here's the astounding number, 550.4 times the airline industry. Stryker, which we studied from 1977 through 2002, $10,000 invested would have given you back $5.3 million which is 28 times the general stock market and 10.9 times the medical devices industry. Now before we go on, let's address a key point about the cases in our study. You'll notice that I kept saying we studied them from a starting date, like say 1967 or 1972 through 2002. The point is that we studied historical eras of dynastic performance that ended in 2002. We did not study the companies as they are today. It's entirely possible that by the time you hear these words, one or more of the companies on the list that you just heard has stumbled, falling from greatness. 
And you might be scratching your head wondering, but what about XYZ Company? It doesn't seem to be a 10x performer today. Don't let that bother you. Think of our research as comparable to studying a sports dynasty during its best years. Just because the UCLA Bruins basketball dynasty of the 1960s and 1970s under coach John Wooden with its 10 NC2A championships in 12 years declined after Wooden does not invalidate insights obtained by studying the Bruins during its dynastic era. In this same vein, a great company can cease to be great. See the book, How the Mighty Fall which we wrote a couple of years ago. Yet, this does not erase its dynastic era from the record books, any more than Wooden's dynastic era would go away just because the Bruins had declined after he retired. And it is on the historical dynastic era that we focused our research lens and based our findings. The Power of Contrast our research method rests upon having a comparison set. The critical question is not, what did the great companies share in common? The crucial question is, what did the great companies share in common that distinguished them from their direct comparisons? Comparisons are companies that were in the same industry with the same or very similar opportunities during the same era as the 10x companies. Yet, the comparisons did not produce great performance. Using a rigorous scoring framework, we systematically identified a comparison company for each 10x case. And of course, the whole analysis rests upon comparing one to the other and asking what's different. As a group, the 10x companies outperformed the comparison companies by more than 30 to 1. The contrast between the 10x cases and the comparisons during the relevant era of analysis led to our findings. Here then is the final study set of 10x cases and their comparisons. 10x case Amgen matched to comparison case Genentech. 10x case Biomet matched to comparison case Kirshner. 10x case Intel matched to comparison case AMD. 10x case Progressive matched to comparison case Safeco. 10x case Southwest Airlines matched to comparison case PSA or Pacific Southwest Airlines. 10x case Stryker matched to comparison case United States Surgical or as we'll say throughout the reading USSC. And 10x case Microsoft matched to comparison case Apple. Now regarding the selection of Apple as a comparison case, we're aware at the time of this reading that Apple stands in 2011 as one of the most impressive comeback stories of all time. There's no denying this. But just to be clear, our research lens for the Microsoft versus Apple contrast focused on the 1980s and 1990s when Microsoft won big, and in fact, Apple nearly killed itself. If you'd bought Apple stock at the end of December 1980, the month of its initial public offering, its IPO, and if you would hold that stock to the end of our era of analysis in 2002, 
your investment would have ended up more than 80% behind the general stock market. Now, we will address Apple's amazing resurgence under Steve Jobs later. But one point is worth noting here. Companies can indeed change over time. From comparison to 10x, as we've been seeing with Apple, and vice versa. It's always possible to go from good to great. Surprised by the data. With our research team, Morton and I then performed a deep historical analysis of each pair of companies. We collected more than 7,000 historical documents to construct a clear understanding of how each company evolved year by year from founding through 2002. We systematically analyzed categories of data including industry dynamics, founding roots, organization, leadership, culture, innovation, technology, risk, financial management, strategy, strategic change, speed, and luck. We didn't begin our journey with a theory to test or prove. We just love being surprised by the evidence and changed by what we discover. As with all of our research, we developed the concepts in this work from the data. Building a framework from the ground up. We followed an iterative approach, generating ideas inspired by the data, then testing those ideas against the evidence, watching them bend and buckle under the weight of that evidence, then replacing them with new ideas, revising, testing, revising, testing, revising yet again until all the concepts squared with the evidence. We placed the greatest weight on evidence from the actual time of events. The core of our analysis always rested on comparing the 10x cases to the comparisons across time and asking what was different. This method of inquiry proved particularly powerful for not only developing insights but also shattering deeply entrenched myths. In fact, many of the findings ran absolutely counter to our own intuition. And every major finding surprised at least one of us. As a preview of what's to come in the rest of this reading, here's a sampling of myths undermined by the research. Myth. Successful leaders in a turbulent world are bold, risk-seeking visionaries. Well, contrary finding, the best leaders we studied did not have a visionary ability to predict the future. They observed what worked, figured out why it worked, and built upon proven foundations. They were not more risk-taking. They were not more bold. They were not more visionary. They were not more creative than the comparisons. They were more disciplined, more empirical, and more paranoid. Myth. Innovation distinguishes 10x companies in a fast-moving, uncertain, and chaotic world. Contrary finding? To our great surprise, no. Yes, the 10x case is innovated. A lot. So, let me be clear, it's not that they didn't innovate. 
But the evidence does not support the premise that 10x companies will necessarily be more innovative than their less successful comparisons. And in some surprise cases, some cases that shocked us, the 10x cases were in fact less innovative. Innovation by itself turns out not to be the trump card we expected. More important is the ability to scale innovation, to blend creativity and discipline. Myth. A threat-filled world favors the speedy. You're either the quick or the dead. Contrary finding. The idea that leading in a fast world always requires fast decisions and fast action, and that we should embrace an overall ethos of fast, 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 is a good way to get yourself killed. 10x leaders figure out when to go fast and when not to. Myth. Radical change on the outside requires radical change on the inside. Contrary finding, the 10x cases changed less in reaction to their changing world than the comparison cases. Just because your environment is rocked by dramatic change does not mean that you should inflict radical change upon yourself. Myth. Great enterprises with 10x success have a lot more good luck. Contrary finding, the 10x companies did not generally have more luck than the comparisons. Both sets had luck. Lots and lots of luck. Both good luck and bad luck. Incomparable amounts. The critical question is not whether you'll have luck, but what you do with the luck that you get. A new lens an enduring quest. This book adds to a body of work on what separates great companies from good ones that began in 1989 with the Built to Last research conducted with Jerry Porras and continued with the Good to Great research and the How the Mighty Fall analysis. The complete data set from all of this research covers the evolution of 75 corporations for a total of more than six thousand years of combined corporate history. So, while this is a distinctive and original piece of research, it can also be seen as an integral part of a longer journey to explore one question. What does it take to build a great company? We like to think of each research study as like punching holes and shining a light into a black box inside which we find enduring principles that distinguish great companies from good ones. Each new study uncovers additional dynamics and allows us to see previously discovered principles from new angles. We cannot claim that the concepts we uncover cause greatness. No one in the social sciences can ever claim causality. But we can claim correlations rooted in the evidence. If you apply our findings with discipline, your chances of building an enduring great company will be higher than if you behave like a comparison case. If you've read or listened to Built to Last, Good to Great, 
or How the Mighty Fall, you'll notice very little discussion in the next six chapters about the concepts uncovered in those works. With the exception of a direct link to Level 5 leadership, we've deliberately not discussed here principles like the hedgehog concept, first two, the idea of getting the right people on the bus, core values, BHAGs, our favorite little phrase for big, hairy, audacious goals, cult-like cultures, the Stockdale paradox, clock building, the five stages of decline, or the flywheel. The reason is simple. Why dwell on what's already well covered in the previous books in this book? That said, we did test the principles from the previous books and found that they do apply in a chaotic and uncertain world. In the frequently asked questions at the end of this program, we address common questions about how the concepts in this work link to those in the prior books. But the primary purpose of this book and the primary purpose of this reading is to share with you the new concepts learned from this study. Now that we've completed our research journey, we feel a much greater sense of calm. Not because we believe life will magically become stable and predictable. If anything, the forces of complexity, globalization, and technology are accelerating change and increasing volatility. We feel calm because we have increased understanding of what it takes to survive, navigate, and prevail. We are much better prepared for what we cannot possibly predict. Thriving in a chaotic world is not just a business challenge. In fact, all our work is not fundamentally about business, but about the principles that distinguish great organizations from good ones. We're curious to discover what makes for enduring great organizations of any type. We use publicly traded corporations as the data set because they provide a clear and consistent metric of results. And that allows us to carefully select our study cases with rigor, with precision. And they have easily accessible and extensive historical data. A great public school a great hospital, a great sports team, a great church, a great military unit, a great homeless shelter, a great orchestra, a great nonprofit, each has its own definition of results, defined by its core purpose. Yet the question, the question of this work, of what it takes to achieve superior performance amidst unrelenting uncertainty, well, that faces them all. Greatness is not just a business quest. It is a human quest. So, we invite you to join us on a journey, to learn what we learned. Challenge and question. Let the evidence speak. Take what you find useful and apply it to creating a great enterprise that doesn't just react to events, but actually shapes events. As the great management thinker Peter Drucker taught, the best, perhaps even the only, way to predict the future is to create it. Chapter 2, 10 Xers. Chapter Quote Victory awaits him who has everything in order. Luck, people call it. 
defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. This is called bad luck. Roald Amundsen, The South Pole In October 1911, two teams of adventurers made their final preparations in their quest to be the first people in modern history to reach the South Pole. For one team, it would be a race to victory and a safe return home. For members of the second team, it would be a devastating defeat, reaching the pole only to find the wind-whipped flags of their rivals planted 34 days earlier, followed by a race for their lives, a race that they lost in the end, as the advancing winter swallowed them up. All five members of the second pole team perished, staggering from exhaustion, suffering the dead black pain of frostbite, and then freezing to death, as some wrote their final journal entries and notes to loved ones back home. It's a near-perfect matched pair. Here we have two expedition leaders, Roel Mominson, the winner, and Robert Falcon Scott, the loser, of similar ages, 39 and 43, and with comparable experience. Amundsen led the first successful journey through the Northwest Passage and joined the first expedition to spend the winter in Antarctica. Scott led a South Pole expedition in 1902, reaching 82 degrees south. Amundsen and Scott started their respective journeys for the Pole within days of each other, both facing a round trip of more than 1,400 miles. That's roughly equal to the distance from New York City to Chicago and back into an uncertain and unforgiving environment where temperatures could easily reach 20 degrees below zero Fahrenheit even during the summer, made worse by gale force winds. And keep in mind, this was 1911. They had no means of modern communication to call back to base camp, no radio, no cell phones, no satellite links. And a rescue would have been highly improbable at the South Pole if they screwed up. One leader, Amundsen, led his team to victory and safety. The other, Scott, led his team to defeat and death. What separated these two men? Why did one achieve spectacular success in such an extreme set of conditions while the other failed even to survive? It's a fascinating question and a vivid analogy for our overall topic. Here we have two leaders, both on quests for extreme achievement in an extreme environment. And it turns out that the 10x business leaders in our research behaved very much like Amundsen, and the comparison leaders behaved much more like Scott. We'll turn to the business leaders in a few pages, but first, let's add a bit more detail to the tale of Amundsen and Scott. To learn even more about Amundsen and Scott than we will share in this reading, Morton and I recommend starting with Roland Hunsford's superb book, The Last Place on Earth a massive, well-written, comparative study of these two men. Are you Amundsen or Scott?
While in his late 20s, Rolm Amundsen traveled from Norway to Spain for a two-month sailing trip to earn a master's certificate. It was 1899. He had a nearly 2,000-mile journey ahead of him. And how did Amundsen make the journey? By carriage? By horse? By ship? By rail? Nope. He bicycled. Amundsen then experimented with eating raw dolphin meat to determine its usefulness as an energy supply. After all, he reasoned, someday he might be shipwrecked, finding himself surrounded by dolphins. So he might as well know if he could eat one. It was all part of Amundsen's years of building a foundation for his quest, training his body, and learning as much as possible from practical experience about what actually worked. Amundsen even made a pilgrimage to apprentice with Eskimos. What better way to learn what worked in polar conditions than to spend time with the people who have hundreds of years of accumulated experience in ice and cold and snow and wind? He learned how Eskimos used dogs to pull sleds. He observed how Eskimos never hurried, moving slowly and steadily, avoiding excessive sweat that could turn into ice in sub-zero temperatures. He adopted Eskimo clothing, loose-fitting to help sweat evaporate, and protective. He systematically practiced Eskimo methods and trained himself for every conceivable situation he might encounter en route to the pole. Amundsen's philosophy? You don't wait until you're in an unexpected storm to discover that you need more strength and endurance. You don't wait until you're shipwrecked to determine if you can eat raw dolphin. You don't wait until you're on the Antarctic journey to become a superb skier and dog handler. You prepare with intensity all the time so that when conditions turn against you, you can draw from a deep reservoir of strength. And equally, you prepare so that when conditions turn in your favor, you can strike hard. Robert Falcon Scott presents quite a contrast to Amundsen. In the years leading up to the race for the South Pole, he could have trained like a maniac on cross-country skis and then taken a thousand-mile bike ride. He did not. He could have gone to live with Eskimos. He did not. He could have practiced more with dogs, making himself comfortable with choosing dogs over ponies. See, ponies, unlike dogs, sweat on their hides, so they become encased in ice sheets when tethered, and they post hole and struggle in the snow, and don't generally eat meat. Amundsen had planned to kill some of the weaker dogs along the way to feed them to the stronger dogs. Scott chose ponies. Scott also bet on motor sledges, that hadn't been fully tested in the most extreme South Pole conditions. As it turned out, the motor sledge engines cracked within the first few days. The ponies failed early, and his team slogged through most of the journey by man-hauling, harnessing themselves to sleds, trudging across the snow, and pulling the sleds behind them. Unlike Scott, Amundsen systematically built enormous buffers for unforeseen events. When setting supply depots, Amundsen not only flagged a primary depot, he placed 20 black pennants, easy to see against the white snow, in precise increments 
for miles on either side, giving himself a target more than 10 kilometers wide in case he got slightly off course coming back in a storm. To accelerate segments of his return journey, he marked his path every quarter of a mile with packing case remnants and every eight miles with black flags hoisted upon bamboo poles. Scott, in contrast, put a single flag on his primary depot and left no markings on his path, leaving him exposed to catastrophe if he went even a bit off course. Amundsen stored three tons of supplies for five men starting out, versus Scott's one ton for 17 men. In his final push for the South Pole from 82 degrees, Amundsen carried enough extra supplies to miss every single supply depot and still have enough left over to go another 100 miles. Scott ran everything dangerously close to his calculations so that missing even one supply depot would bring disaster. A single detail aptly highlights the difference in their approaches. Scott brought one thermometer for a key altitude measurement device, and he exploded in an outburst of wrath and consequence when it broke. Amundsen brought four such thermometers to cover for accidents. Amundsen didn't know precisely what lay ahead. He didn't know the exact terrain, the altitude of the mountain passes, or all the barriers he might encounter. He and his team might get pounded by a series of unfortunate events. Yet he designed the entire journey to systematically reduce the role of big forces and chance events by vigorously embracing the possibility of those very same big forces and chance events. He presumed bad events might strike his team somewhere along the journey, and he prepared for them, even developing contingency plans so that the team could go on should something unfortunate happen to him along the way. Scott left himself unprepared and complained in his journal about his bad luck. Quote, Our luck in weather is preposterous, penned Scott in his journal, and wrote in another entry, quote, It is more than our share of ill fortune. How great may be the element of luck. On December 15, 1911, in bright sunshine, sparkling across the vast white plain, with a slight crosswind and a temperature of 10 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, Amundsen reached the South Pole. He and his teammates planted the Norwegian flag, which unfurled itself with a sharp crack and dedicated the plateau to the Norwegian king. Then they went right back to work. They erected a tent and attached a letter to the Norwegian king describing their success. Amundsen addressed the envelope to Captain Scott, presuming Scott would be the next to reach the pole, as an insurance policy in case his team met an unfortunate end on the journey home. Amundsen could not have known that Scott and his team were manhauling their sleds fully 360 miles behind. More than a month later, at 6.30 p.m. on January 17, 1912, Scott found himself staring at Amundsen's Norwegian flag at the South Pole. 
We have had a horrible day, Scott wrote in his diary. Add to our disappointment a headwind, four to five, with a temperature minus 22 degrees. Great God, this is an awful place and terrible enough for us to have labored to it without the reward of priority. End of his journal entry. On that very day, Amundsen had already traveled nearly 500 miles back north, reaching his 82-degree supply depot with only eight easy days to go. Scott turned around and headed back north, more than 700 miles of man-hauling from home base, just as the season began to turn. The weather became more severe, with increasing winds and decreasing temperatures, while supplies dwindled and the men struggled through the snow. Amundsen and his team reached home base in good shape on January 25, the precise day Amundsen had penned into his plan. Running out of supplies, Scott stalled in mid-March, exhausted and depressed. Eight months later, a British reconnaissance party found the frozen bodies of Scott and two companions in a forlorn, snow-drifted little tent just ten miles short of his supply depot. Different behaviors, not different circumstances. Amundsen and Scott achieved dramatically different outcomes not because they faced dramatically different circumstances. In the first 34 days of their respective expeditions, Amundsen and Scott had exactly the same ratio, 56% of good days to bad days of weather. If they faced the same environment in the same year, the causes of their respective success and failure simply cannot be the environment. They had divergent outcomes principally because they displayed different behaviors. So too with the leaders in our research study. Like Amundsen and Scott, our matched pairs were vulnerable to the same environments at the same time. Yet some leaders proved themselves to be 10xers, while leaders on the other side of the pair did not. 10xers, so picture it as the number 10 with a big X and then small ERS, so 10xers, is our term for the people who built the 10x companies. In our research, we observed that the 10xers shared a set of behavioral traits that distinguished them from the comparison leaders. In this chapter, we introduce you to these traits. And in subsequent chapters, we describe how our 10xers led and built their successful companies consistent with these traits. Let's first look at what we did not find about 10xers relative to their less successful comparisons. They're not more creative. They're not more visionary. They're not more charismatic. They're not more ambitious. They're not more blessed by luck. They're not more risk-seeking. They're not more heroic. They're not more prone to making big, bold moves. To be clear, we're not saying that 10Xers lacked creative intensity, or lacked ferocious ambition, or lacked the courage to bet big. They displayed all these traits, 
But this is the key point. So did their less successful comparisons. So then how did the 10Xers distinguish themselves? First, 10Xers embrace a paradox of control and non-control. On the one hand, 10Xers understand that they face continuous uncertainty and that they cannot control and cannot accurately predict significant aspects of the world around them. On the other hand, 10Xers reject the idea that forces outside their control or chance events will determine their results. They accept full responsibility for their own fate. 10Xers then bring this idea to life by a triad of core behaviors. A triad of behaviors that we're going to come back to over and over again in the rest of this reading. Number one, fanatic discipline. Number two, empirical creativity. Number three, productive paranoia. Animating these three core behaviors is a central motivating force behind them that operates in the background. What we would describe as level five ambition. So I'd like you to picture a triangle. And in each of the points of the triangle, we have one of these three key behaviors. In the upper point of the triangle, picture the words fanatic discipline. In the bottom right point of the triangle, picture the word empirical creativity. In the bottom left of the triangle, picture productive paranoia. So what you have is in each of the three points of the triangle, you have the three core behaviors. Fanatic discipline, empirical creativity, productive paranoia. Then picture in the middle of the triangle, amplifying those, the idea of level five ambition. These behavioral traits, which we introduce in the remainder of this chapter, correlate with achieving 10x results in chaotic and uncertain environments. Fanatic discipline keeps 10x enterprises on track. Empirical creativity keeps them vibrant. And productive paranoia keeps them alive. And then finally, level five ambition provides inspired motivation. Now we're going to go to the top of the triangle, fanatic discipline. In the late 1990s, Peter Lewis, CEO of Progressive Insurance, faced a seemingly irrational Wall Street, driving Progressive stock price wildly up and down and up and down. On October 16, 1998, Progressive's stock jumped nearly $20, an 18% jump in a single day. Did anything fundamentally change about the company that day? No. Did the economy make a sudden lurch? No. Did the market rally 18% that day? No. Absolutely nothing of any significance had changed for Progressive on October 16, 1998, and yet the stock price soared an astounding 18%. Then in the very next quarter, on January 26, 1999, Progressive stock plummeted nearly $30, a 19% drop in a single day. Did anything fundamentally change about the company that day? No. Did the economy make a sudden lurch? No. Did the markets crash? No. 
absolutely nothing of any significance had changed for Progressive on January 26, 1999, and yet the stock price fell an astounding 19%. These wild fluctuations stemmed in part from Peter Lewis's belief that playing earnings games to satisfy Wall Street lacked honesty. Lewis refused to play the game of telling analysts about forthcoming earnings so that they could more reliably predict those very same earnings. A behavior Lewis saw as a shortcut alternative to deep analysis and field work. Lewis also rejected the idea that a company should manage earnings by smoothing them out from quarter to quarter so as to not rattle the markets viewing such shenanigans as undisciplined. But this caused a problem. Because Lewis rejected the, I'll tell you what we'll earn, and you predict what we'll earn, and we'll both be happy model, and because he refused to smooth earnings, analysts couldn't consistently predict progressive earnings. As one analyst complained, I might as well flip a coin. And so, on October 16, 1998, Progressive exceeded analyst expectations by 44 cents a share, driving the stock up, and then on January 26, 1999, Progressive earnings fell below analyst expectations by 16 cents a share, driving the stock down. If Lewis were to continue to refuse to play the game, Progressive stock would continue to spike up and down, which could make the company vulnerable to raiders. To ignore that risk, would be like a polar explorer choosing to ignore the possibility of a freak storm that could kill him. Yet capitulating would compromise Lewis's principles. So what should Lewis do? He rejected option A to ignore. He rejected option B to capitulate. And he chose option Q. Progressive would become the first SEC-listed company to publish monthly financial statements. This would give analysts actual performance data as the quarter progressed, from which they could more easily estimate quarterly results. Other companies had capitulated to the guidance game because, well, they felt they had no choice, that they were imprisoned by this huge force out of their control. But Lewis... Lewis freed Progressive from the prison. He accepted that these pressures existed. He did not ignore them. Yet he mitigated their effect by prodigious effort. What does this story have to do with discipline? Discipline, in essence, is consistency of action. Consistency with values. Consistency with long-term goals. Consistency with performance standards. Consistency of method. Consistency over time. Discipline is not the same as regimentation. Discipline is not the same as measurement. Discipline is not the same as hierarchical obedience or adherence to bureaucratic rules. True discipline, fanatic discipline, requires the independence of mind to reject pressures to conform in ways incompatible with values, performance standards, and long-term aspirations. For a 10Xer, the only legitimate form of discipline is self-discipline.
discipline, having the inner will to do whatever it takes to create a great outcome, no matter how difficult. 10Xers are utterly relentless, monomaniacal even, unbending in their focus on their quests. They don't overreact to events, succumb to the herd, or leap for alluring but irrelevant opportunities. They're capable of immense perseverance, unyielding in their standards, yet disciplined enough to not overreach. In our research team discussions, we struggled with how to best describe the discipline we found in the 10X leaders. Most business CEOs have some level of discipline. They wouldn't be CEOs otherwise. But the 10Xers operated on an entirely different level. The 10Xers, we concluded, weren't just disciplined, they were fanatics. Lewis's decision to issue monthly financial reports is akin to Amundsen riding his bicycle from Norway to Spain and eating raw dolphin meat. Their behavior fits nowhere on a normal curve. Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines believed passionately in sustaining a high-spirit, fun-loving, and iconoclastic culture full of passionate people infused with a rebellious warrior spirit. Kelleher understood that superb customer service naturally arises when people have fun at work and love their company. As the airline grew from a small Texas commuter airline with only a handful of airplanes into a major national carrier, it would be increasingly difficult and increasingly important to sustain the culture. So, Kelleher himself behaved as a fanatic exemplar of the culture. I'll bet you one thing, Kelleher told 60 Minutes, that I'm the only airline president in America that would go over to his maintenance hangar at 2 o'clock in the morning in a flowered hat with a feathered boa and a purple dress. When asked to grace the cover of Texas Monthly Magazine, he showed up in a white suit, zipped it down to show off his bare chest. The cover shot portrayed him doing some sort of an Elvis-like dance next to the headline, Herbie Goes Bananas. When he faced a trade slogan ownership dispute with Stevens Aviation, he met Stevens' as CEO not in the courtroom, but in an arena filled with hundreds of employees punching the air with pom-poms to resolve the matter with an arm wrestling contest. On the research team, we joked that Kelleher's technicolor quirks evoked a Hunter S. Thompson quote with a slight twist. When the going gets weird, the weird become CEO. Okay, so we see weirdness. But to focus on Kelleher's weirdness as weirdness would miss the point. He wasn't weird to be weird. He was behaving with outlandish consistency to animate the culture. He's almost like an impactful actor who stays perfectly in character while on stage. He was also a complete monomaniac about building Southwest Airlines, never resting in the quest to make Southwest the best, low-cost, high-spirit airline winning every battle and every war with its competitors. 
In my spare time, I work, Kelleher explained in 1987, seven days a week, usually until eight or nine at night. Then he'd settle down before bed to make progress on reading the thousands of books scattered about his home. Kelleher was like Muhammad Ali, combining a deadly serious intensity with a blustery, comical exterior. You might laugh with Kelleher, much like enjoying an Ali press conference, but then find yourself flat on your back if you dared to square off in the ring. By one account, Kelleher showed his competitive ferocity speaking to a gathering of Southwest people. If someone says they're going to smack us in the face, knock them out, stomp them out, boot them in a ditch, cover them over, and move on to the next thing. Both Kelleher and Lewis, like all the 10Xers we studied, were nonconformists in the best sense. They started with values, purpose, long-term goals, and severe performance standards. And they had the fanatic discipline to adhere to them. If that required them to diverge from normal behavior, well then so be it. They didn't let external pressures or even social norms knock them off course. In an uncertain and unforgiving environment, following the madness of crowds is a good way to get killed. And why would they have such independence of mind? Not because they had more inherent audacity than others, and not because they were more brash and rebellious than others, but because they were more empirical than others. Which brings us to the second of the three core 10Xer behaviors. So now we move to the second core 10Xer behavior. Let's go back to the triangle. Remember at the top of the triangle we have fanatic discipline, which we just covered. And now we're going to move to the bottom right point of the triangle, which is empirical creativity. In 1994, Andy Grove, chief executive of Intel, underwent a routine blood test that came back with a worrisome number. A PSA, which is a prostate-specific antigen, reading of 5, indicating that there could be a tumor the size of a sugar cube growing inside his prostate gland. The doctor suggested that Grove's first step should be to visit the urologist. Most people would do exactly that. But that wasn't Andy Grove's response. Instead, he began reading research articles written by medical scientists for medical scientists. Grove delved into the data. What did the PSA test really indicate? How did the biochemistry work? What were the statistics of prostate cancer and the pros and cons of treatment options? He also decided to test the tests to validate the data in his own readings, sending blood samples to separate labs to calibrate the degree of lab variation in the test. Only after all this did Grove make an appointment with the urologist. But even then, Grove did not rely on his doctors to create a treatment plan. After an MRI and a bone scan, he embarked on a more extensive research regimen, going directly to original sources, culling through the primary data, 
He obtained all the articles cited in the Bibliography of a Prostate Cancer Reference Book, devoured those, then searched for scientific literature that had been published in the six to nine months after the publication of that book, and then obtained even more materials that had been cited in those publications. Grove maintained an intense CEO schedule by day and his prostate research regimen by night, plotting data, cross-referencing different studies, and trying to make sense of it all. He learned through his research that there was a raging intellectual war over various cancer treatment regimens. Grove realized he ultimately had to draw his own decision trees, plug in his own probability equations, and come to his own data-driven, logical conclusions about his treatment plan. As a patient whose life and well-being depended on a meeting of minds, he later wrote in Fortune magazine, I realized I would have to do some cross-disciplinary work on my own. After a biopsy, which confirmed the presence of a moderately aggressive tumor, Grove threw his prodigious mental capacity at the question of what he should do next. Cancer treatments usually involve some combination of slicing you up, surgery, frying you, radiation, or poisoning you, chemotherapy. And each option has its own side effects, consequences, and survival rates. Furthermore, each doctor tends to have a bias toward a particular treatment, influenced by that doctor's own specialties. If you're a hammer, everything you see looks like a nail. Grove found proponents of traditional surgery, cryosurgery, external radiation, seed therapy, high-dose rate radiation, and combination therapies. The dominant conventional wisdom pointed to surgery. But Grove's own direct engagement with the evidence, his own trees, his own probabilities, his own research, his own analysis, his own charts, led him to a different choice. He chose a combination radiation therapy. In the end, Grove reflected, quote, I decided to bet on my own charts. Now you might be thinking, my goodness, what an arrogant jerk. Who does he think he is to defy the whole medical establishment? But think about it this way. Grove discovered that the medical establishment itself had great uncertainty and disagreement within its own ranks, a dynamic amplified by rapidly advancing technologies. Had Grove faced a broken arm with no uncertainty about treatment, and zero risk of death, he wouldn't have spent hundreds of hours building charts of data. But with significant uncertainty multiplied by significant consequences, Grove did what all our 10Xers did. He turned directly to empirical evidence. Social psychology research indicates that at times of uncertainty, most people look to other people, authority figures, peers, group norms, for their primary cues about how to proceed. 10Xers, in contrast, do not look to conventional wisdom, 
to set their course during times of uncertainty, nor do they primarily look to what other people do or to what pundits and experts say they should do. They look primarily to empirical evidence itself. The point here is not to be contrary and independent just for the sake of being contrary and independent. The point is to be more empirical, to buttress your mental independence and validate your creative instincts. By empirical, we mean relying upon direct observation, conducting practical experiments, and or engaging directly with evidence rather than relying upon opinion, whim, conventional wisdom, authority, or untested ideas. Having an empirical foundation enables 10Xers to make bold creative moves and bound to their risk. Grove's approach to his cancer treatment was unusual, even creative, yet deeply grounded in evidence and rigor. Let's return to Amundsen and the South Pole. In planning for the expedition, Amundsen set up his base camp in a location no one else had seriously considered. A bold stroke that put him 60 miles closer to the South Pole right from the get-go. Everyone believed McMurdo Sound was the best place to launch a bid for the pole. It had been used by other explorers and had proven to be a stable place to build a base. But Amundsen, Amundsen saw another option, the Bay of Wales. Other expedition leaders believed the Bay of Wales to be unstable ice and therefore a foolhardy place to base operations. So what was Amundsen doing there? Well, Amundsen had gathered the source notes and journals from previous expeditions dating back to Ross's voyage in 1841. He pored over the details, immersing himself in the evidence, noting consistencies and discrepancies, and assessing all the options. He noticed something interesting, something missed by others who simply accepted the conventional distrust of the Bay of Wales. See, in the source notes, he noticed a dome-like feature that had remained in the same place for seven decades. Amundsen concluded that this particular part of the barrier was in fact a stable location. Wrote Huntsford of this decision, Amundsen was the first to draw the obvious conclusion because he was the first to study the sources. He was that rare creature, an intellectual polar explorer with the capacity to examine evidence and make logical deductions. The 10Xers did not generally make bolder moves than their less successful comparisons. Both groups made big bets and, when needed, took dramatic action. Nor did the 10Xers exude more raw confidence than the comparison leaders. Indeed, the comparison leaders were often brazenly self-confident. But the 10Xers had a much deeper empirical foundation to their decisions and actions, which gave them well-founded confidence and bounded their risk. Does all this emphasis on being empirical make 10Xers indecisive? Do they just spend all their time analyzing and not acting? 
No, not really. Grove took decisive action on his cancer once he'd immersed himself in the evidence. Just as Amundsen took decisive action to land at the Bay of Wales. The 10Xers don't favor analysis over action. They favor empiricism as the foundation for decisive action. Yet, despite their empirical confidence, 10Xers never feel safe or comfortable. Indeed, they remain afraid, terrified even, of what the world can throw at them. So they prepare to meet head-on what they most fear. Which brings us to the third core behavior. Okay, just to review where we've been and where we are. We're going through these three core behaviors that distinguished the 10Xers from the comparisons. They're in this triangle, and the top of the triangle we covered first with fanatic discipline. Then the bottom right point in the triangle, which we covered just before this, is empirical creativity. And now we move to the bottom left part of the triangle, which is productive paranoia. In early 1986, Microsoft leaders met with underwriters and lawyers to edit the prospectus for an initial public stock offering. The underwriters and lawyers came prepared to be the purveyors of darkness, to engage in a battle with Microsoft leaders to adequately describe the risks investors should consider. But instead of encountering an overly optimistic entrepreneurial leader who painted a rosy picture of unstoppable success, they met Dr. Doom. Steve Ballmer, then a vice president, reveled in coming up with scenario after scenario of risk, peril, danger, death, crippling attack, misfortune, and catastrophe. Grim possibilities poured into the conversation. Underwriters scribbling away on their notepads. Finally, after pausing to digest all the possible carnage, one of the underwriters said to Balmer, I'd hate to hear you on a bad day. Balmer became the commissar of concern under the tutelage from the grand master of productive paranoia himself, Bill Gates. Palmer had abandoned his studies at the Stanford Graduate School of Business to join his friend's adventure. As Balmer recalled, he did some calculations about growth and concluded that Microsoft needed to hire 17 people. Gates threw a fit. 17 people? Did Balmer want to bankrupt the company? 17 people? No way! 17 people? Microsoft would never expose itself to financial ruin. 17 people? Microsoft should have enough cash on hand to go a year, an entire year, without a penny of revenues. Fear should guide you, but it should be latent, Gates said in 1994. I consider failure on a regular basis. Gates hung a photograph of Henry Ford in his office to remind himself that even the greatest entrepreneurial successes can be passed by as Ford had been passed by GM in the early history of the auto industry. Gates worried constantly about who might be the next Bill Gates, some freaky high school kid toiling away 22 hours a day in some dingy little office coming up with a lethal torpedo to fire right at Microsoft. 
Gates showed his fearful side in what became known as the Nightmare Memo. In a four-day period, from June 17 to June 20, 1991, Bill Gates's personal fortune dropped more than $300 million as Microsoft stock suddenly fell 11% when a memo filled with nightmare scenarios leaked its way to the San Jose Mercury News. Written by Gates himself, the memo listed a series of worries and threats about competitors, technology, intellectual property, legal cases, and Microsoft's customer support shortcomings. And the memo proclaimed that, quote, our nightmare is a reality, unquote. Now keep in mind that at the time of the memo, Microsoft was rapidly becoming the most powerful player in its industry, with Windows on the verge of becoming one of the most dominant software products ever. Anyone who understood Gates would have known that the memo didn't signal a change. He always lived in fear, always felt vulnerable, and he would continue to do so. If I really believed this stuff about our invincibility, he said the year after the nightmare memo, I suppose I would take more vacations. It's quite a contrast to John Scully, who presided over Apple during much of its comparison era in the mid-1980s to the early 1990s. In 1988, Apple had a spectacularly good year. USA Today reported, Apple isn't just on the rebound, it's bounding ahead faster than it has since 1983. In each of the past three quarters, revenues climbed more than 50% above the same year-ago period, while net income shot up more than 100%. At this rate, the article continued, the computer maker will finish 1988 doubling both sales and net income in just two years. And how did Scully respond? Did he live in fear that Apple's very success might presage possible doom? He announced a nine-week sabbatical. Nine weeks! To be fair, Scully didn't plan to disappear entirely for nine weeks. He'd still attend board meetings, meet with securities analysts, and appear at Macworld, among other activities. Still, it's quite a contrast to Gates's responding to success by worrying obsessively and issuing nightmare memos. That same USA Today article quoted Scully, quote, I've got the team in place here. Things are booming, so I'm going fishing. The very next year, Apple's return on equity began to fall. From nearly 40% in 1988 to 13% in 1994, Scully had left Apple by that point, and turning negative in 1996. Apple continued to hurtle downward until Steve Jobs' return in the late 1990s. Our point is not that a sabbatical caused Apple's decline, or that John Scully was lazy. When fully engaged, he had a prodigious work ethic. Our point is to draw a contrast with the productive paranoia Gates demonstrated all the time, no matter how successful Microsoft became. 10Xers differ from their less successful comparisons in how they maintain hypervigilance in good times as well as bad. 
Even in calm, clear, positive conditions, 10Xers constantly consider the possibility that events could turn against them at any moment. Indeed, they believe that conditions will absolutely, with 100% certainty, turn against them without warning at some unpredictable point in time, at some highly inconvenient moment. And they'd better be prepared. Whether it be Herb Kelleher at Southwest Airlines predicting 11 of the last three recessions. Andy Grove of Intel looking for the black cloud in the silver lining. Kevin Scherer of Amgen putting a portrait of General George A. Custer, who led his troops to calamity at Little Bighorn, in his office to remind himself that overconfidence leads to doom. Or Bill Gates issuing nightmare memos at Microsoft, the 10Xers have a consistent pattern. By embracing the myriad of possible dangers, they put themselves in a superior position to overcome danger. 10Xers distinguish themselves not by paranoia per se, but by how they take effective action as a result. Paranoid behavior is enormously functional if Fear is channeled into extensive preparation and calm, clear-headed action. Hence, our term, productive paranoia. We're not making any claims about clinical paranoia here. We're labeling instead the 10x behavior of turning hypervigilance into preparation and productive action. Gates didn't just sit around writing up nightmare memos. He channeled fear into action by keeping workspace inexpensive, hiring better people, building cash reserves, and working on the next software release to stay a step ahead, then the next one, and the next one after that. Like Amundsen, with his huge supply buffers, 10Xers maintain a conservative financial position squirreling away cash to protect against unforeseen disruptions. Like Amundsen, sensing great risk and betting on unproven methods and technologies, they avoid unnecessary risks that could expose them to calamity. Like Amundsen, they succeed in an uncertain and unforgiving environment through deliberate, methodical, and systematic preparation always asking, what if, what if, what if? Productive paranoia isn't just about avoiding danger, trying to find the safest and most enjoyable path through life. 10Xers seek to accomplish a great objective, be it a goal, a company, a noble ambition to change the world, or a desire to be useful in the extreme. Indeed, as an overall life approach, they worry not about protecting what they have, but creating and building something truly great, bigger than themselves. Which brings us to the motivating force behind the three core 10Xer behaviors. Okay, so let's again briefly touch base with where we are. We have this triangle of these three core behaviors that distinguish the 10Xers from their comparisons. At the top part of the triangle, we have fanatic discipline. In the bottom right, we have the empirical creativity. 
and we now just covered the bottom left, which is the productive paranoia. We're now going to move to the center of the triangle with the animating ambition that brings these behaviors to life. Level 5, Ambition. At first, we puzzled. We wondered. Why would anyone work with these people? They seem, well, somewhat extreme. Paranoid, contrarian, independent, obsessed, monomaniacal, exhausting, and so forth. Early in our research, we labeled them PNFs, short for Paranoid Neurotic Freaks. Yet, the fact is, they attracted thousands of people to join them. If they were nothing but weird, selfish, antisocial, paranoid freaks of nature, they likely could not have built truly great organizations. So, why did people follow them? Because of a deeply attractive form of ambition. 10Xers channel their ego and their intensity, their extremity, into something larger and more enduring than themselves. They're ambitious, to be sure, incredibly ambitious, but for a purpose beyond themselves. Be it building a great company, changing the world, or achieving some great object that is ultimately not about them. In 1992, Business Week published a special report on the relationship between CEO pay and corporate performance. Dane Miller of Biomet, one of the 10x companies in the study, ranked number one, delivering more value per dollar of his own compensation than any other CEO. And it wasn't just a one-year blip. He sustained a top ranking, sometimes number one, always near the top, for more than a decade in publications like Forbes, Business Week, and Chief Executive Magazine. Keep in mind, the 1990s became the acceleration point when executive compensation began spiraling upward, fueled by stock options that gave CEOs massive upside if their companies did well, but minimal downside if their companies fared poorly. Miller's stock option package at the time? Zero. His employees had options, but he did not. He owned his own equity outright so that his personal fortune linked directly to the company's performance on the upside and the downside. In a sense, relative to business norms, Miller could have been viewed as the world's most underpaid CEO. Yet Miller showed nothing but gratitude, noting in 2000 that his life was dedicated to two things, Biomet and his family. There's nothing else I want to do in my life, said Miller. I enjoy virtually every day, and I couldn't be having any more fun or any more excitement about what I do. As for being the most underpaid CEO relative to value, he blasted the idea of granting tons of upside-only options. What's the point of just more and more and more and more and more for the sake of more and more and more? Quote, what incremental value does an extra hundred thousand shares have, he snorted. At some point, he continued, you're just satisfying 
an uncontrollable greed complex. In Good to Great, we wrote about Level 5 leaders, those who lead with a powerful mixture of personal humility plus professional will. Every Good to Great transition in that research began with the emergence of a Level 5 leader who deflected attention from himself, maintained a low profile, and led with inspired standards rather than inspiring personality. On the surface, some of the 10Xers appeared to be unlike Level 5 leaders. Kelleher had a zany and flamboyant personality who often drew attention to himself by his antics. So did Peter Lewis. In culling through decades of documents on the Lewis era at Progressive Insurance, we came across a range of descriptors. Just plain strange. Oddball. A standard deviation from an iconoclast. A wild man. Eccentric. A frame or two off the ordinary screen. A rock star without any musical ability. No way to jerk his chain because he doesn't have one. These are all direct quotes from articles that we read. Lewis signed his annual letter to shareholders with the quirky, Joy, Love, and Peace, Peter B. Lewis. He strode into a board meeting one Halloween dressed as the Lone Ranger, firing cat pistols to the music of the William Tell Overture, an apt image given that Lewis began to see himself as the masked man. Lewis jumps off the pages of our research materials almost like a self-absorbed teenage male who inherits his family's company and turns it into a hedonistic party house in some adolescent fantasy B-grade movie. Yet, despite his eccentricities and sometimes outlandish behavior, Lewis dedicated himself to one goal above all others making Progressive a truly great company. And he built the company to be great without him. After Lewis engineered a smooth transition to his successor in 2000, Progressive continued to grow, gaining on its competitors, increasing share value, and sustaining a high return on equity. Did Lewis have a large personal ego and colorful personality? Yes. Did he mature so that he eventually channeled his ego into building a company that could be great without him? Also, yes. The 10Xers in this research share Level 5 leaders' most important trait. They're incredibly ambitious. But their ambition is first and foremost for the cause, for the company, for the work, not for themselves. Whereas good to great focused heavily on the humility aspect of level five leaders, this work highlights their sheer ferocity of will. Sometimes the 10Xers painted their causes in fairly grand terms, even while avoiding any sense of personal grandiosity. Gordon Moore, CEO of Intel from the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s, maintained a low profile despite being the primary company builder during Intel's early growth. Moore, nonetheless, saw Intel's purpose in gigantic terms, 
recognizing how microelectronics would revolutionize nearly every aspect of society. In 1973, only five years into Intel's history, Moore said, We are really the revolutionaries in the world today. Not the kids with the long hair and beards who were wrecking the schools a few years ago. Gordon Moore led with an understated personality, yet built a great company that would play a catalytic role in revolutionizing the way civilization works. To focus on Gordon Moore's understated personality, or Lewis's and Keller's outsized personalities, would miss the point. The central question is, what are you in it for? 10x leaders can be bland or colorful, uncharismatic or magnetic, understated or flamboyant, normal to the point of dull or just flat out weird. None of this really matters as long as they're passionately driven for a cause beyond themselves. Every 10Xer we studied aimed for much more than just becoming successful. They didn't define themselves by money. They didn't define themselves by fame. They didn't define themselves by power. They defined themselves by impact and contribution and purpose. Even the uber-ambitious Bill Gates, who became the wealthiest person in the world, wasn't driven primarily by gratifying his personal ego. Early in Gates' career, as Microsoft began to gain momentum, one of his friends commented, All Bill's ego goes into Microsoft. It's his firstborn child. Then later, after working tirelessly for a quarter of a century to make Microsoft a great company, creating powerful software and contributing to the vision of a computer on every desk, he turned with his wife Melinda to the question, how can we do the most good for the greatest number with the resources we have? And they set forth the audacious aim, among other goals, to eradicate malaria from the face of the earth. How do people become 10Xers? We wondered whether the 10Xers had commonalities in their upbringings that might have prepared them for thriving in uncertainty. John Brown of Stryker, for instance, grew up in rural Tennessee, and his family struggled just to have enough food and clothing. Coming from a modest background makes you focus on the essentials, he later reflected. I do know what life is like in a ditch, so I don't get caught up in the fanfare of whether fame and fortune will come. So perhaps someone who rises from a ditch in impoverished rural Tennessee to become a chemical engineer and who then becomes a successful CEO develops an Amundsen-like self-discipline to overcome all odds. But not every 10Xer grew up in austerity. Herb Kelleher grew up solidly middle class, his father a manager for the ever-stable Campbell Soup Company. He studied philosophy and literature at Wesleyan, graduating with honors as student body president, and then excelled at NYU Law, 
joining the Law Review and landing a clerkship with the Supreme Court of New Jersey. Peter Lewis grew up in a comfortable home in Cleveland, Ohio, and attended Princeton before taking over the family business. Furthermore, we found some of the comparison company leaders had tough early experiences. Yes, John Brown had to climb his way out of a ditch, but his comparison counterpart, Leon Hirsch of USSC, hardly started from a lofty perch. With a high school education, he'd managed to run only a struggling dry-cleaning equipment business before he started USSC. Jerry Sanders of Comparison Case AMD grew up in a gang-infested part of Chicago. In one incident at a party after a football game, Sanders leapt to help a friend who'd gotten himself into a street fight with a gang leader. The friend ran away just as Sanders threw himself into the fray. The gang broke Sanders' nose, fractured his jaw, cracked his skull, cut him up with a beer can opener, and threw him into a dumpster. Sanders lost so much blood that the hospital called in a priest to read him last rites. In short, we found no consistent pattern in the backgrounds of 10Xers relative to comparison leaders. 10Xers can come from tough upbringings or they can come from privileged lives or something in the middle. Nor did we find that they necessarily started as 10Xers. Some of the 10Xers evolved, developing their leadership capabilities over time. Herb Kelleher made some terrible decisions early in his career, such as buying Muse Air. Peter Lewis followed a huge arc of growth over three decades and also made some enormously costly blunders along the way. George Rathman, founder of Amgen, didn't exhibit 10X leadership genius from early on. He'd been denied admission to medical school, so he turned to chemistry as plan B. He spent 21 years at 3M, highly regarded but never considered a star, according to Businessweek, and then joined Lytton Industries. He floundered in Lytton's chaotic culture of acquisitions and later reflected, I left before I was escorted out. When we shared the core 10Xer behaviors with our students, former research team members, and critical readers, we received a series of questions. Are the 10Xer core behaviors learnable? Can anyone become a 10Xer? Is it okay to be a 3Xer rather than a 10Xer? Do you absolutely need to be a 10Xer to survive in a chaotic world? Are 10Xers happy? And so on. We understand these questions, but our research method isn't geared to answer them. That said, we believe that you do not need answers to these questions to get going. The coming chapters map to the three core 10Xer behaviors, offering practical methods used by these remarkable leaders to build their companies. If your enterprise fully engages these concepts and practices, it'll look a whole lot like a company led by a 10Xer. So our guidance is simple. Get to work. Learning and applying the practical lessons of how 10Xers lead, building a truly great organization that delivers superior results, makes a distinctive impact, and achieves lasting endurance. There are lots of individually successful people, but very few truly great companies that make a 10X impact.
Chapter Summary 10Xers Key Points We named the winning protagonists in our research 10Xers because they built enterprises that beat their industry's averages by at least 10 times. The contrast between Amundsen and Scott in their epic race to the South Pole is an ideal analogy for our research question and a remarkably good illustration of the differences between 10Xers and their comparison companies. Clear-eyed and stoic, 10Xers accept without complaint that they face forces beyond their control, that they cannot accurately predict events, and that nothing is certain. Yet they utterly reject the idea that luck, chaos, or any other external factor will determine whether they succeed or fail. 10Xers display three core behaviors that, in combination, distinguish them from the leaders of the less successful comparison companies. Fanatic discipline is core behavior number one. Remember the top of the triangle, fanatic discipline. 10Xers display extreme consistency of action, consistency with values, goals, performance standards, and methods. They are utterly relentless, monomaniacal, unbending in their focus on their quests. Bottom right of the triangle, second core behavior, empirical creativity. When faced with uncertainty, 10Xers do not look primarily to other people, conventional wisdom, authority figures, or peers for direction. They look primarily to empirical evidence. They rely upon direct observation, practical experimentation, and direct engagement with tangible evidence. They make their bold, creative moves, and they do make bold, creative moves, from sound, empirical base. Core behavior number three, bottom left of the triangle, productive paranoia. 10Xers maintain hypervigilance, staying highly attuned to threats and changes in their environment, even when, especially when, all's going well. They assume conditions will turn against them at perhaps the worst possible moment. They channel their fear and worry into action, preparing, developing contingency plans, building buffers, and maintaining large margins of safety. Underlying the three core 10Xer behaviors is a motivating force, passion and ambition for a cause or company larger than themselves. This is what we call the level five ambition. They have egos, yes, but their egos are channeled into their companies and their purposes, not personal aggrandizement. Unexpected Findings Fanatic discipline is not the same as regimentation, measurement, obedience to authority, adherence to social stricture, or compliance with bureaucratic rules. True discipline requires mental independence and an ability to remain consistent in the face of herd instinct and social pressures. Fanatic discipline often means being a nonconformist. Empirical creativity 
gives 10Xers a level of confidence that, to outsiders, can look like foolhardy boldness. In fact, empirical validation allows them to simultaneously make bold moves and bound their risk. Being empirical doesn't mean being indecisive. 10Xers don't favor analysis over action. They favor empiricism as the foundation for decisive action. Productive paranoia enables creative action. By presuming worst-case scenarios and preparing for them, the 10Xers minimize the chances that a disruptive event or a huge piece of bad luck will stop them from their creative work. And finally, as we will do in all of our chapter summaries, one key question for you. Rank order the three core 10Xer behaviors, fanatic discipline, empirical creativity, and productive paranoia, from your strongest to your weakest. What can you do to turn your weakest into your strongest? Chapter 3, 20-Mile March. Chapter quote, Freely chosen, discipline is absolute freedom. Ron Serino. I'd like to have you think back to the triangle from the 10-Xer chapter and how at each point of the triangle we have these core behaviors. Top of the triangle, fanatic discipline. Bottom right of the triangle, empirical creativity. Bottom left of the triangle, productive paranoia. Now, in the coming chapters, especially the next three chapters, there's going to be a direct map from one of the core behaviors of the 10Xers into the way they lead and build their companies. The 20-mile march maps directly to the top of the triangle, fanatic discipline. Suppose you have the opportunity to invest in one of two companies, company A or company B. Both companies are small, operating in a fast-growing new industry, spinning out disruptive technologies, thriving on rapidly growing customer demand. They have similar product categories, similar customers, opportunities, and threats. They're a near-perfect matched pair. Now, company A will achieve 25% average annual growth in net income over a 19-year period. Company B will achieve 45% average annual growth in net income over the same 19 years. So, to repeat, company A, 25% average growth. Company B, 45% average growth. Stop and think. Which company will you want to invest in? Most people, including us, would invest in company B, given no additional information. But now let's add some more information. The standard deviation of net income growth, which reflects the degree of volatility, if you will, 
for company A over that same period will be 15 percentage points. The standard deviation for company B over the same years will be 116 percentage points. So now we have company A is 25 plus or minus 15. Company B is 45 plus or minus 116. And let me just add a little bit more. Company A will maintain consistent and controlled growth, staying below 30% for 16 of 19 years, yet achieving 20% or more almost every year. I mean, it's right in this 20 to 30 range. Click, 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 click. Company B, on the other hand, will show much more erratic and uncontrolled growth than Company A. Company B's annual net income growth rate will exceed 30% for 13 of 19 years, with net income growth rates ranging from a positive 313% to a negative 200%. Now think about who you would want to invest in, A or B. By now, you're probably suspecting that company A turned out to be a better investment than company B, despite the fact that B generally grew faster. And you'd be correct. But the amazing thing is how much better. I'd like you to picture a chart that shows the value, the cumulative value of investing a dollar in each company, company A and company B. And on this chart, I want you to see company A just rising exponentially, almost off the upper right-hand end of the page. And company B going along the bottom of the page and then disappearing from the chart. The company A chart rises from $1 at its start to around 350 times that. Company B tracks along, not much above where it started, and then goes poof. Company A is Stryker, and Company B is USSC. Every $1 invested in Stryker at the end of 1979, the year of its initial public offering, and held through 2002, multiplied more than 350 times. Every $1 invested in USSC on the same date generated cumulative returns that fell below the general market by 1998, and then it disappears. For all of its extraordinary growth, USSC capitulated to an acquisition, giving up forever its chance to come back as a great company. John Brown's 20-Mile March Imagine you're standing with your feet in the Pacific Ocean, in San Diego, California, looking inland. You're about to embark on a 3,000-mile walk from San Diego to the tip of Maine. On the first day, you march 20 miles, making it out of town. On the second day, you march 20 miles. And again, on the third day, you march 20 miles, heading into the heat of the desert. It's hot, more than 100 degrees, and you want to rest in the cool of your tent, but you don't. You get up and you march 20 miles. You keep the pace 20 miles a day. Then the weather cools, 
and you're in comfortable conditions with the wind at your back, and you could go much farther. But you hold back, modulating your effort. You stick with your 20 miles. Then you reach the Colorado high mountains and get hit by snow, wind, and temperatures below zero, and all you want to do is stay in your tent. But you get up. You get dressed. You march your 20 miles. You keep up the effort. 20 miles, 20 miles, 20 miles. Then you cross into the plains, and it's glorious springtime, and you can go 40 or 50 miles in a day. But you don't. You sustain your pace, marching 20 miles. And eventually, you get to Maine. Now, imagine another person who starts out with you on the same day in San Diego. He gets all excited by the journey and logs 40 miles the first day. Exhausted from his first gigantic day, he wakes up to 100-degree temperatures. He decides to hang out until the weather cools, thinking, I'll make it up when conditions improve. He maintains this pattern, big days with good conditions, whining and waiting in his tent on bad days as he moves across the western United States. Just before the Colorado high mountains, he gets a spate of great weather, and he goes all out, logging 40 to 50 mile days to make up lost ground, but then he hits a huge winter storm when utterly exhausted. It nearly kills him, and he hunkers down in his tent, waiting for spring. When spring finally comes, he emerges, weakened, and stumbles off toward Maine. By the time he enters Kansas City, you, you with your relentless 20-mile march, have already reached the tip of Maine. You win by a huge margin. Now let's go back to our stock chart. Company A, Company B, Stryker, USSC. And think of Stryker as a 20-mile march company. When John Brown became CEO of Stryker in 1977, he deliberately set a performance benchmark to drive consistent progress. Stryker would achieve 20% net income growth every year. This was more than a mere target or a wish or a hope or a dream or a vision. It was, to use Brown's own words, the law. He ingrained the law into the company's culture, making it a way of life. Brown created the Snorkel Award, given to those who lagged behind. 20% was the watermark, and if you were below the watermark, you needed a snorkel. Just imagine receiving a mounted snorkel from John Brown to hang on your wall so everyone can see that you're in danger of drowning. People worked hard to keep the snorkel off their walls. Imagine going to a big company meeting. You walk into the main ballroom to find sales regions arranged by performance. Those in regions that achieve their 20-mile march get seating assignments at the front of the room. Those that fell behind find themselves assigned to tables in the back of the room. Stryker's annual division review meetings included a chairman's breakfast. Those who hit their 20-mile march went to John Brown's breakfast table. Those who didn't went to another breakfast. They're well-fed, said Brown, but it is not the one where you want to go. If your division fell behind for two years in a row, Brown would insert himself to help 
working around the clock to help you get back on track. We'll arrive at an agreement as to what has to be done to correct the problem, said the understated Brown. You get the distinct impression that you really don't want to need John Brown's help. According to Investor's Business Daily, John Brown doesn't want to hear excuses. Market's bad. Currency exchange rates are hurting results. Doesn't matter. Describing challenges Stryker faced in Europe due partly to currency exchange rates, an analyst noted, it's hard to know how much of the problem was external. But at Stryker, that's irrelevant. From the time John Brown became CEO in 1977 through 1998, when its comparison, USSC, disappeared as a public company, and excluding a 1990 extraordinary gain, Stryker hit its 20-mile march goal more than 90% of the time. Yet for all this self-imposed pressure, Stryker had an equally important self-imposed constraint, to never go too far, to never grow too much in a single year. Just imagine the pressure, the pressure from Wall Street to increase growth when your direct rival is growing faster than your company. In fact, Stryker grew more slowly than USSC more than half the time. According to the Wall Street transcript, some observers criticized Brown for not being more aggressive. Brown, however, consciously chose to maintain the 20-mile march, regardless of criticism urging him to grow Stryker at a faster pace in boom years. John Brown understood that if you want to achieve consistent performance, you need both parts of a 20-mile march, a lower bound and an upper bound, a hurdle that you jump over and a ceiling that you will not rise above, the ambition to achieve and the self-control to hold back. It would be hard to find a more perfect, stark contrast to Stryker than the spectacular rise and fall of USSC. In 1989, USSC had $345 million in sales. In 1992, just three years later, it had $1.2 billion, representing 248% growth in just three years. USSC aggressively pursued growth, betting on a new line of sutures in a direct attack on Johnson & Johnson's Ethicon division, which controlled 80% of the sutures business. At the time, a toehold of even 10% of the market would have added 40% to USSC sales. But USSC's founder, Leon Hirsch, scoffed at such small thinking. I'd be disappointed if we got just 10%, and Ethicon would be elated. USSC pushed inventories onto hospitals, so much so that the Wall Street Journal reported, according to the lore surrounding USSC's reputation for aggressive marketing, wrote the journal, a salesman aiming to boost volume once hid so much inventory in a hospital storeroom's false ceiling that it collapsed. The company also attained explosive growth from the rapid adoption of its laparoscopic instruments for gallbladder surgery. Laparoscopy is a minimally invasive surgical technique. 
and it sought even more growth by expanding the use of its laparoscopic instruments into a range of other surgical procedures. But then, bang, USSC got walloped by a series of storms. The specter of the Clinton healthcare reform created uncertainty, and hospitals decreased purchasing. Doctors showed less than expected enthusiasm for the new laparoscopic devices for other than gallbladder surgery. Johnson & Johnson proved to be a formidable competitor in sutures, striking back hard, holding on to much of its market share. Johnson & Johnson also attacked USSC's core laparoscopic business, taking 45% of domestic market share in just three years. USSC revenues fell, and by 1997 they remained below peak 1992 levels. By the end of 1998, USSC would no longer exist as an independent company, acquired by Tyco. 20 Mile March, not what we expected. When we began this study, Morton and I thought we might see 10x winners respond to a volatile, fast-changing world full of new opportunities by pursuing aggressive growth and making radical big leaps catching and riding the next big wave time and again. And yes, they did grow, and they did pursue spectacular opportunities as they grew. But the less successful comparison cases pursued much more aggressive growth and undertook big leap radical change adventures to a much greater degree than the 10x winners. The 10x cases exemplified what we came to call the 20-mile march concept, hitting stepwise performance markers with great consistency over a long period of time. And the comparison cases did not. The 20-mile march is more than a philosophy. It's about having concrete, clear, intelligent, and rigorously pursued performance mechanisms that keep you on track. The 20-mile march creates two types of self-imposed discomfort. One, the discomfort of unwavering commitment to high performance in difficult conditions. And equally, two, the discomfort of holding back in good conditions. Now, this is very important to grasp. It's both types of discomfort. You have to hit your performance markers in difficult times, and you have to hold back when it's good times. Southwest Airlines, for example, demanded of itself a profit every year, even when the entire industry lost money. From 1990 through 2003, the U.S. airline industry as a whole turned a profit in just six of 14 years. In the early 1990s, the airline industry lost $13 billion and furloughed approximately 120,000 employees. Southwest remained profitable and furloughed not a single person. Despite an almost chronic epidemic of airline troubles, including high-profile bankruptcies of some major carriers, Southwest generated a profit every single year, every single year for 30 consecutive years. But equally important, 
Southwest had the discipline to hold back in good times so as to not extend beyond its ability to preserve profitability and the Southwest culture. It didn't expand outside Texas until nearly eight years after starting service. Eight years to get out of Texas, making a small jump to New Orleans. Southwest moved outward from Texas in deliberate steps, small, deliberate steps. Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Albuquerque, Phoenix, Los Angeles, and didn't reach the eastern seaboard until almost a quarter of a century after its founding. In 1996, more than a hundred cities clamored for Southwest service. Now think, you have a hundred cities clamoring for service, a hundred cities that want you to come there and serve their customers, a hundred cities providing market opportunity, 100. And how many did Southwest open? That year, four. Now at first, this might not strike you as particularly significant. But stop to think about it. Here we have an airline setting for itself a standard of consistent performance that no other airline achieves. Anyone who said they'd be profitable every year for three decades in the airline business, more talking the airline business, would be laughed at. No one does that. But Southwest did. Here also we have a publicly traded company willing to leave growth on the table. How many business leaders of publicly traded companies have the ability to leave gobs of growth on the table, especially during boom times, when competitors do not leave growth on the table? Few indeed, but Southwest did that too. Some people believe that a world characterized by radical change and disruptive forces no longer favors those who engage in consistent 20-mile marching. Yet the great irony is that when we examined just this type of out-of-control, fast-paced environment, the premise of this entire study, we found that every 10x company exemplified the 20-mile march principle during the era we studied. Now you might be wondering, wait a minute, Jim and Morton, you're confusing things here. Perhaps 10x companies could afford to behave this way because they were so successful and so dominant. Perhaps 20-mile marching is a result of success, a luxury of success, not a creator or a driver of success. But in fact, the evidence shows that 10x companies embraced a 20-mile march early, long before they were big, successful companies. Furthermore, and this is the power of contrast, every comparison company failed to 20-mile march with anything close to the consistency shown by the 10x cases. In fact, the 20-mile march is one of the strongest contrasts in our study. Some comparisons showed no sign of 20-mile marching at any time during the era of study, as with USSC, AMD, and Kirshner. 
Some comparisons showed no 20-mile marching during their worst years, only to regain ground when they finally became 20-mile marchers. As with Genentech, under Arthur Levinson, who we will discuss in a few minutes, and Apple under Steve Jobs, who we will discuss in a later chapter. Other comparison companies, such as PSA and Safeco, 20-mile marched in their early years, and that is when they produced their best results, and then later fell behind when they lost the discipline. What makes a good 20-mile march? What I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you the elements of a good 20-mile march. And then I'm going to illustrate those elements in a wonderful case, progressive insurance, that we studied in this research. So first, what makes a good 20-mile march? There are seven characteristics of a good 20-mile march. One, a good 20-mile march uses performance markers that delineate a lower bound of acceptable achievement. Like Southwest, profitable every single year. Like Stryker, 20% growth every year. These create productive discomfort, much like hard physical training or rigorous mental development, and must be challenging, but not impossible, to achieve in difficult times. Number two characteristic of a good 20-mile march. It has self-imposed constraints. This creates an upper bound for how far you will march when facing robust opportunity and exceptionally good conditions with the wind at your back. These constraints should also produce discomfort in the face of pressures and fears that you should be going faster and doing more. Characteristic number three. A good 20-mile march is tailored to the enterprise and its environment. There's no all-purpose 20-mile march for all enterprises. Southwest March wouldn't apply to Intel. A sports team's march wouldn't apply to an Army platoon leader. An Army platoon leader's march wouldn't apply to a public school. Characteristic number four. A good 20-mile march lies largely within your control to achieve. You should not need luck to achieve your march. Characteristic number five. A good 20-mile march has a Goldilocks time frame. Not too short and not too long, but just right. Make the timeline of the march too short, and you'll be more exposed to uncontrollable variability. But make the timeline too long, and it loses power. Characteristic number six of a good 20-mile march. It is designed and self-imposed by the enterprise, not imposed from the outside or blindly copied from others. For instance, to simply accept earnings per share as the focus of a march because, well, Wall Street looks at earnings per share, would lack rigor, reflecting no clarity about the underlying performance drivers in a specific enterprise. And finally, characteristic number seven. 
A good 20-mile march must be achieved with great consistency. Good intentions do not count. Now, with those seven characteristics in mind, let's turn to Peter Lewis and Progressive Insurance. In the early 1970s, Peter Lewis of Progressive Insurance articulated a stringent performance metric. Progressive should grow only at a rate at which it could still sustain exemplary customer service and achieve a profitable combined ratio, averaging 96%. What does a combined ratio of 96% mean? If you sell $100 of insurance, you should need to pay out no more than $96 in losses plus overhead combined. This is an insurance term for profitability. They operate under the idea of this combined ratio. The combined ratio captures the central challenge for the insurance business. Pricing premiums at a rate that will allow you to pay out on losses, service customers, and earn a return. If a company lowers prices to increase growth, its combined ratio could deteriorate. If it misjudges risks or mismanages its claim service, its combined ratio will suffer. If the combined ratio climbs over 100%, the company loses money on its insurance business. Now notice, the combined ratio reflects the specifics of their business. It doesn't come from an external imposition from Wall Street. It is from progressive upon itself. Progressive's profitable combined ratio mantra became like John Brown's 20% law, a rigorous standard to accomplish year in and year out, consistently, over a long period of time. Progressive's stance, if competitors lower rates in an unprofitable bid to increase share, fine, let them do so. We will not chase them into senseless self-destruction. Progressive had an unequivocal commitment to the profitable combined ratio no matter what conditions it faced, how its competitors behaved, or what seductive growth opportunities beckoned. Said Lewis in 1972, there is no excuse, not regulatory problems, not competitive difficulties, not natural disaster for failing to do so. Progressive achieved a profitable combined ratio 27 of 30 years, 1972 to 2002, and averaged just better than its 96% target. Now, let's compare Progressive's combined ratio discipline to the criteria outlined in the seven characteristics of a good 20-mile march. Performance marker, combined ratio, check. Self-imposed constraint. We will not grow in a way that would cause that combined ratio to go down and become unprofitable. Check. Appropriate to the enterprise. Check. Within its own control. Check. A Goldilocks time frame every year. It's not a month. It's not 10 years. Check. Designed and self-imposed by the enterprise. Check. Achieved with high consistency. Check. A 20-mile march operates as a practical, powerful, strategic mechanism. John Brown built the entire striker system 
from rapid product development cycles to the Snorkel Award to achieve the law of 20% earnings growth. Peter Lewis designed his entire system so as to achieve the 96% combined ratio. It sounds simple, but it is very difficult to do, said Lewis's successor, Glenn M. Renwick. Think about it as a recipe, he continued. If you overweight any of the ingredients, you won't get to the result you wanted. Think what a disaster it would be to realize you messed up only one ingredient, but it was four times as much as you should have put in. A 96% combined ratio means we have to be disciplined in every segment of our business. It means we say that we'd rather be consistently growing than be hot for one year and then gone the next. Do you need to accomplish your 20-mile march with 100% success? The 10x companies didn't have a perfect record, only a near-perfect record. But, and this is crucial, they never saw missing a march as okay. If they missed it even once, they obsessed over what they needed to do to get back on track. There's no excuse. There are no mitigating factors. And it is up to us to correct for our failures, period. The 20-mile march imposes order amidst disorder, consistency amidst swirling inconsistency. But it works only if you actually achieve your march year after year. If you set a 20-mile march and then fail to achieve it, or worse, abandon fanatic discipline altogether, you may well get crushed by events. Let's look at the comparison company, the sad demise of Safeco. Prior to the 1980s, Safeco displayed a nearly fanatic dedication to a profitable combined ratio, just like Progressive, in good times and bad, just like Progressive. Then in the 1980s, Safeco lost discipline. It failed to consistently achieve its combined ratio, became seduced by spectacular returns from investing insurance premiums in the capital markets, and fell behind in its core business. In 1989, for instance, Safeco lost $52 million on its core underwriting business, yet made $263 million in profits from its investment portfolio. Then, in 1997, Safeco proclaimed, quote, truly exciting news, unquote, and a, quote, giant step, unquote, forward. For a price equal to 68% of Safeco's shareholders' equity, Safeco won an auction to buy American states, nearly doubling its distribution force to 8,000 agents, catapulting itself from number 22 to number 12 in property and casualty insurance, jumping from a regional to a national presence, and setting forth a bold new goal of expanding beyond insurance into financial products. One Safeco executive proudly proclaimed that Safeco would no longer be dull, boring, traditional, and conservative. After all, why get back to all that pedestrian discipline stuff? Why go through the struggle of a 20-mile march when you can make up all that lost ground with one spectacular 
spectacular and imaginative jump. Heralding the great leap forward, Safeco's CEO Roger Eggsty opened his 1997 annual letter to shareholders, Future Generations Will Chronicle 1997 as a Remarkable Year for Safeco. And it was indeed a remarkable turning point, but not the one Eggsty envisioned. The combined ratio suffered. That boring old combined ratio. Unprofitable in 1998, 1999, 2000, 2001, and 2002. We perhaps pushed too hard for growth, said one executive of Safeco Slide. Every dollar invested in Safeco at the start of 1997, the year of the American state's acquisition, lost 30% of its value over the next three years, falling more than 60% behind the general stock market. Three years after Safeco's big, bold leap, Eggsty announced his retirement, and the board launched a search for a new CEO, eventually going outside for a savior to turn the company around. From the beginning of 1976 through 2002, Safeco achieved a profitable combined ratio in only 10 of 27 years. Over those same years, Progressive, the boring, consistent, combined ratio champion, generated cumulative returns to investors nearly 32 times greater than Safeco. While the 20-mile marches we've discussed so far, Stryker's 20% earnings growth, Southwest's profit every year, and Progressive's 96% combined ratio are financial, we want to be clear that you can also have a non-financial march. A school might have a student performance march. A hospital might have a patient safety march. A church might have a number of converts march. A government agency might have a continuous improvement march. A homeless center might have a getting people housed march. A police department might have a crime rate march. Corporations, too, can choose a non-financial march, such as an innovation march. Intel, for instance, built its 20-mile march around the idea of Moore's Law double the complexity of components per integrated circuits at affordable cost every 18 months to two years. Intel sustained its commitment to achieving Moore's Law, whether in boom times or industry depression, retaining its best engineers, always moving to the next generation chip, investing consistently in its creative march, year in and year out, no matter what, for more than 30 years. Now I'm going to take a few minutes here to very briefly summarize the contrast between the 10x companies and the direct comparison companies through the lens of the 20-mile march. We'll take 10x case Stryker. It achieved its 20% annual earnings growth. It also practiced 20-mile march innovation with lots of product iterations and extensions. It held back on growth in good times, which enabled it to weather difficult industry events from 92 to 94. Its comparison case, USSC, experienced erratic earnings growth. 
sought big breakthrough innovation rather than 20-mile march innovation, overextended in difficult times, especially from 92 to 94, and it sold out in 1998. 10XK Southwest Airlines achieved profitability for 30 consecutive years. Unlike the other major airlines, it turned a profit in 2002 in the aftermath of 9-11. But it also constrained growth to ensure profitability and preserve its culture. The comparison case, PSA, Pacific Southwest Airlines, had a 20-mile march philosophy with consistent profitability in its early history, but abandoned it in the 1970s. And then, by the 1980s, it reached a point where it capitulated to a takeover by U.S. Air in 1986. 10X case, Progressive Insurance, sought to keep its combined ratio below 100% every year, averaging 96% across time. It achieved a profitable combined ratio in 27 out of 30 years. Limited growth to ensure that it maintained underwriting standards and hit its combined ratio objective. Comparison case Safeco, which we discussed just a few minutes ago, focused on the combined ratio in its early history. From 1980 on, however, it became inconsistent then went for big growth via a huge acquisition of American states in the 1990s. It attained profitable combined ratio in only 10 of 27 years. 10x case, Intel. It upheld Moore's Law, doubling the complexity of components per integrated circuit at minimum cost every 18 months to two years. It pursued this relentlessly over the entire era of our analysis. Direct comparison case to Intel, AMD, repeatedly pursued big growth in good times, sometimes with significant debt, leaving the company unprepared for bad times, especially in the 85-86 difficulties. There was no evidence of a steady performance marker. 10x case, Microsoft in the 80s and 90s. Microsoft often began with imperfect products, but then marched to improve year after year to achieve eventual industry dominance. Never overextended financially, so it never needed to pause its march. Comparison case Apple in the 80s and 90s. And keep in mind, the contrast between Apple and Microsoft is in the 80s and 90s, not the 2000s. Apple didn't 20-mile march during its early history. It experienced inconsistent profit growth and setbacks in the mid-1980s, early 1990s, and mid-1990s. It adopted a 20-mile march innovation approach with the return of Steve Jobs, which was a key factor in its resurgence in the 2000s. 10x case, Amgen undertook 20-mile march innovation based upon incremental product innovation and product development milestones, continuously developed existing drugs for new indications rather than always jumping for the new big next one, and this resulted in strong revenue growth. Comparison case, Genentech. Genentech didn't 20-mile march from 1976 to 1995. Following more of a big bet mentality coupled with overpromises, resulting in a downfall. 
After 1995, however, Genentech began to follow a 20-mile march strategy of breaking five-year goals into a series of one-year targets. We'll return to the Genentech story in just a few minutes. 10x case, Biomet. Biomet, very much like Stryker, focused on consistent, profitable growth, achieved in 20 of 21 years. It also practiced 20-mile march innovation with rapid product development iterations, and it took care to never overextend and leave itself exposed. Kirshner, its direct comparison case, on the other hand, didn't 20-mile march ever. It embarked on a grow-fast-through-acquisition approach using debt, and this resulted in a crisis and sale of the company in 1994. Why 20-mile marchers win? When you think about it, it's interesting that we found the 20-mile march when studying uncertain, chaotic, out-of-control environments. Why would that be? Well, 20-mile marching helps turn the odds in your favor for three reasons. One, it builds confidence in your ability to perform well in adverse circumstances. Two, it reduces the likelihood of catastrophe when you're hit by turbulent disruption. And three, it helps you exert self-control in an out-of-control environment. So we will now work through these three points, beginning with confidence built from performance in adversity. Confidence comes not from motivational speeches, charismatic inspiration, wild pep rallies, unfounded optimism, or blind hope. Taciturn, understated, and reserved, John Brown at Stryker avoided all of these. Stryker earned its confidence by actual achievement, accomplishing stringent performance standards year in and year out, no matter the industry conditions. John Brown operated like a track coach who trains his runners to run strong at the end of every workout, in wind, in heat, in rain, in snow, no matter what the conditions. And then if it's windy, hot, rainy, or snowy on championship day, the runners feel confident because of their own actual experience. We can run strong because we've trained hard even when we felt bad because we've practiced running hard in heinous conditions. Accomplishing a 20-mile march consistently, in good times and bad, does build confidence. Tangible achievement in the face of adversity reinforces the 10x perspective. We are ultimately responsible for improving performance. We never blame circumstance. We never blame the environment. In 2002, we received a phone call at our research lab in Boulder, Colorado, from Laddie Coor, former president of Arizona State University and then chairman of the Center for the Future of Arizona. We've identified the education of Latino children as one of our state's top priorities, said Coor. 
We must figure out how to solve the problem. Can you give us some guidance? Coor had the idea to create a study patterned on a matched pair method similar to this study's, but applied to education. They'd identify public schools that performed well in adverse circumstances and with significant Latino populations. They'd then compare those schools to other public schools facing similar circumstances, but that didn't perform as well, and study the differences. Coor assembled a team of researchers, led by Mary Jo Waits, who conducted its Beat the Odds study with guidance from our research lab. The study found that factors outside principals' control, such as class size, the length of school day, the amount of funding, and the degree of parental involvement did not systematically distinguish the higher performing from the comparison schools. Of course, changing those variables might well improve education performance across all schools, but the beat the odds schools put their energies into what they could do. The study identified a set of practical disciplines that lay within the control of the individual school even in adverse circumstances. Each beat-the-odds school held itself accountable for a clear bottom line of academic performance, rooted in three precepts that are articulated in the Beat the Odds report. 1. Don't even think about playing a blame game when students aren't learning. Have the strength to look at the problem and take responsibility. Two, don't think the solution is out there. If students aren't learning, the school needs to change. Three, no one is allowed to lag behind. If every student in every classroom isn't learning, the school isn't doing its job. In 1997, Alice Byrne Elementary School in Yuma, Arizona performed no better than a similar comparison school and substantially below state averages in third grade reading. Principal Julie Tate Peach refused to capitulate to difficult circumstances. Yes, many of the kids came from poor Latino families. Yes, the school had a limited budget. Yes, the teachers felt stretched to do more with less. Peach and her teachers nonetheless overcame these obstacles and gradually increased student reading performance about 20 percentage points to beat the state averages. Meanwhile, Alice Burns Comparison School, facing similar circumstances, demonstrated no substantial improvement in third grade reading. Why? Julie Tate Peach brought fanatic discipline, and remember, that's what this chapter is about, fanatic discipline translated into the 20-mile march, to one focused goal, individual student achievement in basic skills like reading. She led the school to measure progress, not just at the end of the year, but also throughout the year, working with her teachers to track performance, taking corrective action along the way she created a collaborative culture of teachers 
and administrators poring over the data and sharing ideas for how to help each child perform better. They embraced a never-ending cycle of instruction, assessment, intervention, kid by kid, in a relentless 20-mile march of learning throughout the year. Improving results increased confidence and motivation, which then reinforced discipline, which then drove better results, which then increased confidence and motivation, which then reinforced discipline up and up and up. The principals at the Arizona Beat the Odds schools understood that grasping for the next silver bullet reform lurching from one program to the next, this year's fad to next year's fad, destroys motivation and erodes confidence. The critical step lay not in finding the perfect program or in waiting for national education reform to descend from on high, but in taking action, picking a good program, instilling the fanatic discipline to make relentless, iterative progress and staying with the program long enough to generate sustained results. They gained confidence by the very fact of increasing achievement. If you beat the odds, then you gain confidence that you can beat the odds again, which then builds confidence that you can beat the odds again and again and again. The second reason why 20-mile marchers win. Avoidance of catastrophe. In the 1980s, AMD, which is the comparison case to 10x case Intel, nearly destroyed itself by failing to 20-mile march. In 1984, Jerry Sanders proclaimed that AMD would become the first semiconductor company to generate 60% growth two years in a row, and that it could grow more in a single year than it had in its entire 14-year prior history. Not only that, he announced that AMD would aim to become number one in integrated circuits by the end of the decade, ahead of Intel, ahead of Texas Instruments, ahead of National Semiconductor, ahead of Motorola, ahead of every American competitor. It was quite a contrast to Intel, where Gordon Moore stated at the exact same time that he aimed to limit Intel's growth so as to minimize the chances of losing control. Intel still grew at a rapid rate, but held growth back relative to AMD. From 1981 through 1984, AMD grew at nearly twice the rate of Intel and faster than every other American competitor. Then, in 1985, the semiconductor industry collapsed into a recession. Both Intel and AMD suffered. But AMD suffered much worse. Sales fell from $1.1 billion to $795 million within one year. AMD, which had tripled its long-term debt, didn't recover for years. When AMD and Intel emerged from the storm, Intel pulled ahead for good. In the 12 years prior to the 1985 industry meltdown, AMD's stock returns actually outpaced Intel's, 
fueled in part by AMD's tripling sales from 1981 through 1984. But coming out of the industry meltdown, AMD fell behind while Intel soared. From the start of 1987 through 1994, Intel's shareholder returns outpaced AMD's by more than five times, then continued on pace to beat AMD by more than 30 times through 2002. If you deplete your resources, run yourself to exhaustion, and then get caught at the wrong moment by an external shock, you can be in serious trouble. By sticking with your 20-mile march, you reduce the chances of getting crippled by a big, unexpected shock. Every 10x winner pulled further ahead of its less successful comparison company during turbulent times. And remember, that's the whole point of the study. Uncertainty, chaos, change, disruption, the roiling adventures of the world in which we operate today. And yet it's in that kind of world that the 20-mile marchers win, precisely for this reason. Ferocious instability favors the 20-mile marchers. This is when they really shine. Failure to 20-mile march in an uncertain and unforgiving environment can set you up for catastrophe. Every comparison case had an episode in its history in which failing to 20-mile march led to a devastating outcome. In contrast, only two 10x companies had episodes of failing to 20-mile march, and neither of these episodes led to catastrophe because the 10x companies self-corrected before a storm could rise up and kill them. When Morton and I systematically examined times of industry turmoil, we found a sobering contrast. In 29 events in which companies 20-mile marched into a turbulent industry episode, they came out of the turbulence with a good outcome in every single instance, without exception, 29 of 29, 100% of the time. However, and this should get your attention, this should terrify you, in 23 events in which companies failed the 20-mile march heading into a turbulent industry episode, they emerged from that episode with a good outcome only 3 of 23 times. In a setting characterized by unpredictability, full of immense threat and opportunity, you cannot afford to leave yourself exposed to unforeseen events. If you're hiking in the warm, comfortable glow of a spring day on a nice, wide, wandering trail near your home, you can overextend yourself and you might need to take two Advil to soothe your sore muscles when you're done. But if you're climbing in the Himalayas, or trying to go to the South Pole. Going too far can have much more severe consequences from which you might never recover. You can get away with failing to 20-mile march in stable times for a while, but doing so leaves you weak and undisciplined and therefore exposed when, not if, when unstable times come. And they will always come. And now we come to the third reason why 20-mile marchers win. Self-control in an out-of-control environment. 
let's return to our friend Roel Amundsen in the South Pole. On December 12, 1911, Amundsen and his team reached a point 45 miles from the actual South Pole. He had no idea of Scott's whereabouts. Scott had taken a different route, slightly to the west, so for all Amundsen knew, Scott was ahead of him. The weather had turned clear and calm. And sitting high on the smooth polar plateau, Amundsen had perfect ski and sled conditions for the remainder of the journey to the actual pole. Amundsen noted, going and surface as good as ever, weather splendid, calm with sunshine. His team had journeyed more than 650 miles, carving a path straight over a mountain range, climbing from sea level to over 10,000 feet. And now, with the anxiety of where is Scott gnawing away, his team could reach its goal within 24 hours in one hard push. What would you do? What did Amundsen do? He didn't go 45 miles in a single push. He went 17 miles. Throughout the journey, Amundsen adhered to a regimen of consistent progress, never going too far in good weather, careful to stay far away from the red line of exhaustion that could leave his team exposed, yet pressing ahead in nasty weather to stay on pace. Amundsen throttled back his well-tuned team to travel between 15 and 20 miles per day in a relentless march to 90 degrees south. When a member of Amundsen's team suggested they could go faster up to 25 miles a day, Amundsen said no. They needed to rest and sleep so as to continually replenish their energy. It's interesting. Morton and I had uncovered the 20-mile march concept in our study fully three years before we stumbled across the Amundsen and Scott story. And we'd been using the term 20-mile march in our own research discussions and with clients and with students. So we were astounded to learn that Amundsen had embraced this precise idea in his journey to the South Pole in 1911. In contrast, Scott would sometimes drive his team to exhaustion on good days and then sit in his tent and complain about the weather on bad days. In early December, Scott wrote in his journal about being stopped by a blizzard, I doubt if any party could travel in such weather. But when Amundsen faced conditions comparable to Scott's, even colder and at higher altitude as he moved through the mountain passes, Amundsen wrote in his journal, It has been an unpleasant day, storm, drift, and frostbite, but we have advanced 13 miles closer to our goal. According to Roland Huntford's account in The Last Place on Earth, Scott faced six days of gale force winds and traveled on none, whereas Amundsen faced 15 and traveled on eight. Amundsen clocked in at the South Pole right on pace having averaged 15.5 miles per day. Like Amundsen and his team, the 10Xers and their companies used their 20-mile marches as a way to exert self-control, even when afraid or tempted by opportunity. Having a clear 20-mile march focuses the mind because everyone on the team knows the markers and their importance. 
and therefore they can stay on track. Financial markets are out of your control. Customers are out of your control. Earthquakes are out of your control. Global competition is out of your control. Technological change is out of your control. Most everything is ultimately out of your control. But when you 20-mile march, you have a tangible point of focus that keeps you and your team moving forward, despite confusion, uncertainty, and even chaos. So to briefly review, we have covered three key reasons that 20-mile marchers win. The 20-mile march builds confidence in your ability to perform well in adverse conditions. It reduces the likelihood of catastrophe when you're hit by disruption. And it helps you exert self-control in an out-of-control environment, just like Amundsen. Now, as I'd promised a few minutes earlier, we turn to Arthur Levinson at Genentech and his Teaching a Company to March. One of the most intriguing comparison cases in our study is Genentech, fascinating for its squandered promise during its early years and equally interesting for its resurgence under a little-known cancer researcher promoted from within, Arthur Levinson, who instilled a 20-mile march discipline. During its early history, Genentech pursued a strategy of breakthrough innovation, but without discipline beginning life as the next big thing incarnate and becoming the first pure biotechnology company in history and the first to go public. Genentech bioengineered a growth hormone for children and treatments for hairy cell leukemia, cystic fibrosis, hemophilia, and blood clots in heart attack patients, just to note a few of its pioneering creations. Of the heart attack drug, the chairman of the Department of Medicine at Harvard Medical School said, quote, TPA will do for heart attacks what penicillin did for the treatment of infections, unquote. The next big thing, indeed. Yet even with all this innovation, Genentech's performance lagged behind its promise. If you'd bought Genentech stock on October 31, 1980, and held your stock until mid-1995, your investment wouldn't have even kept pace with the general stock market. Then Genentech got an incredible stroke of good fortune in promoting Arthur Levinson from chief scientist to CEO. Despite being untested as a CEO, Levinson proved to be one of the best biotechnology executives of all time, a classic level five leader who detested arrogance in any form. Combining a boyish playfulness and a joyful pursuit of innovation with fanatic discipline, he focused Genentech only on product categories in which it could become best in the world with a strong economic engine. Under Levinson, Genentech finally gained traction, delivering spectacular financial performance. So picture a profits curve for Genentech that for most of its history, going all the way back to the 1980s up until 1995, it's kind of flat and not very impressive. And then you see Levinson enter the company and after that it just climbs and climbs and climbs and climbs 
and climbs. It is an almost textbook perfect good to great curve. In 1998, Levinson talked openly about Genentech's historical lack of discipline. Let me read you a quote, something he said directly. In the past, I think we've suffered from five-year plans that represent a scenario of, gee, this is what the world would look like if everything were wonderful. And we didn't rigorously use the long-range plan as a way to manage the business. Having sat through 15 of these long-range planning presentations, being involved in some of them directly myself, people didn't take them seriously. When you recognize that year after year, we would fall short of meeting the objectives of long-range plans. Then he highlighted Genentech's new approach. The only way we're going to get where we want to be in five years is to make incremental progress year by year. We've got to get 20% of the way there every year. We can't do 2% in year one, two, three, and four, and 92% of it in year five. It will never happen that way. The case of Genentech under Levinson highlights two points. First, 20-mile marching can help you turn underachievement into superior achievement. So long as you stay alive and in the game, it's never too late to start the march. Second, searching for and even finding the next big thing, as Genentech did multiple times, does not in itself make a great company. Like a gifted but undisciplined athlete, Genentech had underperformed and disappointed, making good on its promise only once Levinson added fanatic discipline to the mix. We live in a modern culture that reveres the next big thing. It's exciting. It's fun to read about, fun to talk about, fun to write about, fun to learn about, and fun to join. Yet the pursuit of the next big thing can be dangerous if it becomes an excuse for failing to 20-mile march. If you always search for the next big thing, that's largely what you'll end up doing. Always searching for the next big thing. The 10x cases did not generally have better opportunities than the comparisons, but they made more of their opportunities by 20-mile marching to the extreme. They never forgot. The next big thing just might be the big thing you already have. Of course, there remain some unanswered questions. How do you balance the need for fanatic discipline against the need for innovation and adaptation, especially in a chaotic world? If you just 20-mile march, don't you run the risk of blindly marching to oblivion? How do you gain 10x success and stay alive in a world full of disruptive change? A world that demands not just discipline, but also creativity and vigilance. And it is to these questions that we will next turn. Chapter Summary 20-Mile March Key Points The 20-mile march was a distinguishing factor to an overwhelming degree between the 10x companies and the comparison companies in our research. To 20-mile march requires hitting 
specified performance markers with great consistency over a long period of time. It requires two distinct types of discomfort. Delivering high performance in difficult times and equally holding back in good times. A good 20-mile march has the following seven characteristics. One, clear performance markers. Two, self-imposed constraints. Three, it is appropriate to the specific enterprise. Four, it is largely within the company's control to achieve. Five, it has a proper time frame, long enough to manage, yet short enough to have teeth. Six, it is imposed by the company upon itself. And seven, it's achieved with high consistency. A 20-mile march needn't be financial. You can have a creative march, a learning march, a service improvement march, or any other type of march, as long as it has the primary characteristics of a good 20-mile march. The 20-mile march builds confidence. By adhering to a 20-mile march, no matter what challenges and unexpected shocks you encounter, you prove to yourself and your enterprise that performance is not determined by your conditions, but largely by your own actions. Failing to 20-mile march leaves an organization more exposed to turbulent events. Every comparison case had at least one episode of slamming into a difficult time without having the discipline of a 20-mile march in place, which then resulted in a major setback or catastrophe. The 20-mile march helps you exert self-control in an out-of-control environment, again, being like our old friend Amundsen. 10x winners set their own 20-mile march, appropriate to their own enterprise. They don't let outside pressures define it for them. A company can always adopt 20-mile march discipline, even if it hasn't had such discipline earlier in its history, as Genentech did under Levinson. Unexpected Findings 20-mile marchers have an edge in volatile environments. The more turbulent the world, the more you need to be a 20-mile marcher. There's an inverse correlation between pursuit of maximum growth and 10x success. Comparison company leaders often pressed for maximum growth in robust times, thereby exposing their enterprises to calamity in an unexpected downturn. 10x winners left growth on the table always assuming that something bad lurked just around the corner, thereby ensuring they wouldn't be caught overextended. 20-mile marching wasn't a luxury afforded to the 10x cases by their success. They had 20-mile marches in place long before they were big successes, which helped them to become successful in the first place. And one key question for you to think about. What is your 20-mile march? Something you commit to achieving for 15 to 30 years with as much consistency as Stryker, Southwest Airlines, Intel, and Progressive. Chapter 4. Fire Bullets, Then Cannonballs. Chapter Quote. You may not find what you were looking for, 
but you find something else equally important. Robert Noyce. Now let's go back to our triangle that we introduced in the 10xer chapter, where we have these three core behaviors. In the top of the triangle, we have fanatic discipline. Bottom right of the triangle, empirical creativity. Bottom left, productive paranoia. The previous chapter, 20 Mile March, then mapped to the top of the triangle, fanatic discipline. Now we are mapping to the bottom right of the triangle with empirical creativity translated into this idea, fire bullets, then cannonballs. Imagine you're sitting at an airline gate, waiting to board. You look up from your newspaper to see a pilot in full captain's uniform walking to your plane, wearing dark glasses and tapping a white cane. You chuckle to yourself. You've flown on this zany airline before, and you know this is just another fun trick being played on unsuspecting passengers. Pilots would sometimes leave the intercom open and say things like, Do you remember how to start this thing? Or, I thought you had the keys. The airline encouraged flight attendants to engage in playful banter, invent games, and crack jokes with passengers. We're serving steak and baked potatoes today, on the flight that left an hour ago. The airline singled out a passenger each time it logged another millionth customer. In one case, it acknowledged this marker by leading the tagged customer down the jet stairs and handing him the reins to a cow, a befuddled bovine standing placidly on the tarmac as a special gift. You love this renegade airline, which had brought a radical new model and a fun-filled high-spirit culture to the industry. More seriously, though, you love this airline for its low fares, consistent on-time record, and no-frills approach. Instead of having to go through the traditionally complicated ticketing procedure, you just get a simple cash register receipt. There are no seating assignments, no first-class distinctions, and few delays. The planes land, quickly turn at the gate, and go right back out again. You love the point-to-point -point model, with no hub-and-spoke connections. The whole experience is simple, fast, fun, reliable, safe, and cheap. As you prepare to board the flight, hoping that you're not tagged as a millionth marker, you really don't want or need a cow, you notice one of your favorite things. The black U going from left to right under the front of the aircraft, creating the effect of a giant, friendly, smiley face staring back at you. The cockpit windows looking like eyes and the front of the aircraft taking shape as a black-tipped nose. You're taking a business trip again on Pacific Southwest Airlines, PSA, and its giant flying smile machine in the sky. PSA, Pacific Southwest Airlines, the comparison company, to Southwest Airlines, became a success story for the airline industry, 
Not only did customers love this happy airline with its smiling aircraft, but the business model proved enormously profitable and full of growth potential. So, when a group of entrepreneurs decided to found an airline in Texas, they came up with a simple business plan. We're going to copy PSA in Texas. The New York Times wrote in 1971 that Southwest Airlines President Lamar Muse says frankly and repeatedly that Southwest Airlines has been developed from its inception around the ideas that have proven to be successful for Pacific Southwest Airlines. We don't mind being copycats of an operation like that, said Muse in 1971, referring to visits he and other Southwest executives made to PSA as they assembled their operating plans. PSA welcomed the Texas upstart to its San Diego operations, indeed even selling them flight and operations training. This may seem odd, but in a pre-deregulation world, which it was then, with Southwest constrained to Texas, PSA would remain unthreatened in its large intrastate market of California. The visiting entrepreneurs from Texas flew in PSA jump seats and took notes on every detail of gate and backroom operations. They returned to Texas with copious notes and a set of operating manuals that they used to mimic PSA's model to the smallest detail, including the fun and zany culture. Lamar Muse of Southwest Airlines later wrote that creating the operating manuals for his upstart airline was, quote, primarily a cut-and-paste procedure, unquote, a detail corroborated by another book written on the rise and fall of PSA. Southwest Airlines copied PSA so completely that you could almost call it a photocopy. A big surprise. When Morton and I began this research project, we anticipated that innovation might be a primary distinguishing factor for 10x success in unstable environments characterized by rapid change. But then, how on earth do we explain PSA and Southwest Airlines? Imagine our surprise, our shock really, to discover that the true innovator, PSA, no longer even exists as an independent brand despite having created one of the most successful airline business models of the 20th century. And further, that Southwest Airlines, one of our most favorite and beloved cases, had in fact hardly innovated anything at its founding. We analyzed Southwest versus PSA first in this study, and we commented in our research team discussions, well, Perhaps airlines present a special case, wherein scale and costs count much more than innovation. Surely, we thought, when we look into technology-driven industries like medical devices, computers, semiconductors, software, biotechnology, we're going to see an overwhelming amount of evidence of the 10x companies out-innovating the comparisons. Well, we were quite surprised by what we found. Our biggest shock came when we studied our pair of companies in biotechnology, the one industry in which the correlation between innovation and success should be close to 100%. And I'd like you to picture two curves, two sets of curves right next to each other. On the left set of curves, you're going to see 
two rising curves across the page. And on the right-hand chart, you're also going to see two rising curves on the page, one rising faster and higher than the other. Now, here's what's interesting. On the left curve, we look at innovation defined by patent productivity. And on the right, we look at financial performance based upon returns to shareholders. When you look on the left curve, the one that is higher, the one that had the highest productivity is the comparison company, Genentech, with far greater patent productivity than the 10x case, Amgen. But when you flip over to the performance side, the curves reverse. And the curve that has the great financial success is Amgen, the 10x winner. And the company that had all the innovation, the comparison company, Genentech, has much less financial success. So it's a role reversal. The innovation winner was not the business winner. Genentech stood out as one of the most innovative companies in the history of the biotechnology industry, being the first to apply recombinant DNA to a major commercial product, the first to create an FDA-approved biotechnology product, the company that Science Magazine touted as having an unparalleled record in the industry at creating major new breakthroughs. Yet Amgen, not Genentech, became the 10x case in our study. Curious, we undertook a systematic analysis of innovation, focusing on the relevant dimensions of innovation in each industry. So we basically asked, what are the relevant variables or dimensions of innovation in a given industry? And then we counted those. So for example, in biotechnology, you would look at new products, patents, scientific discoveries. Whereas in airlines, you would look at business models, operating practices, and so forth. We identified incremental, medium, and major innovations. And we counted 290 innovation events. 31 major, 45 medium, and 214 incremental. And within this data set, we compared the 10x winner to each comparison set and asked ourselves which company was more innovative during its era of analysis. In only three of seven pairs, the 10x case proved more innovative than the comparison company. The evidence from our research does not support the premise that 10x companies will necessarily be more innovative than their less successful comparisons. And in some surprise cases, such as Southwest Airlines versus PSA, and Amgen versus Genentech, the 10x companies were less innovative than their comparisons. John Brown at Stryker lived by the mantra that it's best to be one fad behind. Never first to market, but never last. In contrast, Leon Hirsch at Comparison Case USSC piled breakthrough upon breakthrough with new products that revolutionized surgical practice such as absorbable surgical staples and special devices for minimally invasive procedures, building a reputation among business analysts as the most innovative leader in its product categories. Investors Business Daily remarked, that's how USSE kept the competition at bay, by out-innovating them. Yet Stryker, stepping along one fad behind, 
trounced USSC in long-term performance. Even in pairs where the 10x case did out-innovate its comparison, such as with Intel versus AMD, the evidence still does not support the idea that maximum pioneering innovation is the most essential differentiator of 10x success. At multiple junctures in its history, Intel did not have the most innovative chip in the industry. Intel lagged behind National Semiconductor and Texas Instruments in the move to 16-bit microprocessors. Some of Intel's own executives saw the Motorola 68000 as better than Intel's 8086, and then Intel was late to market with its 32-bit microprocessors. Intel also fell behind those pioneering risk reduced instruction set chips and had to play catch-up. Of course, Intel did create significant innovations. We're not saying that Intel failed to innovate. But historical evidence shows Intel to be less of a pioneering innovator at critical junctures than most people realize. We're not the only researchers to have such findings. We came across a fascinating piece of work by Gerard J. Tellis and Peter N. Golder in their book, Will and Vision. Tellis and Golder systematically examined the relationship between attaining long-term market leadership and being the innovative pioneer in 66 wide-ranging markets, from chewing gum to the internet. They found that only 9%, that's 9, less than 10%, 9% of pioneers end up as the final winners in a market. Gillette didn't pioneer the safety razor. Star did. Polaroid didn't pioneer the instant camera. Dubroni did. Microsoft didn't pioneer the personal computer spreadsheet. Visicorp did. Amazon didn't pioneer online book selling, and AOL didn't pioneer online internet service. Tellus and Golder also found that 64% of pioneers failed outright. It seems that pioneering innovation is good for society, but statistically lethal for the individual pioneer. Morton and I envisioned sharing these puzzling findings with some of the 10x leaders, imagining they might be surprised, perhaps even outraged. We pictured Bill Gates, who viewed innovation as central to Microsoft's first three decades of success, snapping at us, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And indeed, if we came out and said innovation is bad, we could justifiably be called stupid. But that isn't our point. We're not saying that innovation is unimportant. Every company in this study innovated. It's just that the 10x winners innovated less than we would have expected relative to their industries and relative to their comparison cases. They were innovative enough to be successful, but generally not the most innovative. We concluded that each environment has a level of what we call threshold innovation that you need to meet to even be a contender in the game. Some industries, such as airlines, have a low threshold whereas other industries, such as biotechnology, command a high threshold. 
Companies that fail even to meet the innovation threshold cannot win. But, and this surprised us, once you're above the threshold, especially in a highly turbulent environment, being more innovative doesn't seem to matter very much. Very briefly, let me just describe the threshold level of innovation across the industries that we looked at. In semiconductors industry, which looks at new devices, products, technologies, it's a high level of threshold innovation. In biotechnology, clearly high threshold innovation. So we have an enticing puzzle. Why doesn't innovation systematically distinguish the 10x winners from the comparisons, despite the widely held view that innovation is perhaps the number one differentiating factor of success in a fast-changing world? Because, in essence, once a company meets the threshold of innovation necessary for survival and success in a given environment, it needs a mixture of other elements to become a 10x company. In particular, it needs the mixture of creativity and discipline. Creativity and discipline. In 1970, a small company named Advanced Memory Systems broke the 1,000-bit memory chip barrier and introduced a well-designed product to the market a few months before its rival, another small company named Intel. That might not sound like much of a lead, but in the early stages of a race to become an industry standard, in a rapidly changing technological revolution, falling months behind can be like falling a minute behind in a four-minute mile race. Intel crashed the clock to introduce its 1103 memory chip in late 1970. In the rushed melee, Intel slammed into a series of problems, including a glitch caused by an excess surface charge that could erase data. Here sat young Intel, months behind, with a memory chip that under certain conditions couldn't remember. Intel engineers worked 50, 60, 70 hours a week for eight months to fix the problem. This place was a madhouse, reflected Andy Grove in 1973. I was literally having nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, reliving some of the fights that took place during the day. And yet, despite all of this, Intel caught, passed, and utterly crushed advanced memory systems. We had a better design, but we blew it in the marketplace, said advanced memory systems chairman. Intel just bowled us over. Keep in mind, this isn't because Intel was a big, giant company at the time. Intel was also a young, small startup company. By 1973, Intel's 1103 had become the best-selling semiconductor component in the world, used by nearly every major computer manufacturer. Why? What's the reason? Yes, innovation played a role. The 1103 proved to be a very good chip. But more telling is a motto Intel had coined for itself by 1973. Intel delivers. 
It was our ability to deliver the parts that swung the balance in our favor, said Robert Noyce of Intel's early success. Intel obsessed over manufacturing, delivery, and scale. We want to do one good job on engineering, continued Noyce, and sell it over and over again. Intel delivers explains Intel's 10x success much better than Intel innovates. Even more accurate, Intel innovates to a necessary threshold, then blows everyone away, utterly, completely, fanatically, obsessively, with its ability to deliver on its innovations at expected cost, with high reliability and great consistency. This is the essence of Intel's 10x journey. Intel's founders believed that innovation without discipline leads to disaster. This business lives on the brink of disaster, said Gordon Moore in 1973, referring to the tendency of over-eager technologists to over-promise what they can deliver and then fail to come through with enough reliable chips at affordable cost. Indeed, the original statement of Moore's Law, written by Moore in 1965, focused not just on doubling the complexity of integrated circuits per year, which you can think of as the innovation component, but also doing so at minimum cost. Adhering to Moore's Law was a discipline game, a scale game, a systems game, not just an innovation game. As Leslie Berlin wrote about the early days of Intel in her authoritative and well-written book, The Man Behind the Microchip, what Intel needed going forward was not the courage to take great leaps ahead, but the discipline to take orderly steps in a controlled fashion. Andy Grove said during this era, we have to systematize things so we don't crash our technology. In an article that compared Intel's approach to making semiconductor chips to pumping out high-tech jelly beans. Grove sought to pattern Intel not after an advanced R&D lab, but of all companies, McDonald's. Keeping a hamburger box on his desk with a mock logo, McIntel. A quarter of a century after the 1103 success, Intel rearticulated its core values. And what did Intel leaders choose as the number one core value atop the list? Not innovation or creativity, but discipline. Of course, it is not discipline alone that makes greatness, but the combination of discipline and creativity. In the vernacular of built to last, this is a true genius of the and. As one longtime friend of Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines put it, what people don't understand is that Herb has the crazy creativity of the Irishman and the relentless discipline of the Prussian. You just don't get that combination very often. The great task, rarely achieved, is to blend creative intensity with relentless discipline so as to amplify the creativity rather than destroy it. 
When you marry operating excellence with innovation, you multiply the value of your creativity. And that's what 10Xers do. Our data on comparative innovativeness led us to a crux dilemma. On the one hand, when you're faced with an uncertain and unstable world, an obsessive focus on innovation by itself does not make for great success and might even lead to demise. Bet big on the wrong innovations or fail to execute on the right innovations, and you leave yourself exposed. On the other hand, if you just sit still and never do anything bold or new, the world will pass you by, and you'll die from that instead. The solution to this dilemma lies in replacing this simplistic mantra, innovate or die, with a much more useful idea. Fire bullets, then fire cannonballs. Bullets, then cannonballs. Picture yourself at sea, a hostile ship bearing down on you. You have a limited amount of gunpowder. You take all your gunpowder and you use it to fire a big cannonball. The cannonball flies out over the ocean and misses the target, off by 40 degrees. You turn to your stockpile and discover that you're out of gunpowder. You die. But suppose instead that when you see the ship bearing down, you take a little bit of gunpowder and fire a bullet. It misses by 40 degrees. You make another bullet and fire. It misses by 30 degrees. You make a third bullet and fire, missing by only 10 degrees. The next bullet hits, ping, the hull of the oncoming ship. Now, now you take all the remaining gunpowder and fire a big cannonball along the same line of sight, which sinks the enemy ship. You live. On April 14, 1980, venture capitalist William K. Bose and scientist Winston Salser brought a small group of scientists and investors to a meeting at the California Institute of Technology to discuss a newly incorporated biotechnology company. The company had no CEO, product, marketing plan, or specific direction. It had a little more than a scientific advisory board and a group of people willing to invest a little under $100,000 in the emerging field of recombinant DNA. The idea was simple. Get the best people they could find. Fund them to throw the latest recombinant DNA technology at a range of ideas. Strike upon something that would work. Create a product and build a successful company. Six months later, Bose convinced George Rathman to leave his position as a vice president for R&D at Abbott Laboratories to lead this small startup that would become Amgen. Rathman and three employees started work in a prefab tilt-up building shared with an evangelical choir in Thousand Oaks, California. Task one, get great people. Task two, Assemble as much gunpowder, additional funding, as possible. Task three, find a path to success and build a great company. But how? Amgen embraced recombinant DNA technology and, quote, tried it on virtually everything, unquote. Amgen began firing bullets, lots of bullets. Bullet, leukocyte interferon for viral diseases. Bullet, hepatitis B vaccine. Bullet, epidermal growth factor for wound healing and gastric ulcers. Bullet, 
To improve medical diagnostic tests. Bullet, hybridization probes for diagnostics in cancer, infectious disease, and genetic disorders. Bullet, EPO, for treating anemia and chronic kidney disease. Bullet, chicken growth hormone to build better chickens. Bullet, bovine growth hormone to get more milk from cows. Bullet, growth hormone releasing factors. Bullet, a vaccine to increase reproductive rates in pigs. Bullet, a vaccine for intestinal infections in piglets. Bullet, bioengineered indigo to dye blue jeans. By 1984, EPO, a glycoprotein that stimulates red blood cell production used to treat anemia, began to show the most promise. As the science progressed and Amgen scientists isolated the EPO gene, Amgen allocated more gunpowder, moving into clinical trials, proving efficacy, securing a defensible patent, and so on. Then, with the science done and the market assessed, 200,000 chronic kidney disease patients in the United States, Amgen fired a cannonball, building a testing facility, allocating capital to manufacturing, and assembling a launch team. EPO became the first super blockbuster bioengineered product in history. Amgen's early days illustrate a key pattern we observed in this study. Fire bullets, then fire cannonballs. First you fire bullets to figure out what will work. Then, once you have empirical confidence based on the bullets, you concentrate your resources and fire a cannonball. After the cannonball hits, you keep 20 mile marching to make the most of your big success. The history of the 10x companies is like a battlefield pockmarked with craters and littered with bullets that never hit anything and lodged themselves in the ground. Retrospective accounts tend to focus only on the big cannonballs, giving the false impression that 10x achievements come to those with the guts to go always for the big bet, the huge cannonball. But the historical research evidence presents a different story, a story of dozens of small bullets that thumped into the dirt punctuated by a handful of cannonballs that smashed into their targets. So what makes a bullet as distinct from a cannonball? A bullet must meet three tests. It has to be low cost, low risk, low distraction. So let's go through that again. A bullet is an empirical test aimed at learning what works and meets these criteria. One, the bullet is low cost. Note that the size of a bullet grows as the enterprise grows. A cannonball for a $1 million enterprise might be a bullet for a $1 billion enterprise. Two, a bullet is low risk. Now note that low risk doesn't mean high probability of success. Low risk means that there are minimal consequences if the bullet goes awry or hits nothing. And third, a bullet is low distraction. Now note that this means low distraction for the overall enterprise. It might be very high distraction for one or a few individuals in the enterprise. 10X companies used a combination of creative bullets, such as new products, technologies, services, and processes, and acquisitions. For an acquisition to qualify as a bullet, it needs to meet the three tests. Low cost, low risk, and low distraction. 
10x case Biomet used acquisitions to explore new markets and technologies, but did so with a self-imposed constraint. Acquisitions would be made with little or no debt, and only when the balance sheet would remain strong after the purchase, thereby ensuring that acquisitions would remain low-cost, low-risk, and relatively low distraction. In contrast, comparison case Kirshner made cannonball acquisitions, taking on significant debt and risk. Kirshner's acquisitions had to hit the target, else the company would be in serious trouble. In 1988, Kirshner made a cannonball acquisition of Chick Medical at a price exceeding 70% of Kirshner's total stockholders' equity. Now that's a cannonball. It turned out to be a disastrous move, made worse when Chick Medical's sales force defected to a competing firm. As Kirshner financed this and other acquisitions, its ratio of total liabilities to stockholders' equity skyrocketed from 43% to 609%, leaving the company terribly exposed. Bleeding cash, crushed by debt, its huge cannonball acquisitions having achieved little, Kirshner was forced to sell out in 1994 to Biomet. The Dangerous Lure of Uncalibrated Cannonballs Embracing the fire bullets then cannonballs principle requires a combination of activities. You have to fire bullets. Then you need to assess, did your bullets hit anything? And then consider, do any of your successful bullets merit conversion to a big cannonball? Then once you settle upon that, you convert, concentrate resources, and fire a cannonball once calibrated. It also means do not fire uncalibrated cannonballs. And then finally, terminate bullets that show no evidence of eventual success. Both the 10Xers and the comparison cases fired cannonballs. The comparison companies, however, tended to fire cannonballs before they'd obtained a confirming calibration, which means empirical validation gained through actual experience, that the cannonball would likely reach its intended target. For shorthand, we call a cannonball fired before you gain empirical validation an uncalibrated cannonball. The 10Xers were much more likely to fire calibrated cannonballs while the comparison cases had uncalibrated cannonballs flying all over the place. The 10X cases, in fact, had a 69% calibration rate on cannonballs versus 22% for the comparisons. Whether fired by the 10X case or the comparison case, calibrated cannonballs had a success rate nearly four times higher than uncalibrated cannonballs. 88% of calibrated cannonballs were successful, compared to only 23% of uncalibrated cannonballs. In 1968, PSA, our comparison to Southwest Airlines, launched a bold new cannonball called Fly, Drive, Sleep. On the surface, the idea made sense. You're an airline. People who fly need to rent cars and they need hotel rooms. So, move into the hotel and rent-a-car business. PSA began buying and taking out 25-year leases on California hotels, 
including the permanently docked ocean liner, the Queen Mary. It also bought a rental car company, rapidly expanding to 20 locations and more than 2,000 cars. PSA could have fired a series of bullets, buying one hotel, partnering with a rental car company, testing it out in a specific location, learning where it could and could not make the concept work. Instead, it went big, and unfortunately, the fly-drive-sleep cannonball flew off into the ether, generating losses every single year. We're damn poor hotel operators, reflected PSA Chairman J. Floyd Andrews. Then in the early 1970s, PSA fired another uncalibrated cannonball when it contracted to buy five L-1011 super wide-body jumbo jets at a price equal to 1.2 times its total stockholders' equity. Now keep in mind, PSA was a short-haul commuter going up and down the California coast, doing rapid gate turns to shuttle people. It's not a great fit with super-wide jumbo jets that can take a long time to board. Furthermore, PSA made special modifications, such as wider exit doors and having no food preparation galley, which would make the jet hard to sell to other airlines if PSA needed cash. The L-1011 plan required substantial upfront investment in new towing tractors, maintenance equipment, boarding equipment, and training. 42,000-pound thrust engines would burn through gigantic quantities of jet fuel, inflicting huge per-flight losses if PSA failed to fill the 302-seat aircraft. Unfortunately, an Arab oil embargo doubled jet fuel prices just as PSA began to put the huge L-1011s into service and struggled to exit from its fly, drive, sleep fiasco. The economy fell into recession. Inflation drove up costs, yet the California Public Utilities Commission, which regulated airline prices, granted only a 6.5% fare increase in response to PSA's plea for 16%. Then, the machinist union went on strike. The L-1011s went unfilled, and eventually they were mothballed in the desert, never to fly again with the PSA fleet. Said PSA Senior Vice President for Finance in 1975, we have come very, very close to insolvency. PSA never regained its prior greatness and continued to fire uncalibrated cannonballs in a desperate attempt to regain momentum. It tried to launch a joint venture with Braniff Airlines, hoping for a shortcut to becoming a national carrier. The potential venture ended when Braniff went bankrupt, abandoned its simple no-frills model, switched to McDonnell Douglas Aircraft for its smaller jets, moving away from its proven success with Boeing, and moved into the oil and gas exploration business. And it did all this while getting clobbered by a never-ending series of disruptive events. Deregulation exposed PSA to a swarm of ferocious competitors. A lawsuit with Lockheed over the L-1011s created 
financial uncertainty. A pilot strike shut down the airline for 52 days. A shift to McDonnell Douglas DC-980s came with unexpected delivery delays, leaving PSA short of aircraft, just as the strike ended, dashing the airline's reputation for reliable, on-time performance. And tragically, a Cessna student trainer airplane hit a PSA 727, descending into San Diego, sending both aircraft hurtling to the ground. Tower, we're going down, said the jet pilot. This is PSA. Finally, on December 8, 1986, PSA capitulated to a buyout from U.S. Air. PSA jets, with the signature smile, rolled one by one into yawning hangars, where workmen attacked them with chemicals and blasters. The aircraft emerged, faceless, repainted as interchangeable machines in a giant fleet. PSA's demise illustrates the danger of firing uncalibrated cannonballs in an uncertain world full of turbulent disruption. If an enterprise gets slammed by a series of shocks just as its uncalibrated cannonballs go crashing off into space, it's more likely to have a catastrophic outcome. Of course, we're focusing here on uncalibrated cannonballs that don't find a target. But what if you fire uncalibrated cannonballs that do hit a target? If there's a big enough potential payoff, perhaps the big uncalibrated bet is worth the risk. But here's the irony. Firing an uncalibrated cannonball that succeeds, generating a huge windfall, can be even more dangerous than a failed cannonball. Keep in mind the danger of achieving good outcomes from a bad process. Good process doesn't guarantee good outcomes. And bad process doesn't guarantee bad outcomes. But good outcomes with bad process, firing uncalibrated cannonballs that just happen to succeed, reinforces bad process and can lead to firing more uncalibrated cannonballs. Would you advise a friend or relative to go to Las Vegas and bet half of his entire net worth on a single spin of the roulette table? Suppose your friend believes that people win big only if they make big risky bets on games like roulette, and he heads off to Vegas, places a huge roulette bet, and wins. He comes home and says, see, it's a good idea to bet on roulette. Just look at my success. I'm going back next week to bet my entire net worth. 10Xers learn from their follies. The 10X cases didn't have perfect records in calibrating their cannonballs. Southwest bought Muse Air in the early 1980s, a big move outside its proven model. It failed. Intel made an uncalibrated bet in the 1990s to push the personal computer industry to a new memory technology from Rambus. It failed. But in the rare instances in which the 10X cases fired uncalibrated cannonballs, they quickly learned from their mistakes and returned 
to a bullets then cannonballs approach. For most of its history, Progressive Insurance lived by an explicit guideline to prevent uncalibrated cannonballs, limit any new business to 5% of total corporate revenues, until fine-tuned for sustained profitability. Progressive broke this rule in the mid-1980s when it moved into selling insurance to trucking companies and transit bus systems, jumping from zero to $61 million in net premiums written, almost 8% of total Progressive premiums, in less than two years. It multiplied the trucking insurance staff nearly 10 times in a single year, despite an underwriting loss of 23%, and then nearly tripled premiums again the next year. We thought the market was just bad drivers with bigger cars, said a progressive executive. But the business turned out to be very different. Trucking companies had much greater power to negotiate prices than individual drivers. And they had armies of sophisticated lawyers to battle claims disputes. A financial disaster, said Lewis, of the $84 million loss that followed. I'm ashamed for how we got into that position, he admitted. Then he pointed in the mirror to apportion blame. I truly am responsible for that. Even 10Xers make mistakes. Even sometimes the big mistake of firing an uncalibrated cannonball. But they view mistakes as expensive tuition. Better get something out of it. Learn everything you can. Apply the learning. And do not repeat. Whereas comparison cases often try to recover from the calamity of firing an uncalibrated cannonball by firing yet another uncalibrated cannonball, 10Xers recover by returning to the discipline of firing cannonballs only when they have empirical validation. Progressive vowed to never make the uncalibrated cannonball mistake again and subsequently applied the lesson in its move into standard insurance. Progressive had built its success primarily upon non-standard insurance, selling to high-risk drivers shunned by traditional insurers. Should Progressive move into standard insurance, selling to the broad spectrum of drivers? Progressive executives didn't know, but they knew how to find out. Fire bullets. In 1991, Progressive crafted experiments in a handful of states it knew well, such as Texas and Florida. Two years later, it continued firing bullets, testing standard insurance in more states. Bullet, bullet, bullet. Each one showed results. Each one validated the concept. Then, in 1994, with empirical validation, we've proven we can do this. Progressive then concentrated a whole bunch of gunpowder, firing a cannonball, committing fully to standard insurance. By the end of 1996, Progressive offered standard insurance in all 43 states where it operated. Within five years, standard insurance accounted for nearly half of Progressive's overall business, eventually catapulting it to the number four spot overall in the American auto insurance industry by 2002. Now, in an interesting contrast to both the uncalibrated trucking cannonball, which was a disaster, 
and the calibrated standard auto insurance cannonball, which was a great success, Progressive decided not to fire a cannonball on homeowner's insurance. At first glance, the idea of selling homeowner's insurance made sense. After all, why not enable customers to bundle together car and home insurance? We can envision reams of analysis demonstrating the synergies and strategic rationale for such a move, perhaps even making the case for a giant acquisition. But Progressive had learned from its mistakes. You can only know if something will actually work if you gain empirical validation, no matter how many slide decks support the idea. So, Progressive turned again to bullets. Just like the move into standard auto insurance, testing in a handful of states. However, unlike the bullets fired into the standard auto insurance business, the homeowner's insurance bullets hit nothing, and Progressive pulled the plug. Progressive's three strategic decisions, trucking insurance, uncalibrated cannonball leading to disaster, standard auto insurance, calibrated cannonball leading to great success, and homeowner's insurance, bullets, followed by the decision not to fire a cannonball, all underscore one very big lesson. In the face of instability, uncertainty, and rapid change, relying upon pure analysis will likely not work and just might get you killed. Analytic skills still matter, but empirical validation matters much more. And that's the underlying principle, empirical validation. Remember where we are in the triangle, empirical creativity. Be creative, but validate your creative ideas with empirical experience. You don't even need to be the one to fire all the bullets. You can learn from the empirical experience of others. Southwest Airlines became one of the most successful startup companies of all time by betting on an empirically validated model that it copied from PSA. Roald Amundsen built his strategy for the South Pole on proven techniques, such as the use of dogs and sleds that had been honed for centuries by Eskimos. Robert Falcon Scott, in contrast, bet big on his newfangled motor sledges, which had never been fully tested in the most extreme polar conditions. More important than being first or the most creative is figuring out what works in practice, doing it better than anyone else, and then making the very most of it with your 20-mile march. Empirical validation not predictive genius. When Morton and I began this research study, we wondered whether the 10x winners would prove to be superior at predicting the future, putting themselves ahead of the curve, and winning because of their predictive genius. But we did not find this to be true. Even the great software genius Bill Gates had no special predictive ability. 
He didn't plan from the outset for Microsoft to be the first to market with an operating system for the IBM PC. He was off focusing on computer languages when IBM unexpectedly asked if Microsoft could provide an operating system. Nor did he lead Microsoft to be first in the Internet browser market. In 1987, Bill Gates faced a conundrum. Whether to bet on DOS Windows or OS 2. On the one hand, the IBM PC had become a standard based on MS-DOS, and Microsoft had written Windows to run on DOS, giving Windows an early standards advantage. On the other hand, IBM had made a huge commitment to building a new operating system and had engaged Microsoft in developing what would become known as OS 2. In April 1987, IBM stormed the industry with its new line of computers running the technically superior OS 2. And Gates himself predicted that within two years, OS 2 would dominate. Yet at the exact same time, without fanfare, Gates also fired bullets on continued Windows development. After all, what if OS 2 failed? What if the DOS standard proved too big to overcome, even for IBM? What if software companies didn't convert their programs to run on OS 2, leaving new computers without a wide range of software options? What if? What if? What if? Exercising his productive paranoia, Gates worried about leaving Microsoft exposed to all these uncertainties. And so, despite vigorous challenges from some in his own inner circle, he hedged by keeping a handful of people on Windows, just in case. Gates was smart enough to know that he wasn't smart enough to predict, with certainty, what would actually happen to OS 2. By late 1988, OS 2 had garnered only 11% of the market. Bad news for IBM, but not necessarily for Microsoft. As Businessweek put it, in a way, Microsoft can't lose. Should OS 2 falter, MS-DOS will pick up the slack. Gates continued to forecast, publicly at least, that OS 2 would win. But the empirical evidence began to turn in Windows' favor. Who would have predicted that 1989 would be the year of Microsoft Windows rather than of OS 2, wrote PC Week. Yet, that seems to be the case. Windows 3 hit the market and sold a million copies in just four months, compared to just 300,000 copies of OS 2 in three years. So, Gates bet fully on Windows. By 1992, Windows was selling more than a million copies per month, and Gates then committed to building Windows 95. The cannonball smashed into its target, with Windows 95 reaching a million customers within four days, giving Microsoft a dominant position. Microsoft just kept on going, 20-mile marching, making the most of a very big thing. 10Xers do not have any particular genius for visionary prediction. If Bill Gates one of the great business geniuses of the 20th century couldn't accurately predict what was going to happen in his environment, there's little reason to expect that 
anyone, anyone can succeed with a predict the future and then position yourself for what's coming strategy. We were relieved to discover that you don't need any special predictive ability to thrive in uncertainty. If you don't know what's going to happen next, and no one does, this chapter outlines a method for making progress rather than getting paralyzed, frozen by life's uncertainties. As we progressed in our work and learned how the 10Xers dealt with uncertainty and change, Morton and I began to change our own approach, even our own terminology, moving away from trying to predict the future or to analyze our way to the right answer. Instead, we began to ask questions like, how can we bullet our way to understanding? How can we fire a bullet on this? What bullets have others fired? What does this bullet teach us? Do we need to fire another bullet? Do we have enough empirical validation to fire a cannonball? If you knew ahead of time which bullets would merit cannonballs, you'd fire only those. But of course, you don't know, so you need to fire bullets, knowing full well that a number of them will never hit anything. Eventually, however, there comes a time for commitment, when you have enough validation to fire the cannonball. If you fire only bullets, but never commit to a big bet or an audacious objective, you'll never do anything great. Apple's Rebirth. Bullets, Cannonballs, and Disciplined Creativity. When Steve Jobs decided to move Apple into retail stores in the early 2000s, he understood that he didn't know how to do it. Lacking empirical experience, he asked, who is the best retail executive? The answer, Mickey Drexler, then CEO of The Gap. So, Jobs lured him onto Apple's board and began learning everything he could. Drexler told Jobs not to just launch with a big rollout of 20 or 40 stores. Instead, go off to a warehouse, prototype a store, redesign it until you have it right, bullet, 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 and roll it out to the world, cannonball, only once you've got it working and tested. That's exactly what Jobs did. And indeed, the first iteration just didn't work. We were like, oh God, we're screwed, said Jobs. So Jobs and his retail leader, Ron Johnson, redesigned, tested, and redesigned until they got it right. They launched their first two stores in Virginia and Los Angeles. And once those proved successful, they rolled them out with great consistency. Bullet, calibrate, bullet, recalibrate, cannonball. Steve Jobs had returned to Apple in 1997, having wandered in the high-tech wilderness for 12 years after losing an internal showdown with John Scully, the CEO whom Jobs had brought in to help him run the company in the early 1980s. Imagine the outrage of being forced out of your own company, then watching it languish and stumble under a series of CEOs who just didn't understand what had made the company great in the first place. Its cumulative stock returns falling more than 60% behind the general market. By the time Jobs returned, few gave Apple much hope of a return to greatness. 
When asked what he'd do with Apple, Michael Dell, founder of Dell Computers, told an audience at the Gartner Symposium IT Expo 97, what would I do? I'd shut it down and give the money back to the shareholders. Over the subsequent five years, from the end of 1997 through 2002, Apple outperformed the general stock market by 127%, and then just kept going, eventually becoming the most valuable technology company in the world in 2010. So, what did Jobs first do to get Apple back on track? Not the iPod, not iTunes, not the iPhone, not the iPad. First, he increased discipline. That's right, discipline. For without discipline, there'd be no chance to do creative work. He brought in Tim Cook, a world-class supply chain expert. And together, Jobs and Cook formed a perfect yin-yang team of creativity and discipline. They cut perks, stopped funding the corporate sabbatical program, improved operating efficiency, lowered overall cost structure, and got people focused on the intense work-all-day-and-all-of-the-night ethos that had characterized Apple in its early years. Overhead costs fell. The cash-to-current liabilities ratio doubled and then tripled. Long-term debt shrunk by two-thirds, and the ratio of total liabilities to shareholders' equity dropped by more than half from 1998 to 1999. Now, you might be thinking, well, all that financial improvement naturally follows breakthrough innovation. But in fact, Apple did all this before the iPod, before iTunes, before the iPhone. Anything that didn't help the company get back to creating great products that people loved would be tossed, cut, slashed, and ruthlessly eliminated. What products did Apple work on first? It went backward in time to resurrect the biggest thing that Steve Jobs had helped create more than a decade earlier. The big thing of tremendous value still in the mix. The Macintosh personal computer. Apple launched Power Macs, PowerBooks, and the iMac. Jobs didn't first go after the next big thing, but instead, he made the most of the big thing he already had. Then, fully four years after Jobs returned to Apple, came a small, small, tiny, empirically validated shot. While Apple focused on the Mac, Something happened entirely outside Apple's walls. Music file sharing on Napster and the introduction of MP3 digital music players. Jobs told Brent Schlender of Fortune that he felt like a dope for being caught totally off guard by the rise of Napster. Digital music file sharing and MP3 players. I thought we'd missed it, Jobs continued. We had to work hard to catch up. Consider all the empirical facts in place before Apple began to develop the iPod. Young people shared music. MP3 players allowed them to take their music with them anywhere. MP3 players had limited capacity. 
Apple had an uncanny ability to make technology accessible to the rest of us. A really cool MP3 player that worked with the Mac would further extend the Mac. Apple employees wanted a cool MP3 player and music library for themselves. And much of the technology needed to build a better MP3 device already existed. Small hard drives from Toshiba, miniature batteries from Sony, Firewire interface from Texas Instruments, and MP3 hardware blueprint from Portal Player. So Apple pulled together a nifty MP3 player for the Mac, along with supporting software. But it didn't create a giant leap forward. Apple itself didn't seem to view the iPod as a significant new product category, but really more of an extension. Apple's 2001 Form 10K described the iPod as simply, quote, an important and natural extension of Apple's digital hub strategy, unquote, based on the Macintosh personal computer. No revolution yet, just an evolutionary step in an existing strategy. By 2002, the iPod remained a small part of Apple's overall portfolio, accounting for less than 3% of net sales meriting neither a separate line item in Apple's financial statements nor a mention in the opening paragraph of the company's business description. The iPod was a very cool bullet, but a bullet nonetheless. Still, Apple had increasing empirical validation. And we're back to a point of this chapter, empirical validation. People loved the iPod. Customers loved iTunes for the Mac. iPod sales more than doubled in a year. The music industry faced severe challenges from growth in illegally downloaded music. And Apple employees wanted an easy way to download music without stealing. So, Apple took the next step, launching an online music store and working out a deal with the music industry to offer individual songs at 99 cents. This too succeeded, and Apple had more empirical validation. Millions of people would rather buy music than steal it, if easy access and fairly priced. People were clamoring for iTunes for their Windows-based personal computers, and Windows had an installed base of more than one billion personal computers. These were all empirical facts. Finally, after all this empirical validation, Apple fired the big cannonball. iTunes and iPod for non-Mac computers, instantly multiplying the potential market by nearly 20 times. The iPod is not a new category, said Jobs. It's not a speculative market. So it's not like saying we're going to go build an information appliance or some technical curio and hope the market exists. And it didn't stop there. Apple kept adding piece upon piece, making the most of the new big thing. iPod Mini, iPod Click Wheel, iPod Photo, iPod 30 Gig, iPod 60 Gig, iPod 80 Gig, 
iPod Shuffle, iPod Nano, along with movies, videos, books, and television shows at the iTunes Store. Within three years, iPod unit sales would exceed Macintosh unit sales. The iPod story, when you really look at what happened and how it actually unfolded, the iPod story illustrates a crucial point. A big, successful venture can look, in retrospect, like a single-step creative breakthrough, when in fact, it came about as a multi-step, iterative process, based more upon empirical validation than any visionary genius. The marriage of fanatic discipline and empirical creativity better explains Apple's revival than breakthrough innovation per se. The same point holds for Steve Jobs himself. When banished to the high-tech wilderness in 1985 after being ousted from his own company, Jobs never stopped developing, growing, learning, pushing himself. He could have taken his fortune and retired to a life of ease and comfortable irrelevance. Instead, he launched a new company called Next, worked on a new operating system, and became engaged with animated films at Pixar. In the 12 years away from Apple, Jobs had turned himself from a creative entrepreneur into a disciplined, creative company builder. Jobs always knew how to build insanely great products, but he had to learn how to build an insanely great company. Fanatic discipline and empirical creativity Two sides of a coin, both required for 10x success and enduring greatness. Still, they are not enough. For if you get knocked out of the game, all your creativity and discipline amount to nothing. Apple nearly disappeared as an independent company in the mid-1990s, having fallen so far and become so dispirited that its leaders seriously entertained a sellout to another company. Apple got a stay of execution when its board couldn't come to terms with the potential acquirers, and Jobs returned soon thereafter. If Apple had capitulated and been acquired, there'd very likely have been no iMac, no iPhone, no iPod, or iPad. Greatness requires the Churchillian resolve to never give in, but it also requires having the reserves to endure staggering defeats, bad luck, calamity, chaos, and disruption. In a stable and predictable world, leading with fanatic discipline and empirical creativity might be enough. But uncertainty and instability also require leading with productive paranoia, the subject of our next chapter. Chapter Summary Fire Bullets, then Cannonballs Key Points 
A fire bullet, then cannonball's approach, better explains the success of 10x companies than big leap innovations and predictive genius. A bullet is a low-cost, low-risk, and low-distraction test or experiment. 10xers use bullets to empirically validate what will actually work. Based on that empirical validation, they then concentrate their resources to fire a cannonball, enabling large returns from concentrated bets. Our 10x cases fired a significant number of bullets that never hit anything. They didn't know ahead of time which bullets would hit or be successful. There are two types of cannonballs, calibrated and uncalibrated. A calibrated cannonball has confirmation based on actual experience, empirical validation, that a big bet will likely prove successful. In contrast, launching an uncalibrated cannonball means placing a big bet without empirical validation. Uncalibrated cannonballs can lead to calamity. The companies in our research paid a huge price when big, disruptive events coincided with their firing uncalibrated cannonballs, leaving them exposed. Comparison cases had a much greater tendency to fire uncalibrated cannonballs than the 10x cases. 10xers periodically made the mistake of firing an uncalibrated cannonball, but they tended to self-correct quickly. The comparison cases, in contrast, were more likely to try to fix their mistakes by firing yet another uncalibrated cannonball, compounding their problems. Failure to fire cannonballs once calibrated leads to mediocre results. The idea is not to choose between bullets or cannonballs, but to fire bullets first, then fire cannonballs. Acquisitions can be bullets if they remain low risk, low cost, and relatively low distraction. The difficult task is to marry relentless discipline with creativity, neither letting discipline inhibit creativity nor letting creativity erode discipline. Unexpected Findings The 10x winners were not always more innovative than the comparison cases. In some matched pairs, the 10x cases proved to be less innovative than their comparison cases. We concluded that each environment has a threshold level of innovation, which is the minimum level of innovation required to even be a contender in the game. For some industries, the innovation threshold is low, whereas for other industries, the threshold is very high. However, once above the innovation threshold, being more innovative doesn't seem to matter very much. 10xers appear to have no better ability to predict impending changes and events than the comparisons. They are not visionary geniuses. They're empiricists. 
The combination of creativity and discipline, translated into the ability to scale innovation with great consistency, better explains some of the greatest success stories. From Intel to Southwest Airlines, from Amgen's early years to Apple's resurgence under Steve Jobs. Then the mythology of big hit, single step breakthroughs. And now, one key question for you. Which of the following behaviors do you most need to increase? 1. Firing enough bullets. 2. Resisting the temptation to fire uncalibrated cannonballs. Or 3. Committing by converting bullets into cannonballs once you have empirical validation. Chapter 5 Leading Above the Death Line. Chapter Quote As soon as there is life, there is danger. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Now let's go back to our triangle that we introduced in the 10x chapter. Remember that there are three points the top, fanatic discipline, the bottom right, empirical creativity, the bottom left, productive paranoia. The previous two chapters dealt with fanatic discipline, translated into the 20-mile march. Then we moved to the bottom right, empirical creativity, translated into fire bullets, then cannonballs. And now we are in the bottom left, productive paranoia, translated into leading above the death line. On the morning of May 8, 1996, David Brashears looked down from Camp 3 at 24,500 feet high on the icy slopes of Mount Everest, preparing for the big move to the South Pole and a bid to carry what he called the pig to the summit. The pig was a 42-pound IMAX camera being used to create the first-ever IMAX movie from the highest point on Earth. What Brashears saw 3,000 feet below alarmed him. More than 50 people trekked out from Camp 2, swarming across the glacier, climbing toward Brashears and his team. Some of the climbers were clients, being led to the top of the world by experienced guides Rob Hall and Scott Fisher. Furthermore, Brashears and his team were already getting a late start, sleep-deprived and on edge from hurricane-force winds that had battered their tents the night before. Brashears paused to consider, what if his team had to delay for a day due to continued wind or storm, giving the swarm of climbers a chance to catch up? What if a bunch of people crowded the small tip-top of the mountain just as Brashears tried to film his summit shot? What if dozens of climbers stacked up at the bottleneck known as the Hillary Step just before the summit, where only one climber at a time could pass up or down on fixed ropes? What if the combined weight of so many people waiting the fixed ropes caused anchors to rip out of the ice? What if the previous night's severe wind presaged a change in weather? 
What if an unexpected storm swept up the mountain like some giant bear's maw, swiping climbers off the face and sending them hurtling to their doom? What if he ran into a traffic jam of less experienced climbers, weakened, exhausted, disoriented, at the very moment when he needed to go down fast? Brashears had assembled the best film climbing team in the world, and he conferred with his trusted partners, Ed Viesters and Robert Schauer. They all agreed conditions just didn't feel right, and they came to a clear decision. Secure the gear at Camp 3. Go down. Climb back up a few days later, after the mountain had cleared. On the way down, Brashears crossed paths with guide Rob Hall, tall and confident in a scarlet outfit, commanding his little army of guides and clients, moving up the mountain, slowly but with almost military precision. Brashears felt a touch of chagrin as the day had turned bright and calm, almost pleasant, and Hall looked surprised to see Brashears heading down in such great conditions. Hall looked the master of Everest as he marched upward, while Brashears quickly passed on by and headed down toward the lower camps. Soon, Brashears passed another guide, Scott Fisher, a charismatic force of energy with wild hair, a gigantic kid-like grin, and a passionate love of the mountains. Fisher like Hall, had questions about Brashear's decision to go down. And Brashear's told Fisher about the wind and questionable weather, and that the mountain felt crowded. Fisher flashed a broad, reassuring smile and continued upward, exuding his trademark optimism and joy at being on the mountain in such glorious weather. The next time Brashear's would see Hall and Fisher, 15 days later, en route, to his successful IMAX film shot on the summit. Both Hall and Fisher would be dead, frozen high on the mountain, victims of the greatest disaster in Everest history, in which eight people had died in 24 hours. Productive Paranoia Many people know this 1996 Everest story through John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air. If you haven't yet read Krakauer's book, be sure to do so. But also be sure to read David Brashear's superb book, High Exposure. Here, like Amundsen and Scott, we have a comparison contrast. Two sets of team leaders on the same mountain on the same day, both with burdens of responsibility and business pressures. One to lead clients to the top for a large fee, and the other to complete a multi-million dollar movie project both with tremendous experience. Yet, only one leads his team to 10x success, achieving the incredible goal of shooting an IMAX film on the top of Everest and bringing himself and every member of his team safely home. It would be easy to focus on the crucial decisions made on the mountain. We have Brashear's prudent decision to go down on May 8th, which likely saved his expedition and perhaps even his team members' lives. Then there was Rob Hall's decision to ignore his turnaround time, not by minutes,
but by hours, as he waited for client Doug Hansen to reach the summit. The turnaround time is a time preset by a climbing team by which they commit to begin their descent, regardless of whether they've reached the summit, thus preserving a greater margin of safety for completing their descent in daylight. But focusing on these two moments of decision obscures our view and limits our understanding. From a 10x perspective, the most important decisions were made before the teams even got to the mountain, months before, when Brashears sat in Boston, planning and preparing. David Brashears and his team brought enough oxygen canisters for more than one summit bid and enough supplies to stay at Everest for an extra three weeks. Brashears turned around and went down on May 8 because he could go down, wait for a better day, and still have reserves for another bid. Rob Hall's team, in contrast, brought enough oxygen for only one summit bid. Once the guided teams set out for the summit, they'd be in a one-shot, all-or-nothing box. Unlike Brashears, they didn't have the option to go down and come back on another day. When the crucial moment came, high on the mountain, as they ran up against the appointed turnaround time, they broke their turnaround protocol, leaving themselves terribly exposed to a fast-advancing storm and looming darkness. When the storm enveloped them, Brashears heroically gave more than half his team's canisters stored high on the mountain to help in the rescue attempts, willing to risk the multi-million dollar film project to help save the lives of fellow climbers. Even so, he was able to pull together enough resources to regroup after the tragedy and summit with the IMAX camera almost two weeks later. David Brashear's approach to Everest exemplifies the ideas in this chapter, which addresses how 10Xers lead their companies with productive paranoia. The 10X winners in our research always assumed that conditions can, and often do, unexpectedly change violently and fast. They were hypersensitive to changing conditions, continually asking, what if? By preparing ahead of time, building reserves, maintaining irrationally large margins of safety, bounding their risk, and honing their disciplines in good times and bad, they handled disruptions from a position of strength and flexibility. They understood deeply, the only mistakes you can learn from are the ones you survive. So I'd like you to picture a diagram. I'd like you to picture a rising curve that's like the right-hand side of a parabola, a rising curve going from the bottom left of a page to the upper right of a page. And think of this as the 10x journey. Now, I'd like to have you picture that curve as having a bunch of noise around it, if you will, a whole bunch of marks, things cutting across the curve, up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And think about each sort of jut above the curve, little thing that slices across the curve. If it's going upward, is a good event. If it's going downward, it's a bad event. So while you're on that 10x curve rising upwards, you're moving through all these good and bad events, good weather and bad weather and good situations and bad situations and good luck and bad luck. And now imagine below that rising curve, you have a horizontal curve 
that we call the death line. And the simple idea is this, that while you're journeying to 10x, you have to make sure that you never are in a situation where one of those bad events goes down far enough that you hit the death line and end the game. Hitting the death line in the context of this study means that the enterprise dies outright or becomes so damaged that it can no longer continue with the quest to become an enduring great company. The idea is simple. If you ever hit the death line, you end the journey. Game over. In this chapter, we explore three core sets of practices rooted in the research for leading and building a great enterprise with productive paranoia. Productive paranoia one. Build cash reserves and buffers, oxygen canisters, if you will, to prepare for unexpected events and bad luck before they happen. Productive paranoia two, bound risk, deathline risk, asymmetric risk, and uncontrollable risk, and manage time-based risk. Productive paranoia number three, zoom out, then zoom in remaining hypervigilant to sense changing conditions and respond effectively. We will build the chapter around these three ideas. Productive Paranoia 1. Extra oxygen canisters. Or, it's what you do before the storm comes. Think of Intel as David Brashears. And building a great company in the microelectronics industry as like climbing Everest with an IMAX camera. Think also of cash reserves and a conservative balance sheet as oxygen canisters and other supplies. By the late 1990s, Intel's cash position had soared to more than $10 billion, reaching 40% of annual revenues whereas AMD's cash-to-revenue ratio hovered at less than 25%. Having such a high level of cash might be irrational and inefficient 95% of the time. But Intel leadership worried about the 5% of the time when catastrophe might devastate the industry or when some other unexpected shock might batter the company. In those rare scenarios, which inevitably come, Intel would be able to continue its relentless 20-mile march to keep creating, to keep inventing, to keep on its quest to become an enduring great company. Financial theory says that leaders who hoard cash in their companies are irresponsible in their deployment of capital. In a stable, predictable, and safe world, the theory might hold. But the world is not stable. It is not predictable. It is not safe and it never will be. We conducted a systematic analysis of 300 years of balance sheets from the 10X and comparison companies and found strong evidence that the 10X cases carried lots of extra oxygen canisters. Compared to the median cash to assets ratio for 87,117 companies analyzed in the Journal of Financial Economics, 10X companies carried three to ten times the ratio of cash to assets. When it comes to building financial buffers and shock absorbers, 
The 10X cases were paranoid, neurotic freaks. And it wasn't just an industry effect. When we sliced the data comparing the 10X cases to their comparisons, we found that the 10X cases were more conservative in how they managed their balance sheets than the direct comparisons. 80% of the time, the 10X cases carried a higher cash-to-assets ratio and a higher cash-to-liabilities ratio than their comparisons. Morton and I wondered if the 10X cases had adhered to this prudent financial discipline throughout their histories, even when they were smaller enterprises, before they were hugely successful machines spinning out gobs of cash. When we re-employed the same analysis on the first five years after their respective initial public offerings, we found the pattern was already in place, with the 10X cases showing greater financial prudence relative to the comparisons. Intel's conservative cash position in the late 1990s was a continuation of the productive paranoia that its leaders and their 10X counterparts adopted in their early years. Like Brashears and like Roland Amundsen, the 10X leaders built buffers and shock absorbers as a habit early on, preparing to absorb the next black swan event. A black swan is a low-probability disruption, an event that almost no one can foresee, a concept popularized by the writer and financier Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Almost no one can predict a particular black swan before it hits, not even our 10Xers. But it is possible to predict that there will be some black swan, as yet unspecified. Put another way, the probability of any particular black swan event might be less than 1%. But the probability that some black swan event will happen is close to 100%. It's just that you can't predict what it will be or when it will come. This is Taleb's crucial contribution, an insight that any aspiring 10Xer should well learn. 10Xers always prepare for what they cannot possibly predict. Stowing away lots of extra oxygen canisters, big margins of safety, and increasing their options before they meet the black swan. Just like David Brashears preparing for Everest. 10Xers remain productively paranoid in good times, recognizing that it's what they do before the storm comes that matters most. Since it's impossible to consistently predict specific disruptive events. They systematically build buffers and shock absorbers for dealing with unexpected events. They put in place their extra oxygen canisters long before they're hit with a storm. In 1991, Herb Kelleher explained why Southwest Airlines maintained an extremely conservative balance sheet. As long as we never forget the strengths that enable us to endure and grow in the midst of economic catastrophe, as long as we remember that such economic catastrophes recur with regularity, and as long as we never foolishly dissipate our basic strengths through short-sightedness, selfishness, or pettiness, we will continue to endure. We will continue to grow. 
and we will continue to prosper. Ten years after he wrote these words, the world watched live, in real time, the horror of September 11, 2001. While the other major airlines cut operations in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, Southwest did not cut a single job or cut a single flight. Not one. Running a full schedule of flights, despite initially flying half-full planes, as soon as the government lifted a national air travel shutdown. Southwest turned a profit in 2001, including the fourth quarter of 2001, and was the only major airline to turn a profit in 2002. Southwest opened in new cities, gained market share, and utterly astonishing, saw its stock price rise in the fourth quarter of 2001. At the end of 2002, Southwest achieved a market capitalization greater than all other major U.S. airlines combined. Southwest achieved all this despite what it called the potentially devastating hammer blow of September 11, because in its own words from its 2001 annual report, our philosophy of managing in good times so as to do well in bad times proved a marvelous prophylactic. On 9-11, Southwest had $1 billion in cash on hand and the highest credit rating in the industry. It also had the lowest cost per available seat mile, a position secured by 30 years of discipline that never waned during good times. It had a crisis plan in place before 9-11. It had financial contingency planning tools in place before 9-11. It had nurtured its culture of fierce, caring, and defiant people for 30 years, creating a reciprocal, we'll-take-care-of-each-other relationship that proved strong and resilient. If that culture and those relationships hadn't been in place before 9-11, Southwest would have suffered like all the other airlines when the terrible event struck. When Herb Kelleher described how Southwest Airlines responded to 9-11, he showed no personal bravado. He choked on his own tears, unable to finish his sentences, as he tried to describe how Southwest people came together to get the planes in the air as soon as the skies opened, unified in a communal act of defiance. You can attack us, but you cannot beat us. You can try to destroy our freedom, but you'll only make us stronger. You can inflict horror, but you cannot make us terrified. We will fly. If you come at the world with the practices of building a great enterprise and you apply them with rigor all the time, good times and bad, stable times and unstable, you'll have an enterprise that can pull ahead of others when turbulent times hit, when a calamitous event clobbers an industry or the overall economy, companies fall into one of three categories. Those that pull ahead, those that fall behind, and those that die. The disruption itself does not determine your category. You do. 
Productive Paranoia, Part 2, Bounding Risk. Morton and I wondered if perhaps 10x companies achieved outsized success simply because they took more risk. Perhaps the 10x cases were just high-risk, high-reward winners, merely lucky that their big risks paid off. But as we got further into the research, we noticed that the 10xers appeared to lead their companies with a more conservative, risk-averse approach. They constrained growth in the 20-mile march. They fired bullets before firing cannonballs. They displayed financial prudence, building a cache of extra oxygen canisters. Struck by the accumulating evidence, we undertook a more systematic analysis to ask, simply, did the 10x cases take more risk or less risk than the comparison cases? To explore this question, we first identified three primary categories of risk relevant to building an enterprise. And let me just pause here and suggest that when I introduce these, this is something you can always use in your own discussions, in your own leadership. Stand back and ask, do we have any one of these three categories of risk? How can we process our decisions through the lens of these three categories of risk? Those three categories are one, death line risk, two, asymmetric risk, and three, uncontrollable risk. Death line risks are those that could kill or severely damage the enterprise. Asymmetric risks are those for which the potential downside is much bigger than the potential upside. And uncontrollable risks are those that expose the enterprise to forces and events that it has little ability to manage or control. Any particular decision or situation could involve more than one form of these three risks. The categories of risk are not mutually exclusive. You could have a death line risk that is also an asymmetric risk or an uncontrollable risk. Let's return to the Everest story to illustrate these three categories of risk. When Rob Hall decided to abandon the 2 p.m. turnaround time to help one of his clients reach the summit, he dramatically increased the risk of being caught in the dark and running out of bottled oxygen. He took an unnecessary death line risk. In contrast, David Brashears faced a difficult decision about whether to let a faltering Japanese team member make the final summit bid upon his team's return to the mountain. A heartbreaking decision given all the years of effort and training she'd invested. Still, Brashears maintained his margin of safety and didn't let her attempt the summit. Hall's decision to bring enough oxygen canisters for only one summit bid had asymmetric risk. Oxygen canisters are heavy and expensive, but a failed expedition is more expensive and losing lives is infinitely expensive. Brashears, in contrast, believed that the downside of limited oxygen far outweighed the cost of having an extra cash. Brashears also shunned uncontrollable risk, 
recognizing that the large number of climbers heading up the mountain on May 8, 1996 could create a situation over which he'd have no control. There could be a dangerous bottleneck at the Hillary Step. Climbers crowding the top could ruin his summit shot. Brashears and his team could find themselves high on the mountain in a storm impeded by climbers from the other teams. He chose to avoid these uncontrollable risks by going down on May 8. Now, let's turn to our 10x research data. We conducted an extensive analysis across the history of the 10x and comparison cases. And we found that the 10x cases behaved like David Brashears. They took less deathline risk, less asymmetric risk, and less uncontrollable risk than the comparison cases. We identified 59 crucial decisions in the 10x companies and 55 crucial decisions in the comparison cases. We found only 10% of the 10x crucial decisions involved deathline risk, versus more than three times that, 36% in the comparison companies. With asymmetric risk, we found the 10x companies took only 15% of decisions involving asymmetric risk, compared to 36% for the comparison cases. And when it comes to uncontrollable risk, the numbers go up a bit for the 10x cases. 42% of these crucial decisions involved some uncontrollable risk. But 73% of the comparison decisions did. When you add all of this up, we found that the 10x cases erred towards bounding their risk removing deathline, uncontrollable, or asymmetric risk more than the comparison cases by a factor of 2x. They were, in short, more prudent, more risk-averse than the comparisons. So in summary, in short, we found that the 10x companies took less risk than the comparison cases. Certainly, the 10x leaders took risks, but relative to the comparisons, in the same environments, they bounded, managed, and avoided risks. The 10x leaders abhorred deathline risk, shunned asymmetric risk, and steered away from uncontrollable risk. After finishing the risk analysis that we just discussed about those three categories, deathline risk, asymmetric risk, uncontrollable risk, we realized that there was one additional and very important category of risk to consider. Time-based risk. In other words, when the degree of risk is tied to the pace of events and the speed of decision and action. If you are facing a tornado roaring across the plains, aimed right for you, your risk profile depends greatly on whether you see the tornado in time, make a decision, and get into a shelter before the tornado reaches you. Given the premise of this study, a turbulent world, an unstable world, a chaotic world, full of big, fast-moving forces that we can neither predict nor control, perhaps the comparison cases got clobbered because they acted too slowly in the face of oncoming risks and disruptions.
and the 10x cases reduced their risk through sheer speed. To test this idea, we identified 115 time-sensitive events in the histories of the 10x and comparison companies. We examined the correlation between good and bad outcomes relative to speed of recognition, meaning whether the enterprise recognized the significance of the event early or late, speed of decision, how quickly they decided what to do about it, and speed of execution, how quickly then they acted once they had decided. And here is what we learned. I'm going to share with you kind of two sides of a coin about speed and outcomes. I think the results might surprise you. I'm going to sort of compare what we found in terms of behaviors that correlate with successful outcomes in contrast to behaviors that correlate with unsuccessful outcomes. Correlating with successful outcomes, we found hypervigilance, constant worry about changes that might signal danger, early recognition of threat. You sense a little bit of change in the weather and you immediately start thinking there might be a tornado. Now, behaviors that correlate with unsuccessful outcomes, in contrast, is any form of arrogance, minimization or ignorance of the potential significance of changes, recognizing threats late. Now, back on a behavior that correlates with successful outcomes, we find the ability to adjust the speed of making decisions to the pace of events, whether fast or slow. Let me just pause for a moment. The answer here is not just decide quickly. And we're going to return to this. This is one of the most surprising findings in the study. In a fast-paced world, you do not always want to make fast decisions. You want to go slow when you can and fast when you must. Hang on to that. We'll come back to it. On the other side, behaviors that correlate with unsuccessful outcomes is when you fail to adjust your speed of decision to the pace of events, either deciding too slowly or too fast, depending on the situation. Now let's go to another successful behavior or a behavior that correlates with good outcomes. And that's making deliberate, fact-driven decisions. Highly disciplined thought, even if you're moving quickly. And an unsuccessful behavior is reactive, impulsive decisions, lacking any fanatic discipline and strategic rigor. And then finally, on the successful side, we see a focus on superb execution once decisions are made. And this might mean increasing your intensity to meet time demands, but without ever compromising excellence. Just because the world is moving quickly, just because you face a threat that is coming at you really fast, does not mean you should compromise the excellence of your execution. That's a good way to get killed. It'd be like rushing up the side of a mountain because a storm is coming quickly and then tying your knots poorly, and they come untied. And we look over at the unsuccessful outcomes. We see a behavior of compromising in excellence of execution for the sake of speed, 
and a failure to increase the intensity needed to attain superb execution when moving fast. Okay, I've just thrown a whole bunch at you here. For the rest of this chapter, a number of these ideas are going to be fleshed out with some stories and some ways of helping you grasp them. Our analysis yielded a much more nuanced perspective than always go faster. We concluded that recognizing a change or threat early and then taking the time available, whether that be short or long, to make a rigorous and deliberate decision yields better outcomes than just making a bunch of quick decisions. Now, wherever you are, I'm going to give you an absolutely crucial question for attaining great outcomes in a turbulent, unstable, fast-moving, unpredictable environment. Ingrain this question in your brains. Use it constantly. The key question turns out not to be, should we be fast to act or slow? The key question is this, how much time before our risk profile changes? Let me repeat that. I want this in your brain. How much time before our risk profile changes? Recall Andy Grove's response to his cancer diagnosis that we discussed earlier in Chapter 2. Grove didn't jump right to action. He considered his time frame and recognized that his risk profile wouldn't change significantly in a matter of days or weeks. Months or years, yes, but not weeks. He then used that time to rigorously develop a plan of attack, considering all the various possibilities and creating his own data charts. Grove was anything but complacent about his cancer. But he didn't make a quick, reactive decision. Grove believed that jumping into the operating room without carefully considering his situation and the options would increase his risk. Sometimes acting too fast increases risk. Sometimes acting too slow increases risk. The critical question, again, is how much time before your risk profile changes? Do you have seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades? Which? The primary difficulty lies not in answering the question, but in having the presence of mind to ask the question. And one of the more surprising findings, the 10X teams tended to take their time to let events unfold when the risk profile was changing slowly. Yet equally, they prepared to act blindingly fast in the event the risk profile began to change rapidly. Prior to the mid-1990s, Stryker kept a vigilant eye on a storm brewing far off in the distance noting in its 1989 annual report that the United States would become competitively disadvantaged if health care costs were to rise to more than 15% of GNP. This, in turn, could lead to a backlash on costs 
and drive down prices on Stryker's medical devices. Stryker squirreled away a whole bunch of oxygen canisters, cash on the balance sheet, to handle whatever form the disruption might take. Still, John Brown did not act early. He let the situation unfold, prepared to act fast when the time came. Then in the late 1990s, Stryker's risk profile began to change rapidly when hospital buying groups emerged to concentrate their buying power. These groups preferred to deal with a few large market leaders, and in response, the industry began to consolidate in a series of rapid-fire acquisitions. Medical device companies faced a stark choice. Become one of the few largest players with economies of scale, or be largely shut out of the game. And when the risk profile began to change, and it began to change very quickly, that is when Stryker swooped in, bought Halmedica, and ensured itself one of the top three seats. So let's pause for a moment, look at the Stryker case. Through the lens of those four behaviors I described a few minutes ago that correlate with good outcomes. We had the behavior of hypervigilance, constant worry about changes that might signal danger, recognizing threats early. And we look over at Stryker, back in the 1980s, Stryker explicitly identified rising healthcare costs as a concern and worried about industry disruptions that might result. They didn't act, but they sure worried and they sure kept an eye on it. Let's take the behavior of adjusting decisions to the speed and pace of events, whether fast or slow. Go slow when you can, fast when you must. So we go back to the 1980s and early 1990s, and Stryker took no dramatic action, yet considered options and built large cash reserves so that it could act fast when it needed to. Then we go to the behavior of making deliberate, fact-driven decisions, highly disciplined, even if you're moving quickly. And we go to the late 1990s, when buying groups drove the industry into that rapid consolidation, creating a brutal fact. You're either at the table or you're not at the table. And that's when Stryker made a very disciplined decision to buy Halmedica. And then finally, the behavior of focusing on superb execution once decisions are made, increasing your intensity as needed to meet time demands without compromising excellence. And we go over to Stryker from 1998 to 1999. Stryker team members worked nearly non-stop, incredible intensity, seven days a week for months to successfully integrate Howmedica. As a productive paranoid, and I sure hope after listening to this book, after engaging with this chapter, that you proudly wear the patch on your arm, I am a productive paranoid. As a productive paranoid, you want to be cognizant of lurking dangers and vigilant about possible disruptions. But this is very different from taking quick, immediate action because you want the anxiety and uncertainty to go away. In our executive laboratory, we've noticed that some leaders from emerging markets maintain a very calm stance in the face of uncertainty, including a willingness to let time pass when the risk profile remains stable. During the 2008-2009 financial crisis, 
we worked directly with some of the most successful business leaders from emerging markets. And we noticed their calm and considered countenance in the face of swirling tumult. One of the most successful self-made business leaders from Latin America who achieved his success in a brutally uncertain environment described his ability to pause. Sure, he said, it's human nature to want to make the uncertainty go away. But that desire can lead you to decide quickly, sometimes too quickly. Where I come from, he continued, you soon realize that uncertainty will never go away, no matter what decisions we make or actions we take. So if we have time to let the situation unfold, giving us more clarity before we act, we take that time. Of course, when the time comes, he reminded, you need to be ready to act. So one of the most dangerous false beliefs is that faster is always better. That the fast always beat the slow. That you are either the quick or the dead. Well, sometimes the quick are the dead. Productive Paranoia Part 3 Zoom out, then zoom in. In a famous experiment, researchers Daniel J. Simons and Christopher F. Chabri asked subjects to watch a videotape of people passing a basketball back and forth and count the number of passes. Partway through the video, a person in a gorilla suit unexpectedly walks right into the middle of the action, thumps its chest, and walks off the court. Focused on their counting task, only 50% of the subjects even noticed the gorilla. We spend most of our lives dealing with the plans and activities right in front of us, ticking tasks off our lists, clicking past mile markers on our big projects, responding to the incessant demands on our time. And we can easily miss the gorilla right in front of us. 10x leaders, however, don't miss the gorilla, especially if the gorilla poses a dangerous threat. David Brashears was utterly focused on getting his IMAX camera to the summit of Everest. Yet when he looked down the mountain on May 8, 1996, the swarm of humanity heading his way, he saw a huge gorilla. We adopted the terms zoom out and zoom in to capture an essential manifestation of productive paranoia, a dual lens capability. 10x leaders remain obsessively focused on their objectives and hypervigilant about changes in their environment. They push for perfect execution and adjust to changing conditions. Put another way, they count the passes and see the gorilla. So in practice it works like this. You sense a change in conditions and you zoom out. You assess the time frame. You ask how much time before the risk profile changes. And you assess with rigor as you're zooming out. Do the new conditions call for disrupting 
plans? And if so, how? And after you've sort of zoomed out, you then zoom in and focus on supreme execution of plans and objectives. Notice that the question, that really critical question that we want in your brain, how much time before the risk profile changes, is part of the zoom out. As we discussed earlier, 10Xers took the time available to zoom out and formulate a considered response. Of course, sometimes the 10X cases had to act fast, when the risk profile was changing rapidly, when the gorilla was already close and charging fast. Even so, they avoided panicky, reactive decisions. They remained deliberate and clear-headed, responding fast enough. On December 4, 1979, a special task force of six Intel managers and external marketing guru Regis McKenna set aside their lives for three full days of intense discussions, sparked by an eight-page telex from field engineer Don Buckow, who'd written an incisive and desperate analysis of Intel's weakening position with its 8086 microprocessor relative to the Motorola 68000. Of particular concern, Motorola had begun to pull ahead of Intel in competition for important design wins, convincing customers to design the Motorola 68000 into their product lines. It was a terrifying trend. If Motorola gained a dominant share of design wins, it could entrench itself as a standard, becoming increasingly difficult to unseat. As Intel manager William H. Davido reflected in his book, Marketing in High Technology, Intel was headed for obscurity. The Intel team zoomed out. Why is Motorola winning? How important is this? How can we counter? The team developed a five-point competitive positioning strategy and a schedule focusing on Intel's distinctive capability, Intel Delivers, and its capacity to provide an entire family of chips, generation upon generation of chips, giving customers comfort. The resulting document was smart and strategic, reflecting deep insight into Intel's strengths and an understanding of what customers really worried about. Based on a very systematic analysis, in three days, the team developed a plan of counterattack dubbed Operation Crush. Then Intel zoomed in. The task force finished its work on Friday less than a week after it convened, and Intel approved the plan and allocated a multi-million dollar budget the following Tuesday. Within the week, more than a hundred Crush team members sporting buttons with bold orange letters C-R-U-S-H met at the San Jose Hyatt. From there, they fanned out across the globe to garner 2,000 design wins for Intel 
within a year. Intel was on a self-described crusade, turning the tide and getting its 2,000 design victories, including a really big one for IBM's future PC personal computer. Despite being in a fast-moving, perilous, competitive situation, the Intel team took a very deliberate approach, formulating a smart and rigorous strategy. Intel initiated Operation Crush in just seven days, yet did so with fiercely disciplined thought. When facing fast-moving threats, 10x teams neither freeze up nor immediately react. They think first, even when they need to think fast. Intel made a mistake in not recognizing the Motorola threat earlier. Again, even 10x companies do not have a perfect record, which forced it into such a crash program. Yet once it recognized the threat, it didn't make its situation worse via panicky, thoughtless reaction. 10x enterprises at their best respond to empirical evidence rather than hype or scaremongering and stick with proven principles and strategies in the face of frightening events. A fast-moving threat does not call for abandoning disciplined thought and disciplined action. By early 1987, George Rathman had convinced the Amgen board to fire a cannonball on its breakthrough product, EPO. Recognizing the moment, the science is done, the trials are done, we have the product ready, the clock is ticking, we've got to go now. The Amgen FDA application team turned themselves into the Simi Valley hostages. At first, they worked at the office, but soon decided that they needed to block out all distractions, recognizing that nothing was more important at this moment than the FDA filing, pushing everything else into the it-can-wait pile, moving copiers and working files into motel rooms at the Posada Royale Quality Inn in Simi Valley, cutting off normal life, embracing a brutal non-stop schedule smiling as their friends and colleagues hung yellow ribbons in their honor. They'd work in the morning, take a brief lunch break, work until 6 p.m., take a short dinner break, work into the night, then repeat again, day after day, week after week. Finally, 93 days later, they loaded the 19,578-page document into a rented truck, drove it to the airport, and shipped it off to the FDA. A large bedsheet adorned with yellow ribbons was hung outside Amgen's headquarters proclaiming, the Simi Valley hostages are free. The Simi Valley hostages had a lot of catching up to do on their lives. If you don't get your desk cleaned off for 93 days, or your garage repainted, or your marathon run, your golf game in, your expense reports completed, your phone calls returned, your mail answered, your vacation achieved, your new house bought, your newspapers read, or pretty much anything else that can wait until later. What does it matter? 
compared to missing the chance to secure EPO with the FDA before another competitor. The Simi Valley hostages understood that they were in a race to be first, but they didn't sacrifice their detailed, methodical approach for the sake of speed. By increasing their intensity to extreme levels for a time, nothing else matters until we get this done and done right. They went fast enough to win. In contrast, consider how Genentech failed to execute as well in a comparable moment and how that failure contributed to Genentech losing its independence. On Friday afternoon, May 29, 1987, 400 people gathered in the FDA auditorium in Bethesda, Maryland to witness Genentech's presentation to an FDA advisory panel on its new drug, TPA, also known as Activase. No drug up to that point in the history of biotechnology had generated anything like the excitement around TPA, a wonder drug designed to dissolve clots in heart attack victims. Genentech's stock price trading at a hundred times earnings, reflected Genentech's salesmanship in convincing people that the TPA cannonball would smash directly into its target, hype that would leave the stock vulnerable in the event that TPA encountered snags with the FDA. Around dinner time, after five hours of presentations and discussions, the committee chair finally asked for a vote. The audience gasped when it heard the count. Genentech hadn't convinced the committee that TPA prolonged life, and the committee recommended that TPA should be sent back for further study. Ironically, Genentech actually had access to most of the information needed to convince the FDA, but it didn't have all the necessary data readily available and prepared in an unassailable way for whatever concerns and questions might have come from the committee on the day of the meeting. Genentech's founder, Robert Swanson, called the committee's decision a mistake. And to be fair, Genentech did return later that year and obtained a positive decision. Still, those six months mattered, with at least 10 companies racing to create TPA-related drugs and those competitors gained ground, while Genentech retreated to reassemble its data for the FDA. The TPA setback helped to puncture Genentech's high-flying stock price, which fell more than 60% behind the general stock market in the subsequent two years, raising the cost of equity capital, which Genentech needed to invest heavily in R&D, and leading the company to sell a controlling stake to Roche. Not all time in life is equal. We close this chapter with a twist to the Amundsen story that highlights the importance of being able to zoom out, then zoom in. It turns out that Amundsen hadn't planned to go to the South Pole in 1911. He'd planned to go to the North Pole. That's right, the North Pole. He'd raised money to go to the North Pole, assembled a team for the North Pole, gained access to the ship from for a trip to the North Pole, and mapped a full plan for the North Pole. 
So then, how did he end up at the opposite end of the Earth at the South Pole? While making his preparations for the North, Amundsen received crushing news. The North Pole had fallen. First Cook, then Perry, had reportedly reached 90 degrees north. So Amundsen decided to redirect his expedition and channel his energies into preparing for a new destination, the South Pole. He kept his decision secret, even from his crew, during the months while he prepared until he set sail. On September 9, 1910, at the port of Madeira, Portugal, Amundsen raised anchor three hours ahead of schedule, catching his crew off guard. He assembled his men on deck and calmly told them that they weren't going to the North Pole after all, that the expedition would veer to the South Pole instead. Earlier in the day, the crew had nothing but the North Pole on their minds. By 10 p.m., they were already heading toward the South Pole, fully committed to the new adventure, the North Pole fading from their dreams. In all of the previous discussion that you've heard, we've portrayed Amundsen as anything but impulsive, the consummate, detail-oriented, super-prepared, monomaniacal, disciplined fanatic. Yet, with the North Pole gone, and the South in Scott's line of sight, Amundsen pivoted dramatically, changing direction from north to south. If Amundsen had said, well, my plan is to go north, so that's what I'm going to do. If he refused to reorient his focus, he would not have led his team to a 10x achievement. Upon learning that the North Pole had fallen, he zoomed out to consider the changed conditions. Then he zoomed in to execute a new plan to go south. 10Xers distinguish themselves by an ability to recognize defining moments that call for disrupting their plans, changing the focus of their intensity, and or rearranging their agenda because of opportunity or peril or both. When the defining moment comes, they have the buffers already in place. Lots of extra oxygen canisters, giving them options and flexibility to adjust. They have huge margins of safety precisely because they've bounded their risks, exercising prudence all the way along, avoiding death line risk, shunning asymmetric risk, and minimizing uncontrollable risk. They sense change zooming out to ask how much time before the risk profile changes. They make rigorous rather than reactive decisions. Then they zoom in, obsessively focusing on superb execution in the defining moment, never compromising excellence for speed. Not all time in life is equal. Absorb that phrase. Let that one burrow into your brain. Not all time in life is equal. Life serves up some moments that count much more than other moments. The year 1911 was an unequal time for Amundsen, and he made the most of it. May 1996 on Everest was an unequal time for David Brashears. 
and he executed brilliantly when the time came. September 11 was an unequal time for the airline industry, and Southwest came through with the most inspired and defiant performance. We will all face moments when the quality of our performance matters much more than other moments. Moments that we can seize or squander. 10Xers prepare for those moments, recognize those moments, grab those moments, append their lives in those moments, and deliver their best in those moments. They respond to unequal times with unequal intensity when it matters most. Chapter Summary Leading Above the Death Line Key Points This chapter explores three key dimensions of productive paranoia. One, build cash reserves and buffers, oxygen canisters, to prepare for unexpected events and bad luck before they happen. Two, bound risk, deathline risk, asymmetric risk, and uncontrollable risk, and manage time-based risk. And three, zoom out, then zoom in, remaining hypervigilant to sense changing conditions and respond effectively. 10Xers understand that they cannot reliably and consistently predict future events. So they prepare obsessively ahead of time, all the time, for what they cannot possibly predict. They assume that a series of bad events can wallop them in quick succession, unexpectedly, and at any time. It's what you do before the storm hits. The decisions and disciplines and buffers and shock absorbers already in place that matters most in determining whether your enterprise pulls ahead, falls behind, or dies when the storm hits. 10Xers build buffers and shock absorbers far beyond the norm of what others do. The 10X companies we studied carried 3 to 10 times the ratio of cash to assets relative to the median of what most companies carry, and they maintained more conservative balance sheets than the comparison companies throughout their histories, even when they were small enterprises. 10X cases are extremely prudent in how they approach and manage risk paying special attention to three categories of risk. One, deathline risk, which can kill or severely damage the enterprise. Two, asymmetric risk, in which the downside dwarfs the upside. And three, uncontrollable risk, which cannot be controlled or managed. 10Xers zoom out, then zoom in. They focus on their objectives and sense changes in their environment. They push for perfect execution and adjust to changing conditions. When they sense danger, they immediately zoom out to consider how quickly a threat is approaching and whether it calls for a change in plans. Then they zoom in, refocusing their energies 
into executing objectives. Big point. Rapid change does not call for abandoning disciplined thought and disciplined action. Rather, it calls for upping the intensity to zoom out for fast yet rigorous decision-making and zoom in for fast yet superb execution. Unexpected Findings The 10x cases took less risk than the comparison cases, yet produced vastly superior results. Contrary to the image of brazen, self-confident, risk-taking entrepreneurs who see only upside potential, 10x leaders exercise productive paranoia, obsessing about what can go wrong. They ask questions like, what is the worst-case scenario? What are the consequences of the worst-case scenario? Do we have contingencies in place for the worst-case scenario? What's the upside and what's the downside of this decision? What's the likelihood of the upside and the downside? What's out of our control? How can we minimize our exposure to forces we can't control? And they always ask, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Remember that little phrase, they're almost paranoid neurotic freaks. The 10x cases didn't have a greater bias for speed than the comparison cases. Taking the time available before the risk profile changes, whether that be short or long, to make a rigorous and deliberate decision produces a better outcome than rushing a decision. And one key question for you. Regarding the biggest threats and dangers facing your enterprise and even the opportunities it faces, how much time before the risk profile changes? Chapter 6. SMAC. That's a capital S, capital M, small a, capital C. Chapter quote. Most men die of their remedies and not of their illnesses. Moliere. Let's briefly reinforce the triangle we introduced in the 10xer chapter. You've got the triangle with the three core 10xer behaviors. The top of the triangle, fanatic discipline. The bottom right of the triangle, empirical creativity. The bottom left of the triangle, productive paranoia. The previous three chapters mapped directly to those. 20-mile march for fanatic discipline. Fire bullets, then cannonballs for empirical creativity and all the practices of leading above the death line for productive paranoia. This chapter, chapter 6, around the concept of smack and smack recipe, actually requires all three of these dimensions working together. So think of this as all three points on that triangle have lit up. In early 1979, Howard Putnam, then CEO of Southwest Airlines, wrestled with a question. Does the sweeping disruption of deregulation call for a revolution in how we run our company? The 1978 Airline Deregulation Act would unleash competition 
throw carriers into pitched battles for market share, ignite price wars, force airlines to cut costs, and lead to bankruptcies. Putnam considered, does deregulation undermine our low-cost model? Does deregulation threaten our high-spirit, employee-focused culture? Does deregulation erode the competitive value of rapid gate turns or destroy the viability of our point-to-point -point system? Does radical change in our environment call for inflicting radical change upon ourselves? His answers, no, 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 and no. He concluded that Southwest should continue to expand based on, quote, the cookie-cutter approach, unquote. He conjured up the image of a recipe used repeatedly to create batches of consistently formed cookies. Do the same thing you are already doing well, he said, and do it over and over again. Not only that, he specified the cookie recipe point by point. I'm going to read you what he articulated in the recipe verbatim so that you can hear how he laid out the recipe in his own words. He enumerated the points 1 through 10. 1. Remain a short haul carrier under two hour segments. 2. Utilize the 737 as our primary aircraft for 10 to 12 years. 3. Continued high aircraft utilization and quick turns, 10 minutes in most cases. 4. The passenger is our number one product. Do not carry air freight or mail. Only small packages which have high profitability and low handling costs. 5. Continued low fares and high frequency of service. 6. Stay out of food services. 7. No interlining. Costs in ticketing, tariffs, and computers and our unique airports do not lend themselves to interlining. 8. Retain Texas as our number one priority and only go interstate if high-density, short-haul markets are available to us. 9. Keep the family and people feeling in our service and a fun atmosphere aloft. We're proud of our employees. And 10. Keep it simple. Continue cash register tickets. 10-minute cancellation of reservations at the gate in order to clear standbys. Simplified computer system. Free drinks in executive service. Free coffee and donuts in the boarding area. No seat selection on board. Tape-recorded passenger manifest. Bring airplanes and crews home to Dallas each night. Only one domicile and maintenance facility. Now pause for a moment and just reflect on that list. What strikes you about it? Notice that Putnam didn't issue some bland, generic, Southwest Airlines will be a leading low-cost airline vacuous statement. He specified two-hour segments. He specified 737s. He specified 10-minute turns. He specified no air, freight, or mail. He specified no food service. He specified no interlining. He specified no seat selection. He specified cash 
register receipts. Putnam's 10 points are easy to grasp, articulate, follow, and understand what to do and what not to do. Putnam laid out a clear, simple, and concrete framework for decisions and action. Notice also, Putnam's 10 points reflect insight based upon empirical validation. Remember our old friend, empirical validation, about what works. Take the idea of only 737s. Why would only 737s make sense? Why does that work? Well, all your pilots can fly all your jets, allowing for immense scheduling flexibility. You need only one set of parts, one set of training manuals, one set of maintenance procedures, one set of flight simulators, one type of jetway, one procedure for boarding. But the truly amazing thing about Putnam's list is its consistency over time. In total, the elements on the Putnam list, the ingredients in the recipe, changed only about 20% in a quarter of a century. Now, just, just stop and think about that for a moment. Only a 20% change, despite a series of disruptive events, from fuel shocks to air traffic control strikes, massive industry mergers, the rise of the hub-and-spoke model, recessions, interest rate spikes, the internet, and 9-11. Yet, while stunningly consistent, the recipe also evolved never through wholesale revolution, but in careful steps. Southwest did eventually add flights longer than two hours, embraced internet booking, and interlined with Iceland Air. If Southwest had become rigid, close-minded, uncurious, never amending Putnam's points as needed, it would not have become a 10x case. Still, what most stands out is how much of the list Southwest kept intact. Smack recipe. Howard Putnam's 10 points form a smack recipe. A smack recipe is a set of durable operating practices that create a replicable and consistent success formula. The word smack, capital S, capital M, small a, capital C, stands for specific, methodical, and consistent. You can use the term smack as a descriptor in any number of ways. You can use it as an adjective. Let's build a smack system. As a noun, smack lowers risk. And as a verb, let's smack this project. A solid smack recipe is the operating code for turning broad strategic concepts into reality a set of practices that are more enduring than mere tactics. See, tactics change from situation to situation, whereas smack practices can last for decades and apply across a wide range of circumstances. Morton and I used to believe in an inevitable trade-off between specificity and durability. If you want to have durable precepts to live by, we believe they needed to be more general, like core values or high-level strategy. But on the other hand, if you wanted specific practices, 
they needed to change frequently as conditions change, like tactics do. Yet, through this research, we learned that it is possible to develop practices that are both specific and durable. Smack practices. A smack practice is not the same as a strategy, culture, core values, purpose, or tactics. Fly only 737s. Is fly only 737s a core value? No. Is fly only 737s a core purpose, a reason for being? No. Is fly only 737s a broad, high-level strategy? No. Is fly only 737s a culture? No. Is fly only 737s a tactic to be changed frequently from situation to situation? No. Think about this. More than 30 years after Putnam laid out his 10 points, 30 years in an industry that has been upended time and again, Southwest still flew only 737s. A smack recipe also includes practices not to do. Putnam's list has clear not to do points. Don't interline, serve food, author first-class seats, or carry air freight. Putnam grasped that adding any of these services would complicate the process of getting the planes turned around fast. All the 10X company's smack recipes contained things not to do. Do not use loss reserves to manage earnings at Progressive. Do not wait to develop perfect software to enter the market. Get good enough to launch and then improve. Microsoft. Do not be the first with new innovations, but also not the last. Stay one fad behind. Stryker. Do not cut R&D during industry recessions. Intel. Do not hype. Better to make people angry by underestimating your next success than by overestimating. Amgen. Do not grant stock options to the CEO, but only to employees. Biomet. The clarity and specificity of a smack recipe helps people keep their bearings and sustain high performance when in extreme conditions. Let's go back to David Brashears on Everest. Over the years, leading up to the IMAX project, he developed a smack recipe for filmmaking in the high mountains. He went to a 50 degree below zero freezer in Toronto to develop specific protocols for handling the IMAX camera in extreme cold assessing how the batteries would perform and practicing loading the 65mm film with bare hands. See, because even on the top of Everest, he had to load the camera with bare hands to minimize any chance of malfunction. He created an idiot checklist for working and moving the camera in extreme conditions and unusual situations. He systematically developed a supply list that eliminated any weight that didn't directly contribute to the IMAX project or to safety. He then refined all his methods on a 160-mile, 28-day trek in Nepal the year before the Everest descent. By the time he and his team were filming on Everest, they knew exactly what to do and precisely how to do it. On May 23, 1996, Brashears and his team stood on top of Everest 
with the IMAX camera. One mistake, a dropped piece of camera equipment, a malfunction, a bungled film feed could wipe out years of effort and millions of dollars expended. We worked slowly and methodically, just as we had for the past 60 days, explained brochures of the crucial moment. Barehanded, I threaded the film again. Then, at the apex of the world, Robert and I went over our camera checklist one last time. Smack. Let me share with you some of the elements in David Brashear's Smack recipe. And just listen to this and see how it's very similar to Putnam's 10 points. Very different environment, but it has that recipe feel. One, create a binder with individual tabs for all facets of the expedition, including backup plans and sometimes even backup plans to the backup plans for everything that can plausibly go wrong. Two, perform the idiot check every time you move locations. Conduct a 360 degree spin to make sure you haven't left anything behind. Three, thread the camera with bare hands, no matter how cold, to ensure a perfect shot every time. Four, be able to assemble the camera, mount it on the tripod, load and thread the film, aim and shoot in five minutes flat. Five, test all equipment in real conditions, sub-zero freezer and simulation trips before the actual expedition. Six, always optimize weight and functionality. Carry the least amount of mass without sacrificing function or safety. Seven, in selecting teammates, choose people to get stranded with. Eight, always bring backups for critical gear and supplies, extra oxygen, extra crampons, extra mittens, and extra supplies. Be prepared to stay longer than planned. Nine, never let a weak member attempt to summit. A team is only as strong as its weakest member. And ten, have two separate teams, climbers and filmmakers, that work well together on the mountain. In a world full of big, fast-moving forces and unrelenting uncertainty, 10Xers accept with stoic equanimity what they cannot control. Yet they exert extreme control when they can. One of the most crucial ways they exert control in an out-of-control world is by being incredibly smack. The more unforgiving your world, the more smack you need to be. A smack recipe forces order amidst chaos. It imposes consistency when you're slammed by disruption. Operating in a turbulent world without a smack recipe is like being lost in the wilderness in the middle of a storm without a compass. Now you might be thinking, okay, I get the chapter. The primary finding here is to have a smack recipe. But in fact, the existence of a recipe per se did not systematically distinguish the 10x companies from the comparison companies. Rather, the principal finding, and this is the key part of the chapter, is how the 10x companies 
adhered to their recipes with fanatic discipline to a far greater degree than the comparisons, and how they carefully amended their recipes with empirical creativity and productive paranoia. So now we're back to the triangle. You have the fanatic discipline to adhere to the recipe, and you have the ability to bring empirical creativity and productive paranoia to bear for amending the recipe. Adhering to the smack recipe with fanatic discipline. The 10x companies kept any given recipe ingredient in the mix for more than 20 years on average, with a range from 8 to 40 plus years. Durable indeed. We found a fascinating contrast in the comparison cases. Most of the comparisons displayed some version of a smack recipe during their best years of performance. Only one comparison company, and that being Kirshner, never had one at all. But the comparisons changed their recipes to a much greater degree than the 10x cases. When Morton and I disaggregated all the recipes and analyzed 117 recipe elements, ingredients if you will, across the 10x and comparison cases, we found that the comparisons changed four times more than the 10x cases. Let me go through the specifics. So we're looking over the entire era of analysis for each company, and I'm going to tell you how much the smack recipe changed for the 10x company, and how much the comparison company changed its smack recipe. The percentages here are a little bit approximate, sort of rounded to about a 5%, but they'll give you the basic idea. 10x company. Amgen changed its recipe 10%. Genentech, the comparison, changed its recipe 60%. Biomat, 10x company, changed its recipe only 10%. For its comparison company, we can't say because it's the one comparison that we never found a smack recipe. Intel changed its smack recipe as a 10x company 20%. AMD, in the same industry, changed its 65%. Microsoft, during the era of analysis when Microsoft won big, changed its recipe 15%. And Apple, during its comparison era when it nearly killed itself, changed its recipe 60%. And we will return to how Apple got back to its original recipe under Steve Jobs a little bit later. Progressive, a 10x company, changed its recipe 20%, compared to Safeco, which changed its recipe 70%. Southwest Airlines changed its recipe, as we discussed earlier, about 20%. And PSA changed its recipe 70%. Stryker changed its recipe 10%, whereas its comparison, USSC, changed its recipe 55%. Now, just pause for a moment and, and, and just reflect on this. We deliberately studied chaotic, rapidly changing, full of disruption, turbulent, unstable, unpredictable environments, environments that are just characterized by constant tumult and change. And yet we find, at the smack recipe level, much less change in those companies that won. That's just fascinating. We wouldn't expect this. We didn't expect this, but we found it. 
Now you might be thinking, okay, but wait a minute. Perhaps the comparison cases had truly inferior operating models. And they changed more because they hadn't yet found a great one. Ah, but think back on PSA. Recall from Chapter 4, the Bullets and Cannonballs chapter, how Southwest Airlines began as a copy, even a photocopy, of PSA, right down to the operating manuals. So here we have two airlines, both facing deregulation, both facing a disruptive environment, both with fabulous core markets, both with nearly identical recipes. And yet, only Southwest endured as a great company in the two decades after deregulation. PSA reacted to deregulation by deciding it needed to become more like United Airlines. Here, in an amazing twist of irony, we have PSA moving away from its proven recipe just as Southwest began to build momentum in Texas. Using the same proven recipe and having invented it, PSA should have become the most successful airline in history. Yet it sold out to U.S. Air. Life is tough for an independent airline at the best of times, said PSA's president, ending the company's independent life with a whimper. We could have gone it alone, but it made more sense for us to accept U.S. Air's very reasonable offer. Now, here's a very interesting twist to the story. Analysts and the media began chanting that Southwest, the genetic twin of PSA's original concept, also needed to change its formula. That Putnam's simple list needed major revision. Otherwise, it might go down like PSA. A growing chorus of critics says the 56-year-old Kelleher needs to rethink its keep-it-simple strategy. By this point, Kelleher had become CEO. Wrote Business Week in 1987. The Wall Street Transcript quoted analysts saying that Southwest could no longer be viewed as a growth company, its model running out of opportunity. Herb Kelleher responded to this pressure to revolutionize the airline, much as General McAuliffe responded to the German surrender ultimatum at the Battle of the Bulge. Nuts! Kelleher understood why each ingredient in Putnam's list worked. And he understood that the Southwest model would still apply in an increasingly competitive airline industry. He kept most of the recipe intact. Again, think back to those behaviors in the triangle, the fanatic discipline and the empirical creativity, which then leads 10x leaders to have the ability to make their own decisions. They don't respond to what the media tells them to do. They don't respond to what analysts tell them to do. They don't respond to outside experts in and of themselves. They don't defer to all of that. They think for themselves. They have an independent mind that allows them to be disciplined with what they understand works. That's exactly what was happening here. Southwest Airlines, of course, went on to become one of the most admired companies in the world, while PSA became irrelevant, then forgotten. The PSA spirit endured, but deep in the heart of Texas. Conventional wisdom says that change is hard. But if change is so difficult, why do we see more evidence of radical change in the less successful comparison cases? Because 
Change is not the difficult part. Let me repeat that. Change is not the most difficult part. Far more difficult than implementing change is figuring out what works, understanding why it works, grasping when to change, and knowing when not to. Let's now return to Apple. The fall and rise of Apple illustrates the danger of straying from a recipe and the value of restoring it. By the mid-1990s, Apple had fallen far from its glorious early days, when it had brought forth the Apple II and then the Mac, the computer for the rest of us. Beset by chronic inconsistency, it had a revolving door at the top. John Scully ousted Steve Jobs in 1985. Michael Spindler replaced John Scully in 1993. Gil Emilio replaced Michael Spindler in 1996. Apple also lurched back and forth in its positioning. Computers for the rest of us. Ah, then computers for business. Then premium-priced BMWs of computers. Then low-cost machines in a high-market-share strategy. Then back again to premium machines. Apple's stock returns fell behind the general stock market, in stark contrast to Microsoft's upward march. Microsoft, in contrast to Apple, during this time, showed an unwavering consistency, consistency in leadership, consistency in purpose, consistency in strategy, consistency in recipe. By 1993, Apple had fallen so far behind that a technology conference featured a panel of venture capitalist and computer industry experts debating a hot topic. Will Apple Computer Survive? Apple eventually began serious talks with companies like Sun Microsystems about selling itself, itching to fire a bullet into the head of its own independence. It looked like Apple's quest to be a great company would die an inglorious death. But as we now know, the story turned out differently, with a turnaround beginning in 1997. And here's the really interesting part. Steve Jobs didn't so much revolutionize the company as he returned it to the principles he'd used to launch the company from garage to greatness two decades earlier. The great thing is that Apple's DNA hasn't changed said Steve Jobs in 2005. And it's not just its larger purpose, but also many of its recipe ingredients. For example, allow no one else to clone our products. Design our products so they work seamlessly together. Make design friendly and elegant. Obsess about secrecy and then do big launches to capture pent-up excitement. Don't enter any business where we don't control the primary technology. Design for and market to individuals, not businesses. All of these practices were in place during Apple's early days and were then brought back to life during Apple's rebirth two decades later. Apple fell behind during its dark days not because its original recipe no longer worked, but because it lacked 
the fanatic discipline to adhere to its original recipe. Steve Jobs' genius notwithstanding, Apple roared back because it returned, this time with fanatic discipline, to the essence of its original recipe. As John Scully commented in a 2010 interview, reflecting upon the resurgence of Apple under the leadership of the very man he'd ousted 25 years earlier, quote, the same principles Steve is so rigorous about now are the identical ones he was using then, unquote. When faced with declining results, 10Xers do not first assume that their principles and methods have become obsolete. That's what comparisons do. Rather, they first consider whether the enterprise has perhaps strayed from its recipe or has foregone discipline and rigor in adhering to the recipe. If so, they see the remedy in reconnecting with the underlying insights behind the recipe and reigniting passion for adhering to it. That's what Steve Jobs did. They ask, is our recipe no longer working because we've lost discipline? Or is it no longer working because our circumstances have fundamentally changed? John Wooden, the great UCLA basketball coach who produced 10 NCAA championship teams in 12 years during the 1960s and 1970s, perfectly exemplified the power of consistency. In the fascinating film documentary, The UCLA Dynasty, one player recalled, There was a way to do everything. You could have taken UCLA people who played in 55, 65, 70, and 75, put them on the same team, and they would have been able to play with each other instantly. Wooden ran his drills from the same set of 3x5 cards with rare modifications over the course of three decades. Drills would start and end like clockwork. The same drills performed before the national championship as at the beginning of the season. So that in the words of a star player, by the time the games came along, they just became memorized exhibitions of brilliance. Wooden translated his Pyramid of Success, a philosophy of life and competition, into a detailed recipe, right down to how players should tie their shoes. Picture yourself as a star basketball player recruited to UCLA. You show up at the first practice session, ready to show your skills, to earn your spot, to run up and down the court, to slam the ball through the hoop, to leap and jump and spin. You sidle up next to a senior who'd earned all American honors and wait for the coach to get the drills going. The coach comes out and opens the first moments of practice in a quiet voice. We will begin by learning how to tie our shoes. You look over to a couple of famous seniors, all Americans, who've already won national championships, thinking this must be some kind of freshman initiation. But no, the seniors calmly begin taking off their shoes and preparing for the shoe-tying lesson. First, put your socks slowly with care over your toes, says the coach. The seniors diligently follow instructions. Now move your socks up here and here, Smooth out all the wrinkles, nice and tight. Take your time. The coach intones his lesson, 
like some sort of far-out Zen master teaching you how to make tea as a path to higher enlightenment. Then lace your shoes from the bottom, carefully, slowly, getting each pass nice and tight, snug, 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 snug. After the lesson, you ask one of the All-American seniors what that was all about, and he says, Get a blister in a big game and you're going to suffer. Shoes come untied in a close game? Well, that just never happens here. One year later, you come to practice. Having helped create yet another national championship, noting the surprised looks on freshman faces when the coach announces, we will begin by learning how to tie our shoes. Modern management dogma exhorts that an enterprise should commit frequent wholesale revolution, that it should change more on the inside than the world is changing on the outside, that it should inflict radical change upon itself, and that it should be doing so all the time. Wrong. As Lincoln said in the dark days of the American Civil War, the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. In this stormy world, the stormy world we all live in today, we need to think anew. And that means rejecting the idea that the only path to continued prosperity lies in continuous corporate revolution. If you really want to become mediocre, if you really want to get yourself killed in a turbulent environment, then you want to be changing, morphing, leaping, and transforming yourself all the time in reaction to everything that hits you. We found in all of our research studies that the signature of mediocrity is not an unwillingness to change. Although if you refuse to change at all, you'll become obsolete. We'll come to that in a moment. But the signature of mediocrity is chronic inconsistency. Keep in mind the premise of this study, the whole premise of this research. The world is in a state of uncertainty and instability full of rapid change and dramatic disruptions. Yet when we conducted our research through this very lens of extreme change and turmoil, we found that the 10x companies changed their recipes less than the comparisons. This doesn't mean 10x leaders are complacent. Productive paranoids, infused with fanatic discipline and fired up by empirical creativity in pursuit of level 5 ambitions, don't have any conception of complacency. 10Xers are truly obsessed, driven people. It's just that they accomplish their huge goals by adhering with great discipline to what they know works, while simultaneously worrying, for they always worry about what might no longer work in a changing environment. When conditions truly call for a change, they respond by amending the recipe. Amending the smack recipe. Paranoid, creative, consistency. Suppose we asked you to catalog everything in your world that's changing. How long a list would you need? Just consider a few categories. How is the economy changing? How are the markets changing? How are fashions changing? How is technology changing? How is the political landscape changing? How are laws and regulations changing? 
How are societal norms changing? How is your line of work changing? The amount of change swirling about is both gigantic and, for most people, accelerating. If we tried to react to every single external change, we'd quickly find ourselves incapacitated. Most change is just noise and requires no fundamental change in ourselves. Yet, some change is not noise, demanding that we adjust and evolve, else we face demise, catastrophe, or missed opportunities. A great company must evolve its recipe, revising selected elements when conditions merit, while keeping most of its recipe intact. In 1985, Intel faced a bleak reality in its memory chip business, also called DRAMs, and I might use both terms, DRAMs and memory chips. Japanese competitors had thrown the industry into a brutal price war, driving prices down by 80% in two years. Intel leadership eventually had to confront a brutal fact. The memory business no longer offered anything but bleeding and misery. Fortunately, Intel had fired bullets on another business, microprocessors. Beginning in 1969, when engineer Ted Hoff put all the computing functions on a single chip. Over the subsequent 16 years, Intel had gradually built momentum in microprocessors, increasing market share, growing profits, and gaining empirical validation that microprocessors offered a huge, viable business for Intel. In a decision first made famous by Stanford professor Robert Bergelman, who is the world's leading authority on Intel's strategic evolution, Andy Grove and Gordon Moore debated what to do about the declining memory chip business. Grove zoomed out and posed a hypothetical question to Moore. If we were replaced and new management came in, what would they do? Moore thought about it for a moment, then answered, Get out of DRAMs. So, said Grove, let's go through the revolving door. Come back in, shut down the memory business, and just do it ourselves. And that's exactly what they did, throwing their full attention into the microprocessor business. This was a very big change for Intel. Yet at the same time, Intel kept intact most of the other ingredients in its recipe. Like Howard Putnam's list, Intel had a 10-point recipe. One of those points, for example, just to illustrate the kinds of things that are in the 10-point recipe, is point three. We will achieve Moore's Law by A, increasing chip size through reducing random defects, B, creating circuit innovations that allow for higher functional density, and C, making circuit units smaller. Now, I know that's not particularly exciting if you're not an electrical engineer, but it illustrates, again, that they've got a very specific recipe. And we could go through all the points on Intel's recipe. What I want you to understand is that they have a recipe, and they had a recipe heading into 1985. One element of their recipe, which is point one, was a concentration on integrated electronics where all the functions are supplied to the customer as irreducible units. And the early version of that was with a focus on DRAM memory chips. 
Now, when you stand back and you look at this great disruption that hit the semiconductor industry and the memory chip business in 1985, when you go through the 10 points on Intel's smack recipe, you find that every one of them did not change with the exception of the focus on DRAM memory chips. So if you look at the recipe before they got out of DRAMs and you look at the recipe after they got out of DRAMs, nine of the ten points are the same and one point is different. Certainly, if Intel had blindly stuck with memory chips, it might not have become a 10x winner. But equally true, if it had changed most of its recipe, if it had jettisoned Moore's Law, started cutting R&D, abandoned its pricing model, ruined its practice of constructive confrontation, it would not have become a 10x winner. Both parts of the story are important. The big exit from memory chips and the fact that Intel did not change other elements of its smack recipe. That brings us to a big aha that at least it was big for us. It was a kind of a breakthrough way of thinking about change that changed the way we look at the world. The Intel case illustrates a powerful genius of the AND. On the one hand, a great company changes only a small fraction of its recipe at any given time keeping the rest of it intact. Yet on the other hand, this isn't just incremental change. A smack recipe change is almost by definition a hugely significant change. By grasping this point, a 10x enterprise can achieve significant change and extraordinary continuity both at the same time. Intel's comparison case AMD presents a stark contrast. Settling upon a recipe, then throwing it out to settle upon another recipe, then replacing it with yet another, then back again. Early in its history, AMD developed a recipe principally focused on being a second source supplier and manufacturing chips to military specifications. Then in the early 1980s, Jerry Sanders concocted a new recipe, this time for asparagus. Asparagus requires more upfront investment and takes longer to grow than other crops, but yields higher prices. Stretching this analogy to microelectronics, Sanders and company shifted to making proprietary chips that required more upfront investment and took longer to develop, yet yielded higher prices, like asparagus. AMD hung an asparagus flag outside its headquarters and took out ads proclaiming, we're ready for the asparagus business. Then just a few years later, AMD shifted back to a second source strategy, although it also kept some asparagus. But then it shifted to something it called the P3 strategy, platforms, process, and production. Then, in yet another shift, it pursued something called customer-centric innovation. While none of these were bad ideas per se, in switching from one recipe to another, inflicting frequent wholesale change upon itself, AMD never gained long-term momentum. 
So, how does a 10x company know when it's time to amend its recipe? Presuming it has a really good one. With a concrete recipe in hand, it can explicitly consider the recipe's ingredients in the context of changes in the environment. It can examine the empirical evidence. What are the brutal facts? Not opinions, but facts. What bullets have we fired? What have they hit? The Intel case illustrates how firing bullets can give you a hedge against an uncertain future so that you might have a ready-made amendment ready to go when the world changes. Intel didn't react to the memory business disruption by inventing the microprocessor. It had been firing bullets for more than a decade, proving itself in microprocessors. There are two healthy approaches to amending the smack recipe. One, exercising empirical creativity, which is more internally driven. And two, exercising productive paranoia, which is more externally focused. The first, empirical creativity, involves firing bullets to discover and test a new practice before making it part of the recipe. The second, productive paranoia, employs the discipline to zoom out to perceive and assess a change in conditions and then zoom in to implement amendments as needed. Now notice, we now have all three behaviors coming to life through this smack recipe, adhering to it, and then bringing empirical creativity and productive paranoia into the mix for amending it. 10Xers employ both approaches, although the emphasis can vary depending upon the situation. In the Intel case, empirical creativity came first, firing bullets on the microprocessor, and then productive paranoia kicked in when the memory chip business became untenable. Microsoft's move to embrace the Internet in the 1990s illustrates how productive paranoia might provide the initial spark for an amendment. Prior to 1994, Microsoft built its recipe around the standalone personal computer as the center of the universe. Very important part of its recipe. Then in January 1994, a 25-year-old Microsoft engineer named James J. Allard sounded an alarm, pointing out that two new systems were being added to the Internet with every passing minute, with a new network connecting up every 40 minutes. A month later, one of Microsoft's technical generals visited Cornell University and seeing firsthand how all the kids were connected to the Internet, followed up with an email to Bill Gates. Cornell is wired. Sensing a change in conditions, just like David Brashear's on Everest, Gates zoomed out. In fact, Gates had a zoom-out mechanism already in place. He'd set aside an entire week each year to go away for intense reading and reflection, his Think Week. Gates dedicated his April 1994 Think Week to the Internet. He also stimulated his team to zoom out, calling a retreat of the Microsoft Brain Trust to assess the threat. What are the facts? Does this require a major change? Is this real or is it hype? Are we threatened? The discussions, debates, and yelling matches persisted over the course of months. Finally, Microsoft came to see that the Internet did indeed represent a fundamental change in the environment and a serious threat.
Microsoft would need to fully embrace a wired world. Then Microsoft zoomed in. Gates wrote a memo, eight pages, single-spaced, entitled The Internet Tidal Wave, in which he described his own evolution. Having gone through several stages of increasing my views as to the Internet's importance, he wrote. He then redirected Microsoft to the Internet, pushing his teams to go overboard on Internet features and sending more than 500 programmers on a speed march to develop a browser that would later be known as Internet Explorer. The memo became the stuff of legend, the story of how a visionary founder revolutionized his company, turning the battleship 180 degrees overnight. And it makes for fascinating reading. It's also misleading. Just as Intel handled its transition to microprocessors, Microsoft kept intact most of the recipe that had made it successful prior to the rise of the Internet. Microsoft did not abandon its focus on software. It did not abandon its belief in standards. It did not abandon its approach of launching imperfect products and then improving them. It did not abandon its price-for-volume strategy. It did not abandon its commitment to open systems. It did not abandon the practice of internal yelling matches, the testing ground for letting the best ideas win. It did not abandon Windows. It did not abandon applications. It was a huge change for Microsoft to embrace the Internet, and yet most of Microsoft's recipe remained intact. Did Microsoft make a big change to its recipe? Yes. Did Microsoft keep most of its recipe intact? Yes. Again, 10Xers reject the choice between consistency and change. They embrace consistency and change, both at the same time. Consistency and change. The great human tension. When the framers of the United States Constitution convened in Philadelphia in 1787, they wrestled with a profound question how to create a practical framework that would be both flexible and durable. Go too far in one direction, putting in too many specific strictures, and the Constitution would become either a straitjacket or irrelevant. The framers couldn't possibly predict how the world would change. Having no capacity to even anticipate or envision automobiles, airplanes, talk radio, cable news, the internet, the civil rights movement, nuclear weapons, birth control pills, the rise of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Soviet Union, jazz, multi-million dollar athletes on strike, American dependence on foreign oil, or 9-11. Go too far in the other direction, providing only broad and general guidelines, and the Constitution would lack teeth and failed to provide the practical guideposts that meld a diverse group of people and individual states into a single union. There must be a coherent, consistent, enduring framework holding the enterprise together, preventing disintegration into a squabbling group of independent little countries. So they came up with an ingenious invention the amendment mechanism. 
one of the first of its type in human history. The mechanism would allow the Constitution to evolve organically, enabling future generations to make adjustments when situations arose that the Founders could not possibly envision. Equally important, they designed the mechanism to ensure stability, creating a very high hurdle for change. After the first Ten Amendments, the Bill of Rights, in 1791, there were only 17, 17, less than 20, 17 amendments in the next 220 years. The framers had made amendments rare by design, requiring a two-thirds majority in the House of Representatives, a two-thirds majority in the Senate, and then ratification by three-fourths of the individual states. Think of everything that happened between 1791 and 2011. And yet the Constitution was amended only 17 times. The authors of the Constitution clearly understood that change must be possible. But they also understood that a great nation must have a consistent framework to work from, especially, especially, in a radically changing and utterly unpredictable world. Any enterprise, whether a company, society, nation, church, social venture, school, hospital, military unit, orchestra, team, or any other human organization, faces a constant struggle to find the balance between continuity and change. No human enterprise can succeed at the highest levels without consistency. If you bring no coherent, unifying concept and disciplined methodology to your endeavors, you'll be whipsawed by changes in your environment and cede your fate to forces outside of your control. Equally true, however, no human enterprise can succeed at the highest levels without productive evolution. We came to see the way 10X Enterprises reconciled this great human tension as similar to the way the framers thought about the Constitution and the amendment mechanism. You need concrete rules of the road to guide decisions, providing a coherent framework and consistency over time. And you need to take the time to get those rules right building them upon a savvy understanding about what actually works. In 1787, the new nation sent some of its very best people to Philadelphia for four months to work out the details of the Constitution. The Declaration of Independence provided the idealism. We hold these truths to be self-evident. But the Constitution needed to realistically take into account how people and power actually work, about the underlying forces of self-interest, about the necessity of checks and balances, about the dangers of reactionary masses, about the value of compromise. And it needed a mechanism for change.
Changes to a solid and proven smack recipe are like amendments to the Constitution. If you get the recipe right, based on practical insight and empirical validation, it should serve you well for a very long time. Equally important, fundamental changes must be possible. Continually question and challenge your recipe, but change it rarely. Greatness comes to those who keep moving forward, figuring out what works, driving down Moore's Law, advancing the Southwest Airlines model across the country, cracking the code for EPO, marching relentlessly to make Windows a standard, making computers and MP3 players that we'd want for ourselves. Those who spend most of their energy reacting to change will do exactly that, expend most of their energy reacting to change. In a great twist of irony, those who bring about the most significant change in the world, those who have the largest impact on the economy and society, are themselves enormously consistent in their approach. They aren't dogmatic or rigid. They're disciplined. They're creative. They're paranoid. They're smack. Chapter Summary Smack Key Points Smack, capital S, capital M, small a, capital C stands for specific, methodical, and consistent. The more uncertain, fast-changing, and unforgiving your environment, the more smack you need to be. A smack recipe is a set of durable operating practices that create a replicable and consistent success formula. It is clear and concrete, enabling the entire enterprise to unify and organize its efforts, giving clear guidance regarding what to do and what not to do. A smack recipe reflects empirical validation and insight about what actually works and why. Howard Putnam's 10 points at Southwest Airlines perfectly illustrates the idea. Developing a smack recipe, adhering to it, and amending it rarely, when conditions merit, correlate with 10x success. This requires the three 10xer behaviors. Empirical creativity for developing and evolving it, fanatic discipline for sticking to it, and productive paranoia for sensing necessary changes. All but one of the comparison cases also had solid recipes during their best years yet they lacked the discipline to implement them with creative consistency, often making reactionary lurches in response to turbulent times. Amendments to a smack recipe can be made to one element or ingredient while leaving the rest of the recipe intact. Like making amendments to an enduring constitution, this approach allows you to facilitate dramatic change and simultaneously maintain extraordinary consistency. Managing the tension between consistency and change is one of the great challenges for any human enterprise.
there are two healthy approaches to amending a smack recipe. One, exercising empirical creativity, which is more internally driven, fire bullets than cannonballs. And two, exercising productive paranoia, especially zoom out then zoom in, which is more externally focused. Unexpected findings. It is possible to develop specific concrete practices that can endure for decades. Smack practices, like fly only 737s. Once they had their smack recipes, the 10x cases changed them only by an average of 15% compared to 60% for the comparison cases over their respective eras of analysis. And any given element of a 10x recipe lasted on average for more than two decades. This is a stunning finding, given that all the companies in the study, 10x cases and comparisons alike, faced rapid change and unrelenting uncertainty. Far more difficult than implementing change is figuring out what works, understanding why it works, grasping when to change, and knowing when not to. And one key question for you. What is your smack recipe? And does it need amending? Chapter 7. Return on Luck. Chapter Quote. Look, if you had one shot, or one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it or just let it slip? Marshall Bruce Mathers III from the song Lose Yourself. In May 1999, Malcolm Daly and Jim Danini stood 3,000 feet up an unclimbed face on Thunder Mountain in Alaska, only a few hundred feet below the summit. Daly offered to let Danini go first on the rope to experience the joy of reaching the summit first. But Danini said, No, you keep it. You are the one who deserves the gift. Less than an hour later, Daly would be dangling at the end of the rope. Legs shattered, just beginning an epic fight for his life. A life that would be forever transformed by losing one of his feet. Daly climbed toward the summit, swinging his ice axe like a giant claw, kicking knife-like spikes attached to his boots, called crampons, into the ice, moving methodically up the near-vertical wall. He dragged the safety rope, knotted to his waist harness, along behind him, while Danini remained anchored to the wall, feeding the rope through a friction device that would snap tight if the rope suddenly jerked, much like a car seatbelt that would seize tight in a crash. The plan? Daly would climb to the summit ridge, placing protection points along the way, mainly in the form of what are called ice screws twisted into the frozen, solid sheets of ice. Then anchor himself to the top of the mountain and hold the safety rope while Danini climbed up to meet him. With only about 15 feet of steep climbing to go, Daly reached a section of rock where he could place no protection. 
No problem, though. The final few feet of climbing looked easy. Daly placed his left hand on a big jut of rock, groping about with his right hand, looking for another hold, thinking to himself, Gosh, this next move is it, and there are no more moves on the route. We are essentially up. Something gave way. He fell. Ten feet, twenty feet, ice screws ripped out, forty feet, a hundred feet, still falling. The rope whipped. The gear clangled as Daly bounced and flew. He smashed into his partner, puncturing Danini's right thigh with the pointed teeth of his crampons. Daly hurtled past, still falling, sixty more feet. Something sharp sliced the rope. Ten of twelve core strands of rope severed right through. If the remaining two were to break, Daly cratered into the mountainside, the two remaining strands of cord less than two millimeters thick, stretched, but didn't break. Daly stopped, a crumpled lump. Malcolm, Malcolm, are you okay? Are you alive? yelled Danini, thinking that Daly must be dead. Daly didn't respond. Danini kept yelling. No response. Then, finally, Daly regained consciousness. Blood dripped from his scalp. He looked at his lower legs and feet, shattered with compound fractures, feet flopping around, useless. Daly felt the ends of busted bones rubbing together. Danini descended to Daly, and they tried to engineer a self-rescue, but soon realized that any movement could worsen the compound fractures, and Daly might bleed to death. Daly told Danini, "You have to go get a rescue." After anchoring Daly to the wall, Danini took off on a three thousand foot solo descent. Within minutes after Danini reached base camp at the bottom of the mountain, he heard something quite unexpected. His friend Paul Roderick of the Talkeetna Air Taxi and Expedition Support Service just happened to be flying by that particular valley at that particular moment. Danini waved him down, and Roderick flew Danini directly to the ranger station. A plan to rescue Daly began immediately, many hours sooner than if Danini had needed to hike out to the station. Those hours proved pivotal. By the time the rescue was organized, impending storms threatened to curtail the attempt. Racing the weather, a helicopter flew up to Daly's perch, and a rescue pilot hanging from a cable below the chopper swung into the mountainside and plucked Daly off the mountain. Four hours later, a huge storm enveloped the mountain and raged on for twelve days. Luck or skill? Now ask yourself, what role did luck play in this story? There's the bad luck of Daly's seemingly solid stance, inexplicably giving way, sending him hurtling into the abyss. And there's lots of good luck. The sliced rope wasn't cut all the way through. Daly didn't die in the fall. He didn't kill Danini on the way down. Donini reached base camp just as the airplane happened to fly by, and had everything taken just five hours longer? 
that storm would have come in and Daly would not have survived. But now let's add some other pieces to the story. Malcolm Daly had prepared well in advance. He drew on tremendous physical reserves and wilderness experience, layers of fitness and strength built by thousands of hours of rigorous training, biking, climbing, running, skiing, and mountaineering. He'd also prepared mentally, reading survival literature just in case he ever ended up in a desperate battle for his life. In fact, just days before the climb, he'd been reading about Ernest Shackleton and his mission to rescue himself and his men from Elephant Island, Antarctica in 1916. Daly learned from his preparation that wallowing in your misfortune increases risk. I loved my feet, he later reflected, but there was nothing I could do that would affect the outcome of my feet other than worry about them too much and add that level of stress and then perhaps I could hurt my chances of survival. So I put that thought on a shelf. Daly made a plan to live, what he later described as a decision to live. He had to stay warm, not go hypothermic. So he set forth a regimen, do 100 windmills on one arm, swinging it around in full 360-degree circles, then 100 on the other arm, then 100 stomach crunches, then repeat without stopping, keeping his mind focused, counting precisely, not approximately 100, but exactly 100. He tired, but kept a regimen, dropping the sets to 50, then eventually 20, but always with the regimen. That daily had the stamina and tenacity to keep this up for 44 hours is certainly not luck. He had the right partner in Jim Danini, as Daly had always chosen his partners with great care, knowing that the ultimate hedge against danger and uncertainty is whom you have on the mountain with you. Danini had logged thousands of days in the mountains, from Patagonia to the Himalaya, capturing some of the most coveted first descents in climbing history. And he was one of only a handful of people in the world with the skill to descend 3,000 feet solo, without a single misstep, despite having a punctured thigh. When the rescue began, Daly prepared for the helicopter by cutting open the pack into which he'd stuffed his broken feet so they'd pull out with ease, slicing away his bloody, frozen leg coverings, and chipping away any residual ice that might have frozen something to the wall. He knew to take these steps because he'd studied helicopter rescues, and he was ready. Which brings us to perhaps the most significant element in daily survival. He'd developed relationships with people who loved him and who would risk their lives for him. The rescue leader who swung in from the helicopter, Billy Schott, was a longtime friend. When shot swung into the snow slope, his radio communications went awry, which would have normally meant an automatic abort. But shot knew he had to get his friend, his friend, off the mountain before the storm. So he made an on-the-spot switch to hand signals. Clawing at the snow with ice tools, he gouged and scampered up to Daly, snapped him into the cable, 
then signaled the helicopter to whoosh them away from the mountain. Shot held daily in a huge bear hug. As they dangled from a cable thousands of feet in the air, Shot sported a huge smile. You know who I am? Daly shook his head, unable to see his rescuer's face. Then Shot lifted his faceplate. It's Billy Shot. Daly's friend had come to save his life and deliver him to safety. Luck clearly played a role in Daly's survival. But luck didn't save Daly in the end. People did. What role luck? The very nature of this study, thriving in uncertainty, leading in chaos, dealing with a world full of big disruptive forces that we cannot predict or control, led us to the fascinating question, just what is the role of luck? And how, if at all, should luck factor into developing our strategies for survival and success? Perhaps everything we've studied and written about, what leaders and people do, accounts for the difference between only 1x and 2x success. And luck accounts for the difference between 2x and 10x. Perhaps the 10x winners really were just much luckier than the comparisons. Or perhaps not. We decided to undertake an analysis of luck, asking three basic questions. One, is luck a common or rare element in the histories of the 10x in comparison cases? Two, what role, if any, does luck play in explaining the divergent trajectories of 10x in comparison cases? And three, what can leaders do about luck? to help them build great companies on a 10x journey. But first, we had to develop a rigorous and internally consistent method for analyzing the topic, beginning with a clear definition of a luck event. We realized that people think about luck in imprecise ways, captured in common phrases like, luck is where preparation meets opportunity, or luck is the residue of design or even, the harder I work, the luckier I get. None of these oft-repeated phrases are precise enough to actually quantify and analyze and study and examine the role of luck. So, we constructed a definition that would allow us to engage directly with the topic, focusing on identifying specific luck events. We defined a luck event as one that meets three tests. Test number one, some significant aspect of the event occurs largely or entirely independent of the actions of the key actors in the enterprise. Two, the event has a potentially significant consequence, good or bad. And three, the event has some element of unpredictability. Any event that meets all three of those tests is a luck event. All three parts of the definition are important. Some significant aspect of the event must happen largely or entirely independent of the actions of the key actors. So, for example, Daly and Danini did not cause Paul Roderick to fly by in his airplane at just the right moment, 
It was a huge luck event, especially given the time pressure to get daily off the mountain before a looming storm. The second part of the definition, the event must have a potentially significant consequence, good or bad. Consider the two uncut rope strands that stopped Daly's fall. And third, the event must have some element of unpredictability. So, for example, Daly didn't foresee that his seemingly solid stance would give way, sending him hurtling on a 200-foot fall. Yet notice how other details of the Daily Danini story do not qualify as luck. They fail the three tests somehow. Daly's 44-hour marathon of sit-ups and arm circles was an act of sheer will and incredible fitness. Donini's successful 3,000-foot solo descent down the face of the mountain was a matter of skill and experience. Daly's friends would risk their lives to save his, not because of luck, but because they knew he would have done the same for them. Our definition of luck leaves unaddressed the possible explanations for the event's ultimate cause. Whether the luck event results from randomness, accident, complexity, providence, or any other force doesn't matter for the sake of our analysis. You could look at the two unbroken strands of Daly's rope as pure chance, or you could look at it as a miracle. As long as an event meets the three dimensions of our definition, whatever its cause, it qualifies as a luck event. We developed a method that considered the significance of each luck event to account for the fact that some events have greater impact than others, taking care to be consistent in our analysis within each pair. Analyzing luck is difficult and perhaps novel. By applying a consistent methodology to both members of each matched pair, we were able to use evidence-based analysis to attack this otherwise elusive topic. Focusing on the question, did the 10x company get more good luck or less bad luck than the comparison company? For each company in the study, we looked at all of the events that would qualify as luck events. And then we analyzed them in total, comparing across the two sets. To illustrate what we did, and we were very rigorous, Morton and I sat around for most of a summer, going through all of our research data and all of the events and all of the histories of the companies, and really rigorously pinning down in each case is this a luck event? Is it not a luck event? Does it meet the test? Does it fail a test? And also within each luck event, you may find that some piece of the event doesn't fully qualify as luck, but some piece inside it does qualify as luck. And then that's what you would count. We were absolutely consistent and rigorous across the whole set. So let me illustrate with a few examples of what we did. And it played out across a large number of luck events, but I want to give you, the listener, a feel for how we went at this. So if we take, for example, the company Amgen, let's take an event. In 1981, a Taiwanese scientist named Fukin Lin just happened to see and respond to a small help-wanted classified advertisement placed by Amgen. Now, Amgen could neither control who saw the ad nor predict 
that one of the respondents would be a genius, with the ferocity to persist against all odds and skeptics to lead to the EPO gene breakthrough. Now, in analyzing this, this is a very important luck event in Amgen's history. Let's be very clear. Amgen's decision to take out a classified ad isn't luck. That's something they did. That Fu Kin Lin happened to see the ad at the precise moment that he was looking for a job opportunity. That is luck. And that Fu Kin Lin happened to turn out to be the genius that would crack EPO. So you see, we broke each case down into what's the one piece of this that meets all of our tests. So another example, in 1982, the biotechnology industry experienced a downturn. Well, that wasn't caused by Amgen. It was potentially significant and especially significant because it invested investor sentiment and funding options for the fledgling company. And Amgen had planned to go public around that time. So you see, here you have an event that happened outside of their control, the downturn in the industry, potentially significant consequence, and it wasn't foreseen. That was a luck event. So we went through and we did this for every company. So if we go over to the comparison company, Genentech, in 1980, Time Magazine dedicated an entire page to Genentech's impending public stock offering. The offering then far exceeded expectations, becoming one of the first supernova public offerings in modern business history, a Netscape or a Google IPO of its time, with its stock price rising more than 150% from $35 to $89 in less than a day. That Genentech had a successful IPO isn't luck. That its stock jumped 150% in a day was unexpected, uncontrollable, and significant luck. We became increasingly excited by this analysis, curious to see just what the data would show. After all, to our knowledge, no one had ever taken on the topic of luck in this way. We didn't know what the evidence would yield. Using our definition, we identified and systematically coded 230, a large number, 230 significant luck events for the 10x and comparison cases. All the companies had good luck and bad luck. Luck happens a lot. But here's the key question. Does luck play a differentiating role? an explanatory role, a definitive role in creating 10x success. To get at this question, we looked through multiple lenses. First, we considered whether the 10x cases got substantially more good luck than the comparison cases. As a general rule, the answer was no. The 10x cases averaged 7 significant good luck events, and the comparison cases averaged eight significant good luck events across the era of analysis, with no evidence that the 10x cases got substantially more good luck events than the comparisons. When we summed up all the data, we found that the comparison cases had 56 significant good luck events across the set, and the 10x cases had slightly fewer. 49 significant good luck events. Looking across the pairs, it looked like this. Amgen had 10 significant good luck events. Genentech had 18. 
Biomed had four. Kirshner had four. Intel had seven. AMD had eight. Microsoft had 15. Apple had 14. Progressive had three. Safeco had one. Southwest had eight. PSA had six. Stryker had two. USSC had five. The average for the 10X7, for the comparison case, eight. The point of all that is, look, they both got a lot of good luck. But there's, of course, another side of the coin. What about bad luck? Did the comparison cases get more bad luck than the 10X cases? As a general rule, the answer was no. The analysis showed similar levels of bad luck, each group averaging about nine bad luck events. In fact, the 10X cases across the whole set had 65 bad luck events, significant bad luck events. The comparisons had 60. And it broke up as follows. Amgen had 9. Genentech had 9. Biomet had 7. Kirshner had 4. Intel had 14. AMD had 11. Microsoft had 9. Apple had 7. Progressive had 8. Safeco had 10. Southwest had 13. PSA had 13. Stryker had 5. USSC had 6. See? They both got significant amounts of bad luck. So, now we have significant number of good luck events and significant number of bad luck events spread across all the companies in the study. But, of course, this leaves another question. What about a single luck event that is just huge? Not just the number of luck events, but suppose one luck event is a luck spike that just explains nearly all the success of a 10x company relative to its comparison. But in only one pair, Intel versus AMD, did we see a huge luck spike on one side of the pair without a corresponding comparable luck spike on the other side of the pair. And that luck spike was IBM selecting the Intel microprocessor for its personal computer. And yet even in this case, Intel's three decades of sustained success cannot be fully explained by this individual luck event, especially given the company's earned reputation that Intel delivers, solidly in place since the early 1970s. As a general finding, both the 10x cases and the comparisons each got some big good luck events and some big bad luck events. The evidence does not support the hypothesis that the 10x cases won because of one gigantic piece of luck that dwarfed everything else. Finally, we analyzed the time distribution of luck, wondering if perhaps the 10x cases got their good luck early while the comparison cases got their bad luck early before they had a chance to fully establish themselves. Maybe getting really good luck when you're 20 is more important than getting really good luck when you're 50. Maybe that's the way it plays out here in the data. But again, we found no significant difference. The 10x cases did not systematically have more good luck early, and the comparisons did not have more bad luck early. 
10Xers won not because they had better early advantages or superior early luck. As a general rule, they had neither. Throughout our analysis, we were very careful to distinguish between luck and outcomes. An enterprise can get bad luck, yet create a good outcome. And equally, a company can squander good luck and get a bad outcome. The real difference between the 10x and comparison cases wasn't luck per se, but what they did with the luck they got. Adding up all the evidence, we found that the 10x cases were not generally luckier than the comparison cases. The 10x cases and the comparisons both got luck, good and bad, incomparable amounts. The evidence leads us to conclude that luck does not cause 10x success. People do. The critical question is not, are you lucky? The critical question, which we will explore in the rest of this chapter, is do you get a high return on luck? Before we move into the remainder of this chapter where we explore the framework of return on luck, I'd like to do a little sidebar, if you will, on an interesting twist of the question of luck events. Who is your best luck? In 1998, Amgen Chairman Gordon Binder gave a speech at the Newcomen Society in which he identified perhaps the defining moment in the Amgen story. And what did he pick? Early venture funding, Amgen's IPO, FDA approval of Blockbuster EPO, some other major product? Nope. The, quote, defining moment, unquote, came when Taiwanese scientist Fu Kin Lin just happened to see and respond to that help-wanted ad. When George Rathman drove into the company parking lot one morning before dawn in 1982, he spotted lights glowing in a lab building. Someone must have left them on last night by mistake, he thought to himself. When he entered the lab to turn out the lights, he found Lynn toiling away. He'd been there all night. Unassuming, ferociously patient, and relentless in his work, Lynn attacked the problem of cloning the EPO gene, logging 16-hour days for nearly two years nonstop. The problem proved so difficult that people avoided Lynn's seemingly quixotic quest. My assistant was told by other associates, what a dummy you are to work with this guy on a project that's going nowhere. What if Lynn had never seen the ad? What if he'd taken a job elsewhere? Would Amgen have created the first billion-dollar biotechnology blockbuster? We tend to think of luck as a what variable. The plane flies by at the right moment. Your IPO becomes much more successful than expected, and so forth. But one of the most significant forms of luck comes not as what, but in the form of who. In a family business, for example, there is a significant amount of luck in whether a son or daughter has the right stuff to lead a company to greatness. 
Progressive began as a small family business in Cleveland, Ohio, and the family owners got a remarkable 10x her son in Peter Lewis, who took over the company in 1965. This entire research project began with the premise that we live in an environment of chaos and uncertainty. But the environment doesn't determine why some companies thrive in chaos and why others don't. People do. People are disciplined fanatics. People are empirical. People are creative. People are productively paranoid. People lead. People build teams. People build organizations. People build cultures. People exemplify values, purpose, and achieve big, hairy, audacious goals. Of all the luck we can get, people luck, the luck of finding the right mentor, partner, teammate, leader, friend, is one of the most important. High ROL, return on luck. Why did Bill Gates become a 10Xer? building a truly great software company in the personal computer revolution. Through one lens, you might see Bill Gates as incredibly lucky. He just happened to have been born into an upper-middle-class American family that had the resources to send him to a private school. His family enrolled him at Lakeside School in Seattle, which had obtained a teletype connection to a computer, upon which he could learn to program. Something unusual for schools in the late 1960s and early 1970s. He just happened to have been born at the right time, coming of age just as the advancement of microelectronics made the personal computer inevitable. Born 10 years later, or even 5 years later, he would have missed the moment. His friend, Paul Allen, just happened to see a cover story in the January 1975 issue of Popular Electronics, titled, World's First Microcomputer Kit to Rival Commercial Models. It was about the Altair, designed by a small company in Albuquerque. Gates and Allen had the idea to convert the programming language BASIC into a product that could be used on the Altair which would put them in a position to be the first to sell such a product for a personal computer. Gates went to college at Harvard, which just happened to have a PDP-10 computer, upon which he could develop and test his ideas. Wow! Gates was really lucky, right? Well, yes, through one lens, Gates was lucky. But luck is not underscore not why Gates became a 10Xer. Consider the following questions. Was Gates the only person of his era who grew up in an upper middle class American family? Was Gates the only person born in the mid-1950s who attended a secondary school with access to computing? Was Gates the only person who went to a college with computer resources in the mid-1970s? Was Gates the only person who read the Popular Electronics article? 
was Gates the only person who knew how to program in BASIC? No, 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 and no. Lakeside might have been one of the first schools to have a computer that students could access during those years. But it wasn't the only such school. Gates might have been a math and computer whiz kid at a top college that had computers in 1975. But he wasn't the only math and computer whiz kid at Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, Yale, MIT, Caltech, Carnegie Mellon, Berkeley, UCLA, Chicago, Georgia Tech, Cornell, Dartmouth, USC, Columbia, Northwestern, Penn, Michigan, or any number of other top colleges with comparable or even better computer resources. Gates wasn't the only person who knew how to program in BASIC. The language had been developed by professors at Dartmouth a decade earlier, and it was widely known by 1975, used in academics and industry. And what about all the masters and PhD students in electrical engineering and computer science who had even more computer expertise than Gates on the day the popular electronics article appeared? Any of them could have decided to abandon their studies and launch a personal computer software company, as could have computer experts already working in industry and academia. But how many of them disrupted their life plans and cut their sleep to near zero, inhaling junk food as fast as possible so as to not let eating interfere with work, to throw themselves into writing basic for the Altair? How many of them defied their parents, dropped out of college, and moved to Albuquerque? Albuquerque, New Mexico, to work with the Altair. How many of them got basic for the Altair written, debugged, and ready to ship before anyone else, when they could have had they chosen to do so? Thousands of people could have done the exact same thing as Gates, at the exact same time, but they didn't. The difference between Bill Gates and similarly advantaged people is not luck. Yes, Gates was lucky to be born at the right time, but many others had this luck. And yes, Gates was lucky to have the chance to learn programming by 1975, but many others had this same luck. Gates did more with his luck, taking a confluence of lucky circumstances and creating a huge return on his luck. And that is the important difference. When we first started working on the luck analysis, a number of our colleagues and associates said to us, if you can't cause luck, if luck is something by definition that's out of your control, why spend time thinking about it and studying it? True, luck happens, good and bad, to everyone, whether we like it or not. But when we look at the 10Xers, we see people like Gates who recognize luck and seize it. Leaders who grab luck events and make more of them than others do. 
It's the 10x ability to get a high ROL, a high return on luck, a pivotal moment that distinguishes them, and this has a huge multiplicative effect. They zoom out to recognize when a luck event has happened and to consider whether they should let it disrupt their plans. Imagine if Bill Gates had said to Paul Allen after seeing the popular electronics article, well, Paul, I'm kind of focused on my studies here at Harvard. Let's wait a few years and then I'll be ready to start. I'd like you to picture a two-by-two matrix. And on one dimension, you have luck, good and bad. And on another dimension, you have return on luck, great or poor. And you can work into each of the four quadrants of this matrix. Getting a great return on good luck is an essential skill for achieving 10x success. That's the Bill Gates story. Getting a poor return on good luck is a sure path to mediocrity, squandering your good luck. We will come to that in a few minutes. Getting a great return on bad luck presents the opportunity for truly defining moments in a 10x journey. We will then turn to that question. And finally, getting a very poor return on bad luck is a very good way to hit the death line. Do not confuse luck with return on luck. We've encountered two extreme views on the topic of luck. The first sees luck as the dominant explanation for abnormal success, holding that big winners are merely the fortunate beneficiaries of a series of lucky coin flips. After all, in this view, if you put a million monkeys in a room flipping coins, some monkey will eventually garner a string of 50 heads in a row just by random chance. In this view, people like Bill Gates are the lucky people who just happened to flip 50 heads in a row. The second extreme view claims that luck plays no role. Our success and survival deriving entirely from skill, preparation, hard work, and tenacity. Those who espouse this extreme view dismiss the undeniable fact of luck. Luck played no role in my success. I'm just really good. In this view, Bill Gates could have become Bill Gates even if he'd grown up as a peasant in communist China during the Cultural Revolution. Our research doesn't support either extreme. On the one hand, we cannot deny the fact of luck or deny that some people start from a more fortunate place in life. On the other hand, luck by itself does not explain why some people build great companies and others don't. Our unit of analysis isn't a single event or a short moment in time. We examined great companies that sustained excellent performance for a minimum of 15 years and the leaders who built them. Across all the research we've conducted for this book and our previous books regarding what makes great companies, which has involved investigating the histories of 75 major corporations, 
we've never once found a single instance of sustained performance due simply to pure luck. It just never happened. Yet also true, we've never studied a single great company devoid of luck events along its journey. Neither extreme. It's all luck, or luck plays no role, has the evidence on its side. A far better fit with the data is a synthesizing concept, return on luck. Getting a high return on luck requires throwing yourself at the luck event with ferocious intensity, disrupting your life, and not letting up. Bill Gates didn't just get a lucky break and cash in his chips. He kept pushing, driving, working, staying on a 20-mile march, firing bullets, then big calibrated cannonballs, exercising productive paranoia to avoid the death line, developing and amending a smack recipe, hiring great people, building a culture of discipline, never deviating from his monomaniacal focus, and sustained his efforts for more than two decades. That's not luck. That's return on luck. So we just covered the first quadrant through the lens of Bill Gates. Great returns on good luck. Now we're going to move to the quadrant of getting poor returns on good luck. Squandering luck. When we turn to the comparison cases, we see a substantial number of good luck events, but a generally poor overall return on luck. Some of the comparison cases got extraordinary sequences of good luck, yet showed a spectacular ability to fritter it away. In the mid-1990s, Perennial also ran AMD, experienced a series of good luck events. First, a federal jury cleared the company to essentially clone Intel microprocessors. A huge court victory that gave AMD a chance to take advantage of a rising customer tide against Intel's power. Computer makers desperately wanted an alternative source for microprocessor chips, chafing at being beholden to powerful Intel. AMD developed its K5 chip, going head-to-head -head with Intel's Pentium chip, and customers began to make commitments to AMD. Then, with AMD building momentum, clocking sales records, and lessening Intel's power, came a huge stroke of good luck for AMD. IBM halted shipments of computers that used Intel's Pentium chip due to a highly publicized glitch that caused a rounding error in certain rare calculations. Intel eventually announced a $475 million charge against earnings to replace Pentium chips for its customers. And all this happened just as the technology boom fueled huge growth in chip demand. And what did AMD do with all this good luck? Quote, AMD developed a rip in its mainsail, and we didn't catch the wind, unquote, wrote Sanders in his 1995 annual report. Then continuing, the rip in our mainsail was our tardiness in bringing to market our fifth 
generation AMD K5 microprocessor. The K5 project slipped months behind schedule, and customers began to turn back to Intel, driving AMD's microprocessor sales down 60%. By the time AMD solved its K5 problems, Intel had moved on to the next generation of microprocessors. AMD appeared to be out of the race again. But then, against all reasonable odds, AMD got another two lucky breaks. First, a small company named NextGen had developed a working clone of Intel's next-generation microprocessor. And lucky for AMD, NextGen had run short of cash, forcing it to seek a friendly buyer. AMD purchased NextGen and in one step put itself back in the game. In fact, the resulting AMD K6 appeared to be faster and cheaper than Intel's Pentium Pro when running Windows. Second, the entire industry took a sharp turn that favored AMD. Sub $1,000 personal computers had become the fastest growing part of the market, and AMD's K6 chips were well suited to this shift. Here again, AMD had a perfect scenario. Customers wanted to lessen Intel's power. The market shift toward cheaper computers gave AMD an edge, and the K6 was an ideal product at exactly the right moment in the midst of one of the greatest technology booms in history. And then AMD failed to execute brilliantly, unable to make enough chips to meet demand. Customers rooted for AMD. They really wanted a viable alternative to Intel. But they couldn't reliably get enough of the K6 due to AMD's manufacturing problems. And they began to turn back to Intel. Despite an extraordinary run of good luck at the best possible moment, AMD's stock fell more than 70% behind the general stock market from the start of 1995 through the end of 2002. The AMD story illustrates a common pattern we observed in the comparison companies during their respective eras of analysis. The squandering of good luck. When the time came to execute on their good fortune, they stumbled. They didn't fail for lack of good luck. They failed for lack of superb execution. In 1980, IBM sought an operating system for its then-in-development personal computer. We now know that this led to a turning point in Microsoft's history. But when IBM first went looking, the outcome could have been very different. Microsoft didn't have an operating system or even have plans to be in the operating system business. The clear front-runner, the company that should have established the dominant standard in the personal computer business, was Digital Research in Pacific Grove, California. Digital Research would have been a comparison candidate in our research, but was excluded due to being privately held. Still, the story is worth sharing to highlight the question. When the moment comes, will you capture it or just 
let it slip. Digital Research had developed CPM, the leading non-Apple operating system for personal computers. And IBM executives traveled to Digital Research's offices to discuss the possibility of working together. Digital Research's CEO, Gary Kildall, had previously scheduled a business meeting in the Bay Area, and piloting his own private plane, he flew up to San Francisco, leaving the first part of the IBM meeting in the hands of colleagues. By the time he piloted himself back in the afternoon, the meeting had taken a negative turn. The IBM people left later that day unimpressed, and Kildall departed for a vacation. Accounts vary as to precisely why the talks disintegrated, but the result was that IBM turned to Microsoft in frustration. Microsoft recognized the moment and committed itself to a brutal schedule to get an operating system ready for the launch of the IBM PC. Digital research had the incredible good fortune to be in the right place at the right time when IBM came knocking. But it didn't get a great return on luck. Microsoft did. So now we've addressed two of the quadrants in the return on luck matrix. Getting a great return on good luck, Bill Gates and Microsoft. Squandering good luck, getting poor returns on good luck, AMD and digital research. Now we move to the third quadrant, getting great returns on bad luck. And this is when 10Xers really shine. On November 8, 1988, Peter Lewis received news that shocked and stunned the insurance industry. California voters passed Proposition 103, a punitive attack on car insurance companies mandating 20% price reductions and refunds to customers and plunging the world's largest auto insurance market into chaos. Progressive insurance had significant exposure with nearly a quarter of its entire business from that one state. Bang! Severely damaged by a 51% vote on a single day. Lewis zoomed out to ask, what the heck is going on? He placed a call to his former Princeton classmate, Ralph Nader. Nader had long been a consumer rights activist, at one point leading a sort of special forces unit nicknamed Nader's Raiders, and he'd championed Proposition 103. The message Lewis heard? People hate you. People simply hated dealing with insurance companies, and they revolted, screaming with their votes. People were saying, we hate your guts, we're going to kill you, and we don't give a damn, said Lewis. Chastened by what he heard, Lewis called his staff together and told everyone, our customers actually hate us and then challenged his team to create a better company. Lewis came to see Proposition 103 as a gift, and he used this gift to deepen the company's core purpose, that being to reduce the economic cost and trauma caused by auto accidents. So, Progressive created Immediate Response Claim Service, 
No matter what time you had an accident, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, Progressive would be available to help. Claims adjusters would work from a fleet of vans and SUVs dispatched to policy holder homes or even directly to an accident. By 1995, 80% of the time the Progressive adjuster would have gone to a customer ready to issue a check within 24 hours of an accident. In 1987, the year before Proposition 103, Progressive ranked number 13 in the American private passenger auto insurance market. Number 13. By 2002, it reached number 4. Years later, Peter Lewis called Proposition 103 the best thing that ever happened to this company. Progressive and Peter Lewis illustrate how 10Xers shine when clobbered by setbacks and misfortune, turning bad luck into good results. 10Xers use difficulty as a catalyst to deepen purpose, recommit to values, increase discipline, respond with creativity, and heighten productive paranoia. Resilience, not luck. Resilience is the signature of greatness. As we were working on this research project, we read about an analysis of Canadian-born hockey players wherein academic researchers identified a correlation between birth date and hockey success. Those born in the second half of the year had less success than those born in the first half of the year. Being 10 and 3 quarters years old versus just 10 years old can make a difference in terms of size and speed. So, with an age class cutoff of January 1, the kids born at the beginning of the year have a physical advantage over those born at the end of the year, which then compounds as they have more early success and garner more attention from coaches. Author Malcolm Gladwell popularized these findings, writing that the pattern eventually played out all the way to the National Hockey League, the NHL where the distribution of birth dates is skewed to the first half of the year by 70% to 30%. But a closer look at the data leads to a very different conclusion for truly great hockey players, the 10Xers, those few who make it to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Those who make it to the Hall of Fame are members of a much more elite group than those who only make it to the NHL. The Hall of Fame currently inducts no more than four players per year, and induction is based on a player's entire career. In fact, half of Canadian-born Hall of Famers had birth dates in the second half of the year. Now consider the following. If indeed a substantially lower percentage of Canadian-born NHL players are born in the second half of the year than in the first half of the year. Yet half of Canadian-born Hall of Fame inductees have birth dates in the second half of the year. This leads to a very interesting inversion. Canadian NHL players with the bad luck 
of being born in the second half of the year have a higher, not lower, higher likelihood of making it into the Hall of Fame than those with the good luck of being born in the first half of the year. Consider Ray Bork, born in December, who came from a poor family, grew up in a working-class neighborhood, lived in an apartment with children stacked from floor to ceiling in bunk beds, and thrilled at even having skates at all. Bork lived hockey, sleeping with his skates, creating a makeshift rink in the cellar of his apartment building, practicing thousands of shots, blasting the puck at a goal pinned to the wall so hard that it cracked the cement, water leaking in, his father repairing the dingy walls with crack filler. Bork developed a crushing work ethic that endured. For most of his NHL career en route to the Hall of Fame, he played more than 30 minutes a game, at times double that of his teammates, reflecting his prodigious self-imposed fitness regimen. He played in 19 consecutive NHL All-Star games and retired as the most proficient scoring defenseman in NHL history. Bork was a gifted physical specimen, and he likely had superior skills even as a youngster. But most players who make it to the NHL are also impressive physical specimens, and most likely had outstanding skills even as youngsters. There are far fewer, however, who prove themselves to be 10 Xers across an entire career like Ray Bork. Goals live on the other side of obstacles and challenges, said Bork. Along the way, he continued, make no excuses and place no blame. Bork had luck in his journey, good and bad, but luck did not make Bork into one of the greatest hockey players of all time. Now you might be thinking, but Bork is an exception. Precisely. The whole point is to become exceptional. Nietzsche famously wrote, what does not kill me makes me stronger. We all get bad luck. The question is how to use that bad luck to make us stronger, to turn it into one of the best things that ever happened, to not let it become a psychological prison. And that's precisely what 10Xers do. So now we have covered three of the four quadrants. The first quadrant, getting great returns on good luck, the Microsoft case. The quadrant, getting poor returns on good luck, AMD and digital research. Getting great returns on bad luck. And there we see Progressive with Proposition 103 and people like Ray Bork. And now we move to the fourth quadrant, the last quadrant in the matrix. Bad luck with poor returns. The one place you really don't want to be. We came across a remarkable moment at the very start of Southwest Airlines' life, described by its first CEO, Lamar Muse, in his book, Southwest Passage. The very first Sunday morning of Southwest's life, we narrowly escaped a disaster. 
During the takeoff run, the right thrust reverser deployed. Only the captain's instantaneous reaction allowed him to recover control and make a tight turn for an emergency landing on one engine. What if, despite the pilot's heroics, he'd not been able to stop the aircraft from a flat spin? What if the 737 had smashed into the ground in the first week of building the brand? Would there even be a Southwest Airlines today? There's only one truly definitive form of luck, and that's the luck that ends the game. If Southwest missed an opportunity to open in a new city or grab a set of gates at a new airport, it still could have turned itself into a great company. But if Southwest had been knocked out of business with a plane crash in its first week of operation, it likely would have lost forever the chance to become a great company. Recall the essential first half of Nietzsche's quote, What does not kill me? There's an interesting asymmetry between good luck and bad luck. A single stroke of good luck, no matter how big the break, cannot, by itself, make a great company. But a single stroke of extremely bad luck that slams you on the death line, or an extended sequence of bad luck events that creates a catastrophic outcome, can terminate the quest. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, both PSA and Southwest struggled with a similar sequence of bad luck events. Both companies got smacked by an oil shock that spiked jet fuel prices. Both companies experienced an air traffic control strike. Both companies faced a severe recession and spiraling inflation, particularly difficult for airlines. Both companies suffered from skyrocketing interest rates that increased the cost of jet leasing. Both companies had an unexpected change of CEOs. As PSA's president, Paul Barkley, noted in 1982, it has been less than two years. It seems more like 10 years have gone by. From 1979 through 1985, PSA fell into a self-destructive doom loop raising prices rather than lowering costs, destroying its culture with layoffs and acrimonious labor battles, downgrading its balance sheet with increasing debt, and putting in place a CEO who abandoned the smack recipe and delivered erratic earnings. PSA got poor returns on bad luck and fell permanently behind Southwest. If we all get some combination of both heads, lucky flips, and tails, unlucky flips, and if the ratio of heads to tails tends to even out over time, we need to be skilled, strong, prepared, and resilient to endure the bad luck long enough to eventually get good luck. Malcolm Daly had to be lucky enough to survive the fall, but he also had to be strong, skilled, and resilient before the 44 hours of peril after his 200-foot fall. The Southwest pilot had to be skilled and prepared before the thrust reverser deployed. And the Southwest spirit had to be strong and resilient before the bad luck of the early 1980s. 
As we discussed in Chapter 5, the Death Line Chapter, 10Xers exercise productive paranoia combined with empirical creativity and fanatic discipline to create huge margins of safety. If you stay in the game long enough, good luck tends to return. But if you get knocked out, you'll never have the chance to be lucky again. Luck favors the persistent, but you can persist only if you survive. Dane Miller grasped this idea in the early days of 10x case Biomet, running lean to the extreme to buffer against whatever the company might encounter in its fledgling years from 1977 to 1982. Miller and three colleagues quit their jobs and threw their personal savings into the company, working 12 to 16 hours a day, including weekends, in a ramshackle space, a converted barn, actually, with a hole cut in the wall to attach a mobile home for storing inventory. They leave the air conditioning off as long as possible in the summer to minimize utility charges. People working at fold-up card tables with beads of sweat dripping off their noses. To save money on a financing trip, Miller and one of his colleagues spent the night in the motorhome of a Presbyterian church and had to shower in ice-cold water. At one point, Miller noticed an empty field behind their headquarters and had an idea. Why not raise cows? That's right, cows. Letting them graze on the unused grassland. If the company ran out of cash, they could eat the cows to get through a rough patch. So they herded three cows onto the lot making Biomet the first cattle farming hedge play in the medical devices industry. Biomet had to endure more than five tough years before it obtained substantial outside funding. Trying a range of product possibilities, eating the cows, and taking cold showers along the way. It survived being turned down by venture capitalists. It survived when its subcontract manufacturers failed to deliver parts Biomet needed. It survived being turned down by established distributors. It survived long enough for its implant products to finally gain traction, setting the company on a path to beat its industry by more than 11 times. Luck is not a strategy. Life offers no guarantees. But it does offer strategies for managing the odds, indeed even managing luck. The essence of managing luck involves four things. One, cultivating the ability to zoom out to recognize luck when it happens. Two, developing the wisdom to see when and when not to let luck disrupt your plans. Three, being sufficiently well-prepared to endure an inevitable spate of bad luck. And four, creating a positive return on luck, both good luck and bad, when it comes. Luck is not a strategy, but getting a positive return on luck is. And how would you get the highest possible return on luck? It turns out 
that you've been hearing about it all the way along in the previous chapters. Keep in mind the original premise of the study. Life is uncertain, full of big consequential forces that we can neither predict nor control. Luck is uncertain, uncontrollable, and consequential. Indeed, we could reframe the entire study, the entire book, everything we did around luck and how to get a great ROL. Let's review where we've been. 10Xer Behaviors Leaders with fanatic discipline, empirical creativity, productive paranoia, and level 5 ambition never relax when blessed with good luck. They never wallow in despair when hit with bad luck. They keep pushing, driving for the overall goal and cause. 20 Mile March When 10Xers get a lucky break, they seize it and build upon it, not just for days or weeks, but for years or decades. A 10Xer builds a culture that can achieve results whether it gets good luck or bad, engendering deep confidence that success in the end doesn't depend on luck. Fire bullets, then cannonballs. Well, 10Xers don't cause their luck. By definition, you don't cause luck. They increase the chances, however, of stumbling upon something that works by firing lots of bullets. By marrying creativity with empirical validation, 10Xers can fire big cannonballs that don't rely on luck for their ultimate success. Uncalibrated cannonballs require luck for a successful outcome. Calibrated cannonballs do not. Leading above the death line. By having lots of extra oxygen canisters, building big buffers and margins of safety, 10Xers give themselves more options for responding to luck. By managing three types of risk, death line risk, asymmetric risk, and uncontrollable risk. They shrink the odds of catastrophe in the face of bad luck. The ability to zoom out, then zoom in, helps them recognize luck and consider if it merits disrupting their plans. Smack. Specific, methodical, and consistent. Smack. Smack behaviors minimize mistakes that can amplify bad luck events. They also increase the odds of executing brilliantly when a good luck moment arrives. Having a clear smack recipe can help you decide whether and how to let a luck event disrupt your plans. All the concepts in this book contribute to getting a high ROL. 10Xers recognize that we're all swimming in a sea of luck all the time. They understand that we cannot cause, control, or predict luck. But by behaving and leading in 10x ways, they make the most of the luck they get. There's an adage that says, better to be lucky than good. And it's perhaps true for those who seek to be only good. And not much better than average, creating nothing exceptional. But our research brings us to an entirely opposite conclusion for those who aspire to more. It's far better to be great than lucky. 
The best leaders we've studied maintain a paradoxical relationship to luck. On the one hand, they credit good luck in retrospect for having played a role in their achievements, despite the undeniable fact that others were just as lucky. On the other hand, they don't blame bad luck for failures, and they hold only themselves responsible if they fail to turn their luck into great results. 10Xers grasp that if they blame bad luck for failure, they capitulate to fate. Equally, they grasp that if they fail to perceive when good luck helped, they might overestimate their own skill and leave themselves exposed when good luck runs dry. There might be more good luck down the road, but 10Xers never count on it. Chapter Summary Return on Luck Key Points We defined a luck event as one that meets three tests. One, some significant aspect of the event occurs largely or entirely independent of the actions of the key actors in the enterprise. Two, the event has a potentially significant consequence, good or bad. And three, the event has some element of unpredictability. Luck happens. A lot. Both good luck and bad luck. Every company in our research experienced significant luck events in our era of analysis. Yet the 10x cases were not generally luckier than the comparison cases. The 10x companies did not generally get more good luck than the comparisons. The 10x companies did not generally get less bad luck than the comparisons. The 10x companies did not get their good luck earlier than the comparisons. The 10x companies cannot be explained by a single giant luck spike. We've encountered two extreme views on the topic of luck. One extreme holds that luck is the primary cause of 10x success. The other extreme holds that luck plays no role in 10x success. Both views are not supported by the evidence from our research. The critical question is not, are you lucky? But do you get a high return on luck? There are four possible ROL scenarios. Great return on good luck. Poor return on good luck. Great return on bad luck. Poor return on bad luck. We observed an asymmetry between good luck and bad. A single stroke of good fortune, no matter how big, cannot by itself make a great company. But a single stroke of extremely bad luck, or an extended sequence of bad luck events that create a catastrophic outcome, can terminate the quest. There's only one truly definitive form of luck, and that's the luck that ends the game. 10Xers assume they'll get a spate of bad luck and prepare ahead of time. The leadership concepts in this book, fanatic discipline, empirical creativity, productive paranoia, level 5 ambition, 20-mile march, fire bullets, then cannonballs, leading above the death line, smack, all contribute directly to earning a great 
R-O-L. 10Xers credit good luck as a contributor to their success, despite the undeniable fact that others also experienced good luck. But they never blame bad luck for setbacks or failures. Unexpected findings. Some of the comparison companies had exceptional good luck, better luck even than the 10x winners, yet failed because they squandered it. 10x cases got a substantial amount of bad luck, yet managed to get a great ROL. This is when 10xers really shine, exemplifying the philosophy, what does not kill me makes me stronger. ROL might be an even more important concept than return on assets, ROA, return on equity, ROE, return on sales, ROS, or return on investment, ROI. Who luck? The luck of finding the right mentor, partner, teammate, leader, friend, is one of the most important types of luck. The best way to find a strong current of good luck is to swim with great people and build deep and enduring relationships with people for whom you'd risk your life and who'd risk their lives for you. Key question. What significant luck events have you experienced in the last decade? Did you get a high return on luck? Why or why not? What can you do to increase your return on luck. And at the end of this chapter, a bonus question. Who is your best luck? Epilogue. Great by choice. Quote, We should be able to see that things are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. F. Scott Fitzgerald. We sense a dangerous disease infecting our modern culture and eroding hope. An increasingly prevalent view that greatness owes more to circumstance, even luck, than to action and discipline. That what happens to us matters more than what we do. In games of chance, like a lottery or roulette, this view seems plausible. But taken as an entire philosophy... Applied more broadly to human endeavor, it's a deeply debilitating life perspective, one that we cannot imagine wanting to teach young people. Do we really believe that our actions count for little? That those who create something great are merely lucky? That our circumstances imprison us? Do we want to build a society and culture that encourages us to believe that we are not responsible for our choices, and accountable for our performance? Our research evidence stands firmly against this view. This work began with the premise that most of what we face lies beyond our control, that life is uncertain and the future unknown. And as we discussed in Chapter 7, luck plays a role for everyone, both good luck and bad luck. But... If one company becomes great, while another, in similar circumstances and with comparable luck, 
does not. The root cause of why one becomes great and the other does not simply cannot be circumstance or luck. Indeed, if there's one overarching message arising from more than 6,000 years of corporate history across all of our research, studies that employ comparisons of great versus good in similar circumstances, it would be this. Greatness is not primarily a matter of circumstance. Greatness is, first and foremost, a matter of conscious choice and discipline. The factors that determine whether or not a company becomes truly great, even in a chaotic and uncertain world, lie largely within the hands of its people. It is not mainly a matter of what happens to them, but a matter of what they create, what they do, and how well they do it. This book and the three that precede it, Built to Last, Good to Great, and How the Mighty Fall, are looks into the question of what it takes to build an enduring great organization. As we conducted the 10x research, we simultaneously tested the concepts from the previous work, considering whether any of the key concepts from those works cease to apply in highly uncertain and chaotic environments. The earlier concepts held up, and we are confident that the concepts from all four studies increase the odds of building a great company. But do they guarantee success? No, they don't. Good research advances understanding, but it never provides the ultimate answer. We always have more to learn. And life offers no guarantees. It's always possible that game-ending events and unbendable forces, disease, accident, brain injury, earthquake, tsunami, financial calamity, civil war, or any of a thousand other possible events will subvert our strongest and most disciplined efforts. Still, we must act. When the moment comes, when we're afraid, exhausted, or tempted, what choice do we make? Do we abandon our values? Do we give in? Do we accept average performance because that's what most everyone else accepts? Do we capitulate to the pressure of the moment? Do we give up on our dreams when we've been slammed by brutal facts? The greatest leaders we've studied throughout all our research cared as much about values as victory, as much about purpose as profit, as much about being useful as being successful. Their drive and standards are ultimately internal, rising from somewhere deep inside. We are not imprisoned by our circumstances. We are not imprisoned by the luck we get or the inherent unfairness of life. We are not imprisoned by crushing setbacks, self-inflicted mistakes, or even our past success. We are not imprisoned by the times in which we live, by the number of hours in a day, or even the number of hours we're granted in our very short lives. 
In the end, we can control only a tiny sliver of what happens to us. But even so, we are free to choose, free to become great by choice. We are now going to cover some frequently asked questions. Uh, we have finished the formal reading of the main text of the book, and we hope you enjoyed it very much. Uh, but there are a lot of questions that Morton and I have received about the ideas, about the work, and we wanted to cover a number of those uh, here for you. Question. Were any of the concepts from Good to Great, Built to Last, or How the Mighty Fall overturned by this research? Answer. No. We systematically examined the relationship of the 10x cases and their comparisons to the concepts from the prior work. The evidence showed that the 10x cases exemplified the prior concepts to a greater degree than the comparison cases. We can retain our confidence in the concepts from the prior work, even in uncertain and chaotic environments. Question. To what extent did the Level 5 leaders in Good to Great exhibit 10xer behaviors as we describe them in Great by Choice? Answer. We observed fanatic discipline, empirical creativity, and level 5 ambition in the level 5 leaders in the Good to Great research, very much as with the 10Xers here. However, we observed less productive paranoia in the Good to Great leaders than in the 10X leaders in this study. We believe this is because they operated in less severe environments. Recall the analogy from early in the book in chapter 1 about hiking on a leisurely hike with warm, sunlit meadows on a warm spring day with a truly great mountaineering expedition leader. In those situations, you wouldn't see everything that makes him different from others. The Level 5 leaders in Good to Great operated generally in safer environments than the 10Xers in this study. Also, unlike this study, the Good to Great leaders generally took over already established and often quite large good companies. Whereas the 10Xers in this study began as entrepreneurs or small business leaders, which rendered them more exposed and vulnerable to their environments. If the Level 5s in Good to Great had been leading small companies, facing the level of uncertainty and chaos faced by the 10X leaders in this study, we suspect they would have shown more productive paranoia. Finally, we'd note that Good to Great perhaps put more emphasis on the humility aspect of the Level 5 duality. To review, a Level 5 leads with a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will, whereas this study highlights more of the will aspect of Level 5. To be a true Level 5 leader, however, always requires exercising both humility, and will. This is the concept many are familiar with of getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people into key seats, and then figuring out where to drive the bus. Question. What role does the first who principle play when leading a company amidst uncertainty and chaos? We didn't write much about getting the right people on the bus about the first who principle in this book, because the concept is so heavily covered in Good to Great. But make no mistake, 10X leaders were fanatic 
about getting the right people on the bus and into the right seats. Recall David Brashear's dedication to having the right people on Everest, living by the adage that a summit team is only as strong as its weakest member. Time Magazine wrote of Southwest Airlines in 2002, The airline received 200,000 resumes last year, but hired only 6,000 workers, making it more selective than Harvard. Progressive Insurance identified having the right people as the number one strategic pillar for accomplishing its objectives and beating its competition, noting proudly in 1990 that there are 15 people who we asked to leave who became presidents of other insurance companies. John Brown at Stryker had a gift for picking the right people and the discipline to move people out of seats in which they were failing following a striker philosophy that it's better to invest heavily in the right people than to pour too much energy into people who aren't going to make it. George Rathman said of Amgen's early history, Amgen is one of those companies where all the assets go home at night in tennis shoes. And by the 1990s, Amgen rejected 57 of every 58 job applicants. Intel co-founder Robert Noyce assembled Intel's founding team before deciding what products to make. He took personal responsibility for recruiting Intel's early talent and believed that the right people in the right culture would lead to great outcomes. As Tom Wolfe wrote about Ted Hoff and his invention of the microprocessor, Noyce took Hoff's triumph as proof that if you created the right type of corporate community, the right type of autonomous congregation, genius would flower. Microsoft used extreme standards to select the right people for Microsoft. With Gates summing up in 1992, take away our best 20 people and I tell you that Microsoft would become an unimportant company. Biomet paid fastidious attention to getting the right people in every seat using stock options at all levels to attract and retain the best talent. All the 10x companies cultivated cult-like cultures wherein the right people would flourish and equally where the wrong people would quickly self-eject. The 10x study is predicated on the premise of unending uncertainty which increases the importance of first two. See, if you cannot predict what's going to happen You need people on the bus who can respond and adapt successfully to whatever unforeseen events might hit. Question. Is there a relationship between the smack recipe, as described here in Great by Choice, and the hedgehog concept in Good to Great? To review, a hedgehog concept, as we discussed in Good to Great, is a simple crystalline concept that flows from a deep understanding about the intersection of three circles. Circle one, what you are passionate about. Circle two, what you can be the best in the world at. And circle three, what drives your resource or economic engine. Once the good to great companies were clear on their hedgehog concepts, they built momentum by making a series of decisions relentlessly consistent with that concept, like turning a giant heavy flywheel turn upon turn. Now the smack recipe we've come to see is the code for translating a high-level hedgehog concept 
into specific action and for keeping an organization focused in the same direction, thereby building flywheel momentum. Southwest Airlines, for example, had a high-level hedgehog concept. The best, high-spirit, low-cost airline, steadily increasing profit per fuselage. With great passion for being an industry renegade, it translated this high-level hedgehog concept into Putnam's 10 points, discussed in Chapter 6. By consistently adhering to the recipe, Southwest built cumulative momentum in the flywheel, flight by flight, city by city, gate by gate, year by year, to rise from a startup in Texas to become the most successful airline. Question. Do you have any guidance for how to craft a smack recipe? Answer. The key to crafting a smack recipe is to go directly to the practical, the empirical, and when possible, the specific and concrete. You can vaguely aspire to high aircraft utilization, or like Southwest Airlines, you can specify gate turns of 10 minutes, or fly only 737s. You can aim without precision to advanced technology, or like Intel, you can focus on a more concrete task. Double the number of components every two years. You can seek to be efficient with the camera. Or you can specify, be able to assemble the camera, mount on tripod, load and thread film, aim and shoot in five minutes flat. The smack recipe should reflect insight based on empirical validation about what works and why. It should help make it clear what to do and what not to do. It should be durable, so that it requires only amendments, not wholesale revolution, in response to changing conditions. When formulating a smack recipe, ask what durable, specific practices best drive our results. In laboratory working sessions with executives, we've employed the following methodology. One. Make a list of successes your enterprise has achieved. Two, now make a list of disappointments your enterprise has experienced. Three, consider what specific practices correlate with the successes, but not with the disappointments. Four, on the other side, what specific practices correlate with the disappointments, but not with the successes. Five, which of these practices can last perhaps 10 to 30 years and apply across a range of circumstances? Six, why do these specific practices work? And finally, number seven, based on the above, what smack recipe consisting of 8 to 12 points that reinforce each other as a coherent system best drives your results. Question. If the 10x concepts are universal, why didn't they become starkly clear in good to great? Answer. As we discussed in Chapter 1, each research study is like poking holes in the side of a black box and shining a light inside to see the inner workings of the principles that make great companies. 
Each hole provides a different perspective. The Good to Great study focused on how to make a leap from oppressive mediocrity to great results. We selected the Good to Great companies based on a pattern of 15 years of mediocre performance punctuated by a breakthrough to 15 years of exceptional performance, not like this study on the severity of the environment. This study, in contrast, looked through an entirely different hole punched in the black box. Selecting small or startup companies that became great in uncertain, unforgiving, and chaotic environments. There's no inconsistency between the studies or their findings, just very different angles of analysis. The two studies don't repeat each other, nor do they contradict each other. They complement each other. Question. If I'm not a full 10Xer, can I compensate by building a 10x team that has all the behaviors? Answer. Instead of focusing on whether any given individual is a 10Xer, it's better to focus on working as a team to implement the key ideas in chapters 3 through 7 as an entire enterprise. Set a 20-mile march and commit to it. Fire bullets, then fire calibrated cannonballs. Practice all the elements of productive paranoia discussed in Leading Above the Death Line. Adhere to and selectively amend a smack recipe. Become highly attuned to luck and respond to every luck event, good or bad, with the question, what are we going to do to get a high return on this luck? If your team and enterprise succeed at all of these, it will matter less whether any single individual is a full-fledged 10Xer. Question. Does leading above the death line mean avoiding BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals, as we discussed them in the book Built to Last? Answer. No. Roald Amundsen en route to the South Pole and David Brashears with his IMAX camera on Everest were certainly pursuing BHAGs, as were the 10X leaders in our research study companies. The task is to pursue BHAGs and stay above the death line. Question. How is the 10X concept fire bullets then cannonballs different from the built-to-last concept try a lot of stuff and keep what works? Answer. The two ideas do overlap, but the key additional insight from the 10X research is that 10Xers follow up successful bullets with cannonballs. Trying a lot of stuff is, in essence, firing bullets. But keeping what works is not the same thing as making a big bet to fully exploit what you have learned from firing a bullet. That's what cannonballs are for. Question. What are the implications for innovation-driven economies of your finding that 10x cases didn't always out-innovate the comparison companies? Answer. Our research indicates that treating innovation alone as the silver bullet for achieving a competitive advantage would be naive and unwise. We conclude that 10x success requires the ability to scale innovation with great consistency by blending creativity 
and discipline to build organizations that turn innovation into sustained great performance. This is the Intel story. It's also the Southwest story, the Microsoft story, the Amgen story, the Stryker story, the Biomet story, the Progressive story, the story of the resurgence of Genentech under Levinson, and even the Apple story during its best years. If an enterprise, whether a company or a nation, retains its creativity yet loses discipline, increases pioneering innovation, yet forgets how to multiply that innovation at scale and at minimum cost, our research indicates that enterprise will be at risk. Question. You mentioned the genius of the AND a few times in the text. What is the genius of the AND and how does it apply here? Answer. We found in the Built to Last study that leaders of enduring great companies are comfortable with paradox, having the ability to embrace two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time. They don't oppress themselves with what we call the tyranny of the or, which pushes people to believe that things must be either A or B, but not both. Instead, the best leaders liberate themselves with the genius of the and, the ability to embrace both extremes of a number of dimensions at the same time. In the words of F. Scott Fitzgerald, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. In the 10x study, we found extensive evidence of the genius of the AND. For example, disciplined AND creative, empirical validation AND bold moves, prudence AND BHAGs, big hairy, audacious goals, paranoid AND courageous, ferociously ambitious AND not egocentric, Severe performance standards, no excuses. And never going too far, able to hold back. On a 20-mile march. And fire bullets, then cannonballs. Threshold innovation. And one fad behind. Cannot predict the future. And prepared for what they cannot predict. Go slow when they can. And Go fast when they must. Disciplined thought and decisive action. Zoom out and zoom in. Adhering to a smack recipe and amending a smack recipe. Consistency and change. Never count on luck and get a high ROL return on luck when luck comes. Question, how do you respond to critics of your research findings who point to the failings of previously great companies you've researched and written about? Answer, as we discussed in chapter one, our research is based upon studying specific dynastic eras of performance, like studying the greatest sports dynasties in history. That some sports dynasties later cease to be dynasties would be irrelevant 
to the overall analysis of what it takes to build a great sports dynasty. Again, we can study the John Wooden era of the UCLA Bruins, and just because the Bruins in a later era are not the same team does not negate what we would learn by studying the Bruins under Wooden. Question. Can this book help companies avoid the five stages of decline outlined in How the Mighty Fall? Answer. Yes. In fact, the comparison cases in this study that fell from potential greatness, PSA, Safeco, USSC, Genentech in the pre-Levinson era, and Apple before the return of Steve Jobs, all showed elements of stages one through four of decline, and some went all the way to stage five. To review, those five stages of decline that we write about in How the Mighty Fall are stage one, hubris born of success, stage two, undisciplined pursuit of more, leading to stage three, denial of risk and peril, followed by stage four, grasping for salvation, and eventually leads to stage five, capitulation to irrelevance or death. The 10x concepts in this work can play a significant role in staving off the stages of decline. Doing a 20-mile march, avoiding uncalibrated cannonballs, and adhering to a smack recipe help companies stay out of stage two. Leading above the death line concepts, amassing oxygen canisters, bounding risk, and zooming out and zooming in directly aid in keeping stage three at bay. Carefully amending a smack recipe rather than inciting wholesale reactive revolution enables companies to avoid stage four. As for the peril of stage one, hubris, those who truly practice productive paranoia never feel they're invincible. They always fear that potential doom lurks just around the corner. Question, how did you two, Jim and Morton, begin your working partnership and why did you do this research project as a team? Answer, Morton and I first met at Stanford Graduate School of Business in 1991. I was then teaching entrepreneurship and small business and my colleague, Professor Jerry Porras and I had embarked on the Built to Last research project. Morton joined our research team en route to receiving his PhD. Later, Morton went on to become a faculty member at Harvard Business School, and he contributed critical input on the research methods and study designs for the Good to Great project. Morton and I had always talked about collaborating on a project from the ground up if we discovered a mutually fascinating question. The question behind this book, why some thrive in the face of immense uncertainty, even chaos, and others do not, had been gestating in both of our minds for years, but it had been pushed to the background while working on other projects. Then in the aftermath of 9-11 and the bursting stock bubble, watching the exponential rise of global competition and the relentless onslaught of technological disruption, hearing the rising chant of change, 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 the question asserted itself. 
We both came to believe that uncertainty is permanent. Chaotic times are normal. Change is accelerating. And instability will likely characterize the rest of our lives. So, we joined forces. Question. Do you see great by choice as about defining and thriving in a new normal? Answer. No. The premise behind this work is that instability is chronic, uncertainty is permanent, change is accelerating, disruption is common, and we can neither predict nor govern events. We believe there will be no new normal. There will only be a continuous series of not normal times. The dominant pattern of history isn't stability, but instability and disruption. Those of us who came of age amidst stable prosperity in developed economies in the second half of the 20th century would be wise to recognize that we grew up in a historical aberration. How many times in history do people operate inside a seemingly safe cocoon during an era of relative peace while riding one of the most sustained economic booms of all time. For those of us who grew up in such environments, and especially for those who grew up in the United States, nearly all our personal experience lies within a rarefied slice of overall human history, very unlikely to repeat itself in the 21st century and beyond. Question. How widely applicable is the question underlying this study? Do you see it as universal? Answer. Stop to think about your own situation or organization and consider the following question. Rate the context in which you operate today on a 1 to 10 scale. A rating of 1 means you face no big forces outside your control. Nothing moves particularly fast. You can predict most of what's going to happen. Everything feels stable and certain. And there's nothing out there that can significantly alter your trajectory, good or bad. At the other end of the continuum, a rating of 10 means you face tremendous, fast-moving, unpredictable forces outside of your control that elicit feelings of uncertainty and instability, and that can have a huge impact, good or bad, on your trajectory. How would you rate your environment? Stable or unstable? Certain or uncertain? Predictable or unpredictable? In your control or not? More like a 3 or more like an 8? It doesn't matter whether we're discussing this question with small company entrepreneurs Army generals, K-12 educators, church leaders, membership associations, police chiefs, city managers, healthcare professionals, philanthropists, CIOs, CFOs, CEOs, or even individuals concerned about their jobs and families. When we ask this question, we get a remarkably consistent pattern of answers. After giving people a moment to reflect, we ask for a show of hands. 
How many have a score of less than five? Almost no hands go up. How many have a score of five or six? A few hands go up. How many have a score of seven or eight? More than half the people in the room raise their hands. How many have a score of nine or ten? The remaining people raise their hands. The question of what it takes to thrive in the face of uncertainty, even chaos, feels relevant to every industry and every social sector we've encountered so far. Question: Do you see the causes of chaos and uncertainty as primarily economic? Answer: Not entirely. Certainly, there are economic drivers, such as increased global competition, volatile capital markets, and rapidly evolving business models. But clearly, the sources of instability come from far outside economics, such as government regulation or deregulation, undisciplined government spending, unpredictable political risk, disruptive technologies, new media. The amplifying effect of a 24-hour news cycle, natural disasters, terrorism, energy shocks, climate change, political upheaval in emerging countries, and so on. And there will be entirely new disruptions and chaotic forces, as yet unforeseen. Question: Do you see this book as about the past or the future? Answer: We've studied the past, but we see this book as having great relevance for leading in the future. Our strategy was to carefully examine companies that had achieved greatness in the most uncertain and chaotic industries, and to glean the general principles for thriving in such environments, so that they can be applied by all enterprises dealing with the uncertainty and episodes of chaos in. The twenty-first century. Question: My world feels fairly stable right now. Does all of this apply to me? Answer: Remember a lesson from Chapter Five. It's what you do before the storm comes that most determines how well you'll do when the storm comes. Those who fail to plan and prepare for instability, disruption, and chaos in advance tend to suffer more when their environments shift from stability to turbulence. Question: Do the 10x concepts apply as much to the social sectors as the good to great ideas? Answer: While conducting this research. We simultaneously worked with leaders from a wide range of social sectors, including K through 12 education, higher education, churches, nonprofit hospitals, the military, police forces, government, city, county, state, and national, museums, orchestras, social safety nets such as hunger and homelessness-related organizations, youth programs, and a wide range of cause-driven nonprofits. Like business leaders, they all face big forces outside their control, high degrees of uncertainty, fast-moving events, dangerous threats, and huge disruptive opportunities. 
we found these ideas to be directly relevant for them, albeit with unique translation to each sector. Question. Do you see this work as being primarily about navigating in times of austerity and crisis? Answer. No. This is not a book on crisis management, nor is it about thriving amidst recession or even economic calamity. Crises and difficult times are simply special case scenarios of a more general condition of unrelenting instability and chronic uncertainty, whether in good times or bad. In fact, disruptive opportunity is just as dangerous as disruptive threat. Times of explosive growth are at least as difficult to navigate as times of economic austerity. Keep in mind some of the industries we studied. Software, computers, microelectronics, biotechnology, insurance, and medical devices. These industries were full of spectacular growth and opportunity, while also being uncertain, chaotic, and even dangerous. Consider computer software. In 1983, Industry Week magazine published a story entitled Software Sparks a Gold Rush and listed the top 16 personal computer software companies. All 16 sat right on the nose cone of a rocket about to take off, a nascent industry that would sell more than a billion personal computers worldwide by the early 2000s. Yet along the way, most of the early leaders lost their independence, and some died outright. Of the 16 leaders listed in the 1983 article, only three remained standing as independent companies at the time of this reading. The opportunity was huge. The amount of change was huge. And the resulting carnage was huge. If we're living in an age roiling with tumultuous opportunity, those who have the right tools and concepts and the discipline to employ them will pull even further ahead. Those who don't will fall further behind. Many, despite the rich and robust opportunities, will get knocked out of the game entirely. Question. How did the 2008 financial meltdown affect your thinking for this study? Answer. It served only to reinforce the relevance of the study question. Very few people predicted the 2008 financial crisis. The next great disruption will come, and the next one after that, and the next one after that, forever. We cannot know with certainty what they'll be, or when they'll come, but we can know with certainty that they will come. Question. Are you more or less optimistic and hopeful after conducting this study? Answer. We're much more optimistic and hopeful. More than any of our prior research, this study shows that whether we prevail or fail, endure or die, 
depends more upon what we do than on what the world does to us. We take particular solace from the fact that every 10Xer made mistakes, even some very big mistakes, yet was able to self-correct, survive, and build greatness. Acknowledgements. We could not have completed this project without the small army of people who made significant contributions of time and intellect. We had a wonderful team of research assistants. They are smart, curious, irreverent, fanatically disciplined people who are a joy to work with. We would like to thank the following members of the Chimpworks research team. Robin Bittner for multiple years of marching on a range of analyses. Kyle Blackmer for Turbulence Insights. Brad Caldwell for Biomet and Southwest Analyses. Adam Cederberg for Company Selection and IPO Analyses. Lauren Couget for 10X Company Updates and Title Analysis. Terence Cummings, a.k.a. Grande, for thousands of hours invested in dozens of pieces of the project. Daniel DeWispelare for Amgen Analysis. Todd Driver for 10X Leader Analyses and 10X Company Updates. Michael Graham for Comparison Selection and Comparative Analyses. Eric Hagen for the IPO List Smack Check and his Big Brain Contributions. Ryan Hall for a range of quantitative analyses. Beth Hartman for Turbulence Analyses and Company Selections. Deborah Knox for Industry Turbulence Analyses and Extensive IPO Analysis. Bettina Koski for Industry Turbulence Analyses. Michael Lane for Comparison Selection and Comparative Analyses. Laura Lee Linfield for Company Updates and Multiple Years of Smack Work. Nicholas M. Osgood for Industry Turbulence Analyses. Katherine Patterson for Comparison Selections and Comparative Analyses. Matthew Unengst for Backup Analyses and Moore's Law Research. Nathaniel Natty Zola for Becoming the Guru of Southwest Airlines versus Pacific Southwest Airlines. For Morton's research assistants, we thank Chris Allen for Data Analyses. Mohammed Rashid Ansari for Industry Analyses. Jane Brocklehurst for research support. Atrace Yoying Chang for fact-checking. Hendrika Escoffier for research support. Royzen Kelly for research support. Chitama Silberzon for financial data and analyses. Philippe Silberzon for Microsoft and Apple analyses. William Simpson for data analyses. Gina Carioja Zigetti for data analyses in company selections. Nana von Bernuth for years of amazing effort and commitment in conducting a wide range of indispensable analyses. And James Zeitler for data analyses. We are indebted to our critical readers who invested hours in reading drafts of the manuscript, criticizing the work, offering suggestions, and pushing at every turn to make the work better. For their candor, insight, and perspective, we would like to thank Ron Adner, 
Joel T. Allison, F-A-C-H-E. Chris Barbary, Gerald Jerry Bell. Daryl Billington, Kyle Blackmer, John M. Bremen, William P. Buchanan, Scott Calder, Robin Capehart, Scott Cedarberg, Brian Cornell, Lauren Couget, Jeff Donnelly, Todd Driver, David R. Duncan, Mike Faith, Andrew Filer, Claudio Fernandez Araz, Andrew Fimiano, Christopher Foreman, John Foster, Dick Frost, Itzik Goldberger, Michael Graham, Ed Greenberg, Eric Hagen, Becky Hall, Ryan Hall, Beth Hartman, Liz Heron, John B. Hess, John G. Hill, Kim Hollingsworth Taylor, Thomas F. Hornbeam, M.D., Lane Hornung, Zane Huffman, Christine Jones, Scott Jones, David D. Kennedy, Alan Casey, Bettina Kosky, Eva M.H. Christensen, Brian C. Larson, Kyle Lefkoff, Jim Limfield, father of chimp Laura Lee, Ed Ludwig, Weestar H. McLaren, David Maxwell, Kevin McGarvey, M.D., M.B.A., Bill McNabb, Ann Worley Moulter, also known as SFVG, Michael James Moulter, Clarence Otis Jr., Larry Pensack, Jerry Peterson, Amy Pressman, Sam Presti, Michael Prouding, David P. Ray, Jim Reed, Neville Richardson, Sarah Richardson, David G. Salyers, Kim Sanchez-Real, Vijay Sate, Kagan Scanlon, Dirk Schlimm, William F. Schuster, Annabelle Shires, Allison Sinclair, Tim Tosopoulos, Kevin Tweel, Gene Taylor, Tom Tierney, Nicole Toomey Davis, Matthew Unangst, Nana Von Bernuth, H. Lawrence Webb, David Weekly, Chuck Wexler, Dave Witherow, and Nathaniel Natty Zola. We also thank Constance Hale, Jeffrey Martin, and Philippe Simoz Dos Santos for their special attention to the research methods section. In addition, we would like to thank Salvatore D. Fazolari, Dennis Godcharles, Ben R. Liedel Jr., Evan Shapiro, Roy M. Spence Jr., and Jim Weddle for helpful dialogue and feedback. We would also like to thank the Transportation Library at Northwestern University for access to PSA's annual reports. Betty Greeby and Carol Chrisman at the University of Colorado William M. White Business Library. The Center for Research and Security Pricing, CRISP, Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago for its quality data and excellent service. Jajit Singh for patent data and insights. Dennis Bale 
and Lori Drabaugh for the roving office. Lee Wilbanks for joining our early concept debates. Alan Weber for great moments of conversation that sparked key ideas. Jim Logan for enduring the seemingly endless journey. Tommy Caldwell for testing 10xer ideas on sheer cliff walls. And all of Jim's personal band of brothers. Morton is especially thankful to Harvard Business School, INSEAD, and University of California, Berkeley, where he held academic positions during the time of this research. We thank Deborah Knox for editing the final text, pushing us for consistency and clarity, continually challenging our ideas, and zooming out on the big ideas, while also zooming in on the details. We thank James J. Robb for his graphics expertise, unbounded creativity, and enduring friendship. We thank Janet Brockett for her creative spark and design genius. We thank Karen Marooney for being a far-seeing guide through treacherous territory. We thank Peter M. Moldave for his dedicated and considered counsel. We thank Hollis Heimbach for believing in this work early on, tirelessly navigating the changing landscape of publishing, and working in a true spirit of partnership. We thank Peter Ginsberg for his unbroken track record at bringing together creative and unusual arrangements that benefit everyone involved. We thank Prasanna Bishop for spectacular sound studio and superb editing. We thank members of the Chimpworks home team who make it possible for Jim to focus on doing huge creative projects. For their efforts early in the project, we thank Brian J. Bagley, Patrick Blakemore, Taffy Hightower, Vicki Mosur Osgood, and Laura Suchat. We thank Jeff Dale for his measured and wise perspective as our strategic paratrooper. Judy Dunkley for her dedication to precision and accuracy and for her joyful worrying. Michael Lane for his dedicated years of being productively irreverent. Sue Barlow-Toll for serving as our Director of Operations and scampering down many a rabbit hole. And Kathy Warland-Turner for being Jim's right arm and exercising her wonderful ability to create friends and build relationships. We thank Robin Bittner and Laura Linfield for their heroic dedication to the project in its final year. They brought light and energy to our team while being opers of the first order. Finally, we owe an incalculable debt to our respective life partners, Joanne Ernst and Helen Henson, for their unyielding support, severest criticism, and endurance as we marched through the nine years of this project. This work would not exist without them. This is Jim Collins. This production of Great by Choice, Uncertainty, Chaos, and Luck, Why Some Thrive Despite Them All, was recorded at Akashic Recording in Boulder, Colorado. It was engineered and edited by Prasanna Bishop and mastered by Common Mode. The director and executive producer was Karen Jakonski. Text, copyright 2011, 
by Jim Collins and Morton T. Hansen. Production copyright 2011 by HarperCollins Publishers. All rights reserved. Thank you for listening. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.